0: Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about
1: stuff this week on the show. More Doctor Who. More Doctor Who. More Persona. Mm -hmm. More Persona four weeks in a row. Or if we get four weeks in a row for Persona, three weeks in a row with Doctor
0: Who. Doctor Who's going to go for many more weeks. Yeah, Persona could, but this is going to be our, um, not our final talk on Persona 5. We're definitely going to do more next week, I think. But this will be our last section of the spoiler chat because we both finished the game. Yeah. You finished it again. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to talk about the end of the game. So if you have not played through the end of Persona 5, get on that. It's good. Yeah. It's what
1: also if... very long. so yeah. It would be utterly understandable if you were not at the end of that game
0: yet. That's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah. No, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some news. We're going to talk about some stuff.
1: So much to get into. Uh, quick, uh, spoiler-free thoughts on Doctor Who. I liked it a lot. It, it's. I think it's my favorite episode of the season so far. It's definitely, it's a good... Probably. Yeah, it's like a good sort of Monster of the Week episode that also has a lot of really fun interactions between, like fun and then also like sort of deeper, more interesting interactions between the Doctor and Bill, the new companion, and it kind of gets deeper into their relationship. I like the, what they sort of bring up with her being exposed now to the sort of the darker side of adventures with the Doctor and, like, having to sort of grapple with that in a very direct sense and kind of the human cost of his adventures. I think the episode takes a very interesting perspective on that. And for, like, the second outing for Sarah Dollard, who's the writer of this episode and her only in, like, previous episode of Doctor Who was Face the Raven, which was, like, the... Almost like like a finale episode Not quite a finale episode from season 9 But it was like in that sort of finale trio And that episode was great I think this shows that she's just a really really great writer For this show that does a really good grasp On how to write the Doctor And his relationship with his companions And can also do like a more normal episode of Doctor Who And not necessarily like also like a big plot one The way that Face the Raven was
0: Yeah Stephen Moffat has cultivated A really good group of writers Especially over the Capaldi years and I hope Chris Chibnall keeps some of them around Yeah, for when, sure. uh, when the next season starts. Because you've got a pretty deep pool of talent from these six, seven years of Doctor Who. And especially, as I said, the last two or three. Yeah. Yeah. No, great episode. Best performances of the season so far from mm-hmm. Capaldi and Mackie. And I think that's what makes this the best episode of the season so far. Yeah. But really
1: great costumes. Oh costumes. My god. Costumes. They're really uh, awesome. Uh,
0: the costumes and production design this year have been kind of out of this world. Yeah. And it's it's crazy. Like we noted that the first episode of the season looked kind of low budget. We know
1: why. Yeah, <laughs> they spent a lot of money on sets for at least episodes two and three. Yeah, they're like, since this is just set in like a normal university, like let's just make this episode as cheaply as we can, so we can give all of that money to the one set in like the space colony in the future and the one set on the ice fairs like two hundred years ago.
0: It's crazy, but no good Doctor Who. Um, and spoiler-free thoughts on the end of Persona Five. It's amazing. It only gets better down the home
1: stretch. Yeah, it's my favorite. I know I say this about literally every single part of this game, but it, this I really mean it this time. It's my favorite part of the game is the ending section.
0: Oh, it's up there. It's, you know, I said this on Twitter. It does not quite, like by millimeters, hit to me the emotional impact of the end of Persona 3. But that it comes as close as it does is miraculous in so many ways. Yeah.
1: And it comes at it from a very different angle, too, you know? Yeah, it's a very different kind of ending, like, like especially from Persona 3, but even from Persona 4, and it, like, seems like it's going for a very Persona 4 ending, but I think it comes out, like, very different the other side. Yeah, it's it's incredible. This game is just one of the best
0: ever made. I was thinking about this, Sean. Yeah. This is a little, like, wrap-up Persona talk, but it's spoiler-free, so we can talk about it now. Okay. Persona 5 was the best game on the PS4,
1: right? Yes There's No yeah. doubt about that Yeah Like it's only competition For me would be like The Witcher 3 uh, good p- Yeah but I yeah. would still Put it above The Witcher 3 Yeah I think like I, Those games are Relatively equal quality I would kind of say For myself like Yeah Right here I, I'd put percent of five A notch above But you're
0: right I mean The Witcher 3 Up till now I would say yeah. Would easily be the best But then my question becomes this Is this technically Also a PS3 game Is that right. the best game On the PS3 And that's a real hard question Because you've got Last yeah. of Us Uncharted Mass Effect a lot of the best yeah. games of that generation,
1: it it's still like might Ademption. be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I yeah, that's I like wouldn't count it because that's like a weird thing to do. But right. sure, maybe I don't know. Maybe, I understand. Not maybe counting. the secret best game of the PS3 comes out like five years after that console's relevant. The best game of the PS2, Persona Three and that's Four. That's true, but go. also those games only came out on the PS2 at, the, Good point. at that time. So. Yeah,
0: so no, it is. It's definitely a game of this generation. Obviously, we're not going to cheat and say it's a last gen game. But I just realized, like. This is definitely, easily to me, it's the number one game on the PS4, with some competition,
1: but still... I mean, if you're going with, like, Sony exclusives on the PS4, then I would say absolutely yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, just, yeah, you can go with a lot of superlatives for this game, but that was a fun one I thought of. It was like, oh, technically this is also a PS3 game. But yeah, anyway. Did you see that Digital Foundry video they did comparing PS3 and PS4 Persona? That was really cool. I'm glad someone did that. Yeah. As expected, they're not that different. But it was still interesting to see kind of the technical ins and outs of... uh, Because this kind of game doesn't
1: usually get that kind of attention. Yeah, because it's not as like sort of technically showy as something like a Witcher or like an Elder Scrolls kind of game or something like that. That's, you know, huge and technically marvelous. But like the work they put into this is obviously like really exacting.
0: But I wanted to just give a shout out to that video because it was really cool just to see that for this game and to hear like their thoughts on how this game was made and that... No matter what version they were saying, like, it is technically an incredibly impressive game. Especially when you consider at its maximum, this game had no more than 70 people working on it. Right. Which is insane. I mean, it makes sense why it took, like, seven years to make it really, you know. I just, I love watching the credits for Persona 5 and seeing, like, there's a lot of people writing this game. Not nearly as many as you would expect (laughs) for a game of this size. Yeah, for the amount of text that's in that game. Yeah, nuts. Anyway... All good stuff. We will get into our spoiler chats on all of that. Let's do some stuff. Okay. I finished Persona 5 on Tuesday. Okay. And since then I, I had a lot of other games I kind of wanted to get back to and play. I'm going to go down a list real quick. Okay. Because my Nintendo Switch has filled up with fucking games. Because it has had a pretty goddamn good launch window of like... A couple of big games with Zelda and now Mario Kart and stuff, but a lot of smaller games coming out that I've really been enjoying on that system. One of which I talked about was uh, the Shovel Knight Collection, which also right. launched with the new Shovel Knight campaign that I think maybe just started coming out to other consoles. Specter Knight. And I just I had, had to put Specter Knight aside when Persona 5 came out. And then I finished Persona 5 and I'm like, I'm going back to that. And I finished Specter Knight. I already said my thoughts on that. Amazing, amazing game. Behind Persona 5 and Zelda Breath of the Wild, easily my favorite game I've played this year, is the Specter Knight DLC for Shovel Knight. And even if you've never played Shovel Knight, I think you should just play all of it because it's great. But if you were just like, I know I only have six hours to devote to this weird 8-bit kind of game, get the Specter Knight campaign. It is absolutely incredible. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And then... Go buy the soundtracks on the composer's website. You can pay whatever you want. I, I found these and you can just like... It's like a donation thing. Right. And you get the soundtracks and they're really fucking good. That chiptune music is just the best. I love it. So it's great. Cool. I just have to recommend that game. Uh, Mario Kart 8
1: Deluxe right. I got. And I don't have much to say about that. It is Mario Kart, you right. know? Um, is, is there anything that's specific to the Switch version that's new? Like, that's something I've never... I can't really get a handle on hearing about it.
0: Yes, and there's something big new to it. Um, okay. There was a technically a battle mode in Mario Kart 8 on the Wii U but it was not like the battle modes in like Mario Kart 64 or double dash all those ones that we kind of used to love where you could play like yeah. shine thief and stuff it was like basically just balloon battle on the race
1: courses not on special courses oh, okay. and it was
0: basically unplayably bad
1: yeah cuz normal battle mode is like it's a specific small arena like mm-hmm. you know like Mario Kart 64 you have the one that's like has a bunch of bases or like yep. the donut you know yeah, and that sort of makes sense cuz you're just trying to hit other people with items to just, like take their lives away Whereas if you're playing it on a normal race course, obviously that doesn't really... It's like trying to play Call of Duty, but like on a burnout map or something. Right. This doesn't really make sense. No, and
0: they have completely taken that out, and they've done a new battle mode. It's got eight arenas, four all new, four redone from classic Mario Kart games. Like they always do with Mario Kart now. They have a mix of old and new. Um and they have all the old modes you used to know and love. They've got a couple of new ones. So it's five overall battle modes, eight maps. It is fantastic. It's. So that, I think, is actually a pretty big addition to this game in that they said, yeah, we really didn't have time to make a good battle mode last time, so here. And they, it went from having basically the worst battle mode in the series to probably the best and most fully featured battle mode the series has ever had. And you can play it locally, single player, multiplayer, you can play it online, all of that stuff. I've had a blast with it. Um, the online is actually really good because I, I think, from what I could tell, it like consciously cycles through the five game types. So if you play Shine Thief, the next one will then be, like, the coin battle or something. Okay. So you're constantly getting, like, a good sense. Like, you can just jump in that hopper and you're playing through all five. And that's really fun. Um, and then, you know, if, you, if you're bad at one of them, you don't have to, like, play it five times in a row. You can get to the next one. So it's really cool. And I don't know if the battle mode alone is, a nut, is like, a worth the price of admission. Sure. But if you love battle mode in Mario Kart, like, it's never been my favorite part of Mario Kart. But I know some people love battle mode. And if you love battle mode It's better than ever In Mario Kart 8 Deluxe And I I can't wait for like My brother to get home For the summer So we can play some of that Um, Like that's the main thing I would say is that Mario Kart 8 Deluxe I've been enjoying What I've played with it But I typically enjoy that game Playing it like split screen With my brother or friends And I haven't gotten to do that Just yet So it's been a little muted for me, but it's a really good version of the game. It's got everything from the Wii U version, including all the DLC. It's got a couple new characters. No new race tracks, though I think when you consider how much they did with the battle mode, I'm okay with that. And also, like, there's 48 tracks. I don't know how many more they can get in there. It's like at a certain point, like, it's like if they do a Smash Bros. version of this... I don't necessarily need more Smash Fighters either because there's like 55 of them. Yeah, and it's like at a certain point, it's okay. I just need want the port, you know. But uh, it looks great. It looks even better than it did on the Wii U. I wasn't even aware of this, but I guess the Wii U version did not run at native 1080p. This does run native 1080p, 60fps. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's even more to kind of notice because that's just a beautiful, beautiful game. So colorful, so much detail going on in all of the race tracks. And it's a joy to play on a big 1080p TV, but then I've also, of course, played it just on the handheld device, and it looks absolutely glorious. You know, I definitely felt this a little bit with Zelda Breath of the Wild, but that's also the only way I had played Breath of the Wild. It is especially surreal to play a really great-looking HD console game like Mario Kart 8 on a handheld. And have it look and run that good. And it runs, you know, solid 60 frames per second in everything it does. And the only time it dips is when you play four-player split screen. It'll go to 30 frames per second for completely understandable reasons. Sure, (laughs) yeah. I don't know how any game could keep 60 FPS under those conditions. But it it just looks fantastic. It's easy and fun to play. Works really well on the Switch. They also, like, the load times were, like, cut into thirds. Like, it loads so much faster than it did on the Wii U, which is kind of amazing to me. I didn't know that would necessarily happen but it did. Um, so it's really good. You know, if you liked Mario Kart 8 on the Wii U and you want to have it on your Switch, it's it's a really good purchase. I, I think you could argue, should it be a full $60 game? Right. Maybe not. But, oh well. I like it. I got it. It's good. You know. Get it get it from Amazon and get it for like $48 if you want yeah. or something. Uh, I got it downloaded, so I
1: couldn't do that. So in, in the battle mode, when you lose all your lives, do you still turn into a bomb that you can run around and blow people up like in Mario Kart 64? No. And that's actually my maybe my only complaint about battle mode. Is yeah, and that's, th- then that is a trash battle mode now. No. That is, that is the only thing. Because as someone who didn't really like battle mode, but was the younger brother of someone who really liked battle mode, <laughs> my one joy in battle mode was... I thought it was really cool that you turned into a bomb when you died and could blow people up. And I wish you could do that in other multiplayer games.
0: They've rebalanced it a little bit where like, for instance, and not all the battle modes do this. Like Shine Thief doesn't have any of this because you, you don't have your balloons and stuff. You're just stealing the shines. Coins is the same way. Um, but in any of the v- modes that have the balloons, you know, old Mario's, when you lost all your balloons, you were just out of the game. And it was like a survival mode. Um, they don't have that anymore. They've rebalanced it where if you lose all of your balloons, like, you get more, but it takes from the stock of balloons. Like, it takes from your score, okay so like it, it takes your score down so it's you know on a balance level it's like kind of six of one half dozen of the other but like you're, you're totally right there is sort of a nostalgic joy in the idea of you lose all your balloons and then you're a
1: weird ghost spectator i like that like just think of how much better like gears of war multiplayer would be if when you died you didn't just die you then turned into a living bomb that all you could do <laughs> was roadie run but if you roadie run into someone you blow them up and kill them and it would just be the best feeling it would be so more yeah, multiplayer needs to do that hey they could add that there
0: could totally be dlc for mario Kart 8 deluxe where they sure can yeah. yeah survival so. bomb mode but now with mario Kart 8 deluxe on the switch i've said this before i just need them to do the same thing for smash bros from wii u get that yeah. over here and then get virtual console up and running and then i really never need to touch my wii u again
1: there you go like pretty much if that's, they that's do that, the ultimate goal i mean i have forgotten to give you your wii u back for like a month because I finished that playing Zelda forever ago. I would not
0: have time to use it right yeah. now, so I'm not mad at you. But I'll take it eventually. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, i got a lot I like on the
0: Wii U, but most of it's virtual console, which I think they could bring over pretty easily. <laughs> right. And Smash Bros., which I hope they bring over soon. They must. That has got to be in development or something. I
1: imagine they'll show that at E3.
0: Yeah. I, the only question is, are they going to do the same treatment where it's like Smash Bros. Deluxe... Or is it? Are they doing an all-new Smash Bros? I kind of doubt the
1: latter because it's been it, yeah, it hasn't would, been long enough. Yeah, it would be like two or three years before another new Smash Brothers would come out. So. Yeah, but it would be
0: nice to just get those ported over.
1: Like, given the number of
0: hours I poured into Mario Kart Eight and especially Smash Bros, I'm totally okay with the price tag because it's like I will get my money's worth out of that. I love these games, and it's not like Nintendo's not doing anything. Everyone else is doing with their you know right, buy yeah. it again ports. So you know.
1: Yeah, like, like it's totally fine to release, like, it would be nice if it was maybe discounted a little bit, but to yeah. release, like, your old games and, like, you know, give them a little bit of an up-res or whatever, add your battle yeah. nodes or something, like, yeah. and just put it back out on a console that it seems like people are actually interested in buying. Yes, uh, yeah, no, the Switch is doing great,
0: like, if you look at the
1: sales, like, what is it now, up to now, like, 2... 2 point million
0: s- something, yeah. 2.5 million, because I know, like, the number is, Zelda is still outpacing the Switch, So, like, you can look at the Zelda sales numbers and take, like, 20,000 off that, and it's the Switch sales numbers, which is a weird scenario. And apparently, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is the best-selling game on Amazon for the year, which is insane. Like, so that game will probably also have, like, 100% attach rate, as it did on the Wii U. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which, that game somehow sold, like, 9 million copies on a console that only had, like, 12 million in the wild. Yeah. Kind of nuts. All right, so Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, real good. Uh, I got it. I just got a game... The other day, that was is five dollars on the eShop. It's called Kamiko. Have you heard of this? No. It's a little indie game. It's only on Switch. Maybe it'll come to others later. But I don't think. I think this is like an indie developer that tends to only work with Nintendo. But it's called Kamiko. It's only five dollars. It's like it's kind of plays a little bit like a 2D Zelda. It's an overhead view. You have this war, like you pick from one of three characters. The story is like something about shrines, and you're a goddess or something, restoring the shrine, something like that. Sure, and you Come pick, up. yeah, you pick one of the three uh characters and you or you become like the new Comico or something and then you play through it's apparently like four or five stages overall i've played through two of them i've played about an hour of the game it's not a very long game as evidenced by the five dollar price tag um but it's all like pixel art 2d you know overhead very much plays like zelda in terms of combat in some ways and that the enemies kind of spawn on the map and you have to kill them gets you energy and some other things um all the three characters play very differently as I understand it. I've only played with one of them and it's kind of cool. She has this like, she's kind of like Captain America shield she throws and then like it comes back and it's kind of fun to play with that because you like throw it at a group of enemies then move left and it'll come back and get the other group of enemies cool. and stuff like that. And then basically each level you have to activate a certain number of shrines and then you get to move on and like fight the boss and then move on to the next level. So sort of Ze- like, like kind of a Zelda 2D overworld without like the dungeon but with overworld puzzles and stuff. Okay. So it's an interesting little game. I really like it. Like, for $5, I think if you have a Switch, you should get this game if you like that kind of thing, especially if you like good pixel art and, like, chiptune music, because the soundtrack in this game is awesome. Like, for 5 bucks, that soundtrack alone is, like, just worth listening to it for a little bit and uh, just play it. It's, it's a fun little game, and I just... I had not... I'd seen some curiosity about it because there's still, you know, not a ton of games in the Switch eShop, so when new ones come out, people are curious about them, and I thought... $5. I will check that game out. And I think it's totally worth it for that price. I kind of I wish it was a bigger version of itself because you can feel like there's a lot of cool stuff, but inherently it's never going to get to explore this stuff all that much because it's only like a 2 hour game, you sure. know. But it's still neat. You get to replay it with the different characters. Just wanted to mention that one that's another cool little indie game on the Switch, which is amassing already a pretty impressive collection of those types of games. So, I enjoyed that. But the game I need to talk about, okay. my new obsession, I have played so much Puyo Puyo Tetris in the last week. So this game, Puyo Puyo Tetris, came out for both the Switch and the PS4 you can get it in either place yeah this is apparently i think this game's been out in japan for a couple of years yeah i
1: think it came out in like 2015 in japan
0: yeah so they finally brought it over here i think basically for the launch of the switch and then they also put it on the ps4 because i think and there's like
1: a lot of weird licensing stuff around tetris in particular because yes. i think ubisoft holds the tetris license in like for like western markets or something and there's just like a bunch of weird shit and that's why it took so long for it to come out
0: yeah, that's interesting, because it's It's funny, because it's a Sega-slash-Atlas game, and we'll talk about that in a second, because there's something interesting with that. Um, but, like, at the start, it does the Sega logo, and you have one of the characters go Sega, which is nice, yeah. and then it has to do a separate Tetris logo with a separate, uh, like, copyright screen, and the copyright screen for the Tetris screen has, like, six paragraphs of text. Yeah. <laughs> like, like,
1: as you might imagine, the licensing, like, history of Tetris is probably very
0: complicated. Indeed, but... Puyo Puyo Tetris, if you don't know, everyone knows what Tetris is in America. Puyo Puyo, you might not know what that is, but you've probably seen it in some form or another. Probably its most popular form over here is Dr. Mario is sort of a clone of Puyo Puyo. Sure, or
1: like Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine
0: on the Sega Genesis. But like native Puyo Puyo games are not popular over here. Yeah. Uh, Even though it's a pretty cool puzzle game. like I have, I never knew Puyo Puyo that much, but something you guys might not know about me is that I'm a really big Tetris fan. Yeah. I don't think I ever talked about that on here. Everybody's a big Tetris fan, Jonathan. I play Tetris, like, every day. Yeah. like Everybody does. Like, I have on my... like And the version I like, because I'm specific about it, is Tetris DX from the Game Boy Color.
1: Okay, that's sure, the yeah.
0: That's the one I can play best, although Pio Pio Tetris is a really good version of it. Like, I don't like the iPhone versions. They all suck. But, like... So I even have an emulator of that on my laptop that I, like, play every day. My high score is, like, 700,000... I I really like Tetris. It's it's a game I can say I am good at. Which I I would not proclaim to say about some other games. But I'm good at Tetris. So I love Tetris. I was very excited for this. And basically the game mixes Puyo Puyo and Tetris as you would imagine. You can play Puyo Puyo on its own. You can play Tetris on its own. Or you can play a bunch of new modes they've created, like Versus, where one person is playing Tetris, one person is playing Puyo Puyo, and it somehow it does some score algorithm to decide who's doing better. Yeah, these two fairly different yes. puzzle games. Uh, you can do, Or you can do just Tetris, Tetris, Puyo Puyo, versus Puyo Puyo, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, you can do a swap where you have two boards going on at the same time, and so do the other players. Where like you will play for like 20 second increments here's 20 seconds of Puyo Puyo swap over to your Tetris board 20 seconds of that swap back over and so you're doing two games at the same time which can be a mind fuck there's a bunch of other modes I won't even go into the most mind fucking mode is called fusion where you are literally playing Puyo Puyo and Tetris on top of each other yeah and I promise once you get into it it makes more sense than it sounds it actually works pretty well even though I find fusion by far the most difficult thing in the game to be good at. Yeah. Like, and I, I would love to see at some point there will be a, you know, Puyo Puyo Tetris fusion champion out there and it's going to be insane to see how that person even does it because it's kind of crazy how those work together. Um, but then grafted on to all, So you got those modes You can do it You know Local arcade mode With all those different Game types to play Like whatever you would want to do In the worlds of Tetris Or Puyo Puyo This game is very fully featured It has that for you uh, You can do local co-op play As well Or not co-op But like local versus as well With split screen And things like that Up to four player versus Which is pretty crazy For a game like this So you can have you know Four people playing a game at once, which if you did that like with swap or something, that would get especially crazy. And I know that because I played that online earlier today and fucking won. Like I had 38,000 points and I think the next closest was like (laughs) 3,000. So a lot of people did not know how to get a Tetris effectively. Okay. Which I was learning when I was playing online. But as I say, you can also play online. Got All these different modes. And then the last thing is there is an adventure mode, which is basically the story mode for this game. And it might be the most amazing thing about this game, because I, you would not inherently think a Puyo Puyo Tetris game would be story-driven.
1: Sure. But yeah. this one I is. Mean, I mean, most Tetris games I've played do not have much in the narrative department.
0: No, even though they are planning the Tetris trilogy of movies.
1: Right, just I'll I mean, get out. Never get made. It but needs to be a quadrilogy, honestly, because it's Tetris. Come on.
0: I mean, that's what James Cameron's actually going to make
1: instead of the Avatar quadrilogy or whatever. He's going to make five Tetris movies at once and release them over the. Course. I mean, no, I mean, he's going to make the Avatar movies, but then what you're going to find out is part of the larger Tetris movie universe. That when it starts crossing over with the Tetris movies, that Avatar and Tetris have always existed in the same universe. You just didn't know it. The blue people really love Tetris. It's true. I mean, no, they're just like living Tetris pieces, actually. <laughs> are they the actual like straight tetramedos? i mean that's why they hook up their like ponytails or whatever is like that's how you get tetrises if you get enough of them like a horizontal line of them all hooked up with their ponytails they just explode exactly
0: no but there is an adventure mode which ba- the best comparison i could make honestly is to like a hatsune miku game or the best one would be like persona 4 dancing all night which we've talked about on yeah. here where the the story mode of that game was a visual novel where you had scenes with the characters talking. And then at the end of each one of those scenes, there would be some excuse to do a dance, and you would do a dance. Same thing here, although it's even more fully featured than that, because you have this basically visual novel story going on. With all these Puyo Puyo characters who I have to imagine are part of a larger series in Japan of Puyo Puyo visual novel games... Because the characters feel like established Like you're supposed to know who this person and this
1: person is I could be totally wrong on that I mean there have been a lot of Pew Pew games I would not be surprised if at some point Yeah They have like a more established personality Than just being a generic mascot character Yeah like
0: uh, you can just You play it and you can It seems like there are the established characters you would know And then the Tetris characters are like a different cast you're being introduced to So that's how it's set up Obviously in America we haven't had any of those games So this is all new to us But you have those visual novel scenes, and then it's split into 10 overall, like, chapters with... Or 10 overall, like, arcs or whatever, or worlds, with 10 chapters each, so 10 levels. And so for each level, you tend to get a visual novel scene, and then you have a challenge to play, whether it's, you know, Tetris, Puyo, Puyo, Fusion. You eventually get introduced to all the game modes through that. I would definitely recommend starting playing through Adventure, because you get to know everything there. Um, Unlike a Persona 4 Dancing All Night, though, like, that game kept the difficulty pretty low throughout, for, like, the dancing and stuff. No, Adventure Mode and Puyo Puyo Tetris doesn't fuck around. There were definitely levels early and late and all throughout where I would be... Like banging my head Against a wall Trying to figure out This specific challenge Which they can get Really devilishly hard And I would have to Like put the game away For the night And come back in the morning Because puzzle games Could be mentally pretty taxing And then be like Okay now I figure out How to do it Especially because Puyo Puyo is fucking difficult Like I have never Gotten into it all that much But that's the best thing About this game to me Is that it's finally A chance for me to get To know that puzzle game And it's very different Than Tetris in a lot of ways Even though it's Complimentary in some ways Um, Because you know Tetris is about Knocking things down Puyo Puyo is kind of About building things up Until you get It's like a
1: Jenga tower Of like colored blocks Where you Yeah there's like A whole higher level Of strategy of like The Puyo Puyo kind of game That I've never really Gotten into Of like you're not just trying to fuse everything immediately you want to build up like these combo stacks of like when I when I like light the fuse when like this red piece or whatever (laughs) falls here and breaks this then like all these blue pieces are gonna hit this and these yellow ones are gonna it's just like all you'll get a billion fucking points I've never gotten deep enough into those puzzle games to be able to see that and like actively build that up which is like versus Tetris where like the process of building a Tetris is a relatively like straightforward thing it just becomes more and more difficult as the game speeds up
0: yeah And and, you know There are more advanced Techniques in Tetris But I still don't think It's quite And some of this I've been playing Tetris all my life So maybe someone in Japan Who's played Puyo Puyo All their life Would say What are you guys Talking about It's easy I don't know But it is interesting Like you're talking About all those Complex higher level Things with Puyo Puyo You have to get good At it to beat Adventure mode Like you have to Be able to do Four or five chains to beat some of those levels and especially if you they have like a three star ranking system for each of them so if you want to get like the maximum stars which I've been going back through adventure mode and doing some of that and it's a lot of fun but it's great like the adventure mode all the challenges they give you can often be very challenging and they're a lot of fun to play but the actual like visual novel story is surprisingly good like it's not a deep story it's very silly it's ...about the worlds of Tetris and Puyo Puyo mixing... ...and yes, eventually there's an interdimensional being... ...and there's time travel... ...and you go to the furthest edges of space-time obviously
1: right it's the only way that story could have gone and you know it starts at a
0: school and they don't explicitly say it but because it's an anime style story i like to imagine all the characters are there to learn how to play puyo puyo
1: <laughs> right like wait is it is it like a puyo puyo school and then all the tetris kids like like transfer into the school no they come from another dimension okay like the, well, i mean you can, i've seen plenty of shows where characters come from other dimensions and then transfer to high school that's not weird job maybe
0: in puyo puyo tetris 2 they can transfer to the high school okay. that would be fun But no, they do not transfer into the high school in this game. Um, But, like, the writing is so good and so funny consistently that those visual novel scenes, you see them at first and you're like, am I just going to have to kind of skip these to play the game? They're like, no, I want to watch these because they're funny. Especially there's one character you meet around the middle when you're in outer space and he's not in the game nearly enough, but his name is Tsukutodora and he is a fish person and he just makes fish puns but they are wonderful, and the localization is fantastic. And I I did not see this until the end credits. It's an Atlas USA game. It's probably the same team that did Persona 5 and the other Personas. It's top-notch localization. Very good. And just they had a blast with some of the pun sources and stuff. It is a lot of fun to play through this. Again, story mode not deep, but it's really good. And, I mean, there's even some weird stuff where... This game seems to be aimed at children but then there's this one character. I forget his name and I'm in this part. Like basically the main story of the game like to when you roll credits is the first seven worlds. And then worlds eight, nine, and ten are like special alternate story worlds. And in one of those alternate story worlds it focuses on this character. And everything he says is a weird double entendre. But the double entendres get pretty intense like I want what's inside you. And things like that. And in context it makes sense but they are always kind of pushing this line of like I think even a kid would get this as a double entendre. They wouldn't get what's going on, like, that this character is referencing a handjob or something. But there's something. <laughs> sure, okay, and, yeah. And, like, the character is completely unaware of it. You know, it's, it's that kind of archetype. But, uh, no, it's fun. It's funny. The game is colorful. All the character designs are great. And the last thing I want to say about this is the voice cast, like, every other voice is from Persona 5. It's amazing. Like, clearly, like, they had the people in the studio. Like, these games are coming out the same month. Um, Morgana Would you also voice The main character Of Puyo Puyo Tetris Okay Yeah so like Cassandra Lee Morris I think is her name Who voices Morgana In English Voices the main character Of Puyo Puyo Tetris uh, Ringo Cool Who Her name's Ringo And she always holds an apple So there you go Okay yeah there you go Ringo in Japan is apple yeah. um, I she thought would, it Because Ringo from the Beatles is, He's the biggest apple fan In the world Hey some, some people Have not watched Death Note And don't remember They can only hear The word Ringo In Ryuk's voice Right <laughs> No, um, yeah, so it's it's kind of funny, like the game, and I actually I should say I don't know that for certain because the credits don't have the voice cast listed, which is weird. But but uh, look, I heard a lot of Morgana; it's right, clearly yeah. her, and like it's just it's kind of hilarious. Uh, and there are other voices. I think Ryuji is one of the other main characters. I think you hear Narukami at one point. There's there's just a lot of like the Atlas USA team of players doing the voices here, and so it was kind of funny because this is literally the I bought this the day I finished Persona Five. ...finished Persona 5, went and cried or something... ...and then came back and started playing Puyo
1: Puyo Are Texas. you sure you weren't just like hallucinating from like... ...because I mean you played Persona 5 very quickly. I did. Relatively speaking because I didn't finish Persona 5 until like Friday... ...or I think maybe it was even like Saturday. And so... I, maybe. Who knows? And so maybe like like all of those are just like like totally different voices... ...but in your head all you can hear when you play Japanese video games... ...are those voices. It is absolutely a possibility,
0: so don't take anything I say as gospel. Other than the fact that Puyo, Puyo Tetris is a lot of fun, it's only twenty nine ninety nine for Switch and PS Four. Unless you buy the Switch physical version, which is forty dollars, um, I don't see why you would need to. It's less than a gig, so just download right. it. Um, it's a it's a great game. If you like these kind of puzzle games, it's so good, and you know, especially if you're like kind of picky about good versions of Tetris and stuff. Even if you just want to play Tetris, this is a really good full-featured version of Tetris that you can have for your Switch on the go. I have played this both ways on the Switch a lot, and it, it just works great either way. And uh, yeah, I really, really like this game. It's very good. Awesome. Shall also, put it—the music is fantastic. Like, as you would expect from a game with Sega on the title right. screen, Sega just, the, the games they publish tend to have great music, but this is very much, it like, sounds like good Japanese video game music. It's very, you know, perky and fun, but it's a lot of, it's a good Do good they fun. have
1: a dope version of the Tetris theme in there? Yes. Uh, they do, a couple dope versions of it. Because um, that's just, one of those things of where I could totally see, like, a world where Tetris games come out and don't have that theme because the licensing is all fucked up.
0: That's actually a Russian folk song, so okay. I don't think you can license it. Who
1: knows Who Yeah knows? I have no idea How copyright law works I, I,
0: I did read that The other day though So yeah You're, you're right In a world where Disney still has The, the rights to Steamboat Mickey Yeah Or whatever Steamboat, Steamboat Willie yeah. I was thinking I, I mean, mean it was like Only
1: a couple of years ago That the courts were like Okay fuck it People can just use The happy birthday song Assholes yeah. Like come on <laughs> No you're right It's the happy birthday song You piece of shit exactly no uh it is a there
0: is a pretty dope version like i i this is the kind of game i often play with podcasts and stuff yeah but i like
1: to leave the volume up enough that i can hear the music because it's really good throughout the game so well now that that we can get more explorative with the tetris license i'm really looking forward to the tetris uh visual novel dating sim game <laughs> where you have like anime lady anthropomorphized versions of all the different tetris pieces <laughs> that would i think be great. there's a huge amount of potential there
0: absolutely yeah. See how far we can push it before it gets banned on Steam. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. What have you been playing, Sean?
1: Um, I've been playing a couple of things like, and, But only a little bit Because like I said, I've only relatively recently Finished Persona 5 because I finished it a couple of days later Than you did And You didn't completely abandon everything else in your life the way. No, I, did. The, like, I mean, I did the first time I played Persona 5, but it, this being the second time Around, I had the luxury of being like I know that like, if I'm going to start playing Here, I just need to wait until I have Like a solid four hours to just be like I'm just going to knock this whole part out at once So like, I had like one or two days there Where I didn't really play much at all and then I was like, okay, now nah, I'm just going to finish this. But anyways, this is one of the parts of the podcast where every once in a while I have been, I've made a decision to do something that seems utterly inexplicable. So I'm going to say the game I've been playing right now and then backtrack to the weird sets of circumstances that have led me to be playing Dragon Quest 1. What? <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't. Hey. Where? How? Like on Yesterday PC? morning, I didn't think this is where I was going to be either. And I've been playing it kind of two ways um i there's a there like in square enix has actually been very good about this that they've released basically all of their old library of jrpgs on uh mobile devices and that version of dragon quest one is actually kind of pretty good like it's not like the ideal version of it because obviously i would prefer to have an actual d-pad and stuff but that's pretty good and it's only like two bucks so i paid my two bucks and was playing that version and then i had this realization of I can fucking read Japanese. I should just play this game in Japanese. I paid them two bucks. I have no qualms about going, and I've been playing the Super Famicom remake of it, because it was originally a Famicom game, and just playing that in Japanese, emulated on my PC, because fuck you, I paid my, I paid my two dollars. Also,
0: also, they're not really making money
1: on that game anymore. No, yeah, yeah. So, But anyways, that, that's how I've been playing it. How I got to the point of playing it is a weird... I still don't even understand how I got to this point of being like... Oh, you know, I should just give this a try. Because I'm not necessarily like committing myself to finishing this necessarily. I'm not saying like I'm going to play every single Dragon Quest game. But it's a series I've never had a huge amount of exposure to. And I kind of wanted to give it a shot. But how I got there was... Originally, this section of the podcast I would be talking about. This would be another like demo corner or beta corner or whatever thing we do every now and then. Because they released a demo for the new Prey game that's right. just called Prey. Which there was a 2005 or six Xbox 360 first-person shooter that's also called Prey. And now that there are all these reviews and preview articles and stuff going on on the internet. Because that game comes out in like a week or something. I'm having a very hard time keeping straight which one of these articles is a retrospective about the original Prey from like 10 years ago and which of these is a r- actual review of Prey now because I actually had that exact same like that exact quandary looking at Eurogamer where they had an article that was talking about the original Prey and how it's like it, it, like an interesting first person shooter that like you know it isn't all the way there I'm like oh that's a shame I was hoping this new Prey game was going to be good and then I clicked on the article was, oh they're talking about the old Prey <laughs> game god damn it if you're going to fucking name your new game the same thing as the old game, at least put it in all caps like DOOM so there's something I can see to recognize it's not that old game. Right. But anyway, so they released a demo... I cannot wait to see where the hell you were going with this. They story. released a demo of that prey game and I was like, "Oh, I should check that out. The the trailers of that seemed kind of cool. Also, the marketing of this game has must have been fucking terrible cuz the game comes out in like a week and I had absolutely no idea. I didn't either until yeah. I saw the
0: articles go up. Yeah.
1: So, so then I went on the 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 PlayStation Network website and went to the, the or the section of their the website that you just click on that goes to all the game demos and when I clicked on that, I saw that there was a... Like, next to it... There was a demo for... Dragon Quest Heroes 2... Which is the Dynasty Warriors kind of version of Dragon Quest. Now, obviously, there was a Dragon Quest Heroes 1 that, from what I understand, was fairly well received. The making of Dragon Quest Heroes 2, and there was a demo of it. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I <laughs> guess I will download that at the same time. Kind of like we got Hyrule Warriors and we got the Fire Emblem yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So, because if people don't know, like Dragon Quest is one of the, if maybe not like the most successful video game franchise in Japan. Like, it's it's insanely successful. It's something that, like, it never kicked off over here, really, because. Dragon Quest 1 came out over here As Dragon Warriors A couple of years after it came out in Japan And very specifically it came out over here After Final Fantasy came out over here Whereas in Japan that was reversed And like Dragon Quest is like the prototypical Basically like the original JRPG And Final Fantasy came out after that Like borrowing a huge amount of stuff from that And so obviously when it came out over here in from the reverse Dragon Quest 1 seemed relatively primitive Next to Final Fantasy 1 And so it was like a... So it was just like that franchise never really picked up over here. But anyway, so like Dragon Quest, super mega popular in Japan. I've always been kind of curious about it, partially because the artwork for the series has always been done by Akira Toriyama, and who's the guy who d- did Dragon Ball and Dr. Slump and stuff. And so I was like, ah, I've always liked the artist style. I've always been curious about this game. I saw Dragon Quest Heroes 2. I was downloading both of those demos at the same time, the PSN download speeds being what they are. I was saying there's like, oh, well, I can't play these right now. And I was like, I you know I should see if there's any way to play Dragon Quest? Cause it's like I know like a bunch of Final Fantasy games are on Steam and stuff like that. Or like maybe there's versions of them on the PS Vita. I was looking around and it's actually like if you wanna try to play all the Dragon Quest games, it's kinda of, like impossible. Yeah. Cause, like because they are all over the place, like you know, because also like the releases started getting like really sort of scattershot at some point, where like Dragon Quest Eight is on the PS2, but Dragon Quest IX is on the Nintendo DS. And, like, Dragon Quest X, I think, is the MMO, and Dragon Quest XI is coming out, like, this year in Japan and next year, which is another reason why I was kind of, Dragon Quest was kind of on my mind, because, like, a week or two ago, I saw, like, a trailer of Dragon Quest XI, and I was like, oh, this looks really cool.
0: Yeah, I've been excited for that, because we might actually have a chance of getting that relatively close to the Japanese yeah. release.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, so Dragon Quest is kind of on my brain, downloading Prey downloading dragon quest heroes 2 being like oh, is there any other way to play these games because this would be a cool thing to play on my vita the way i have like all the final fantasy games there kind of isn't but then it was like oh all there's all these mobile versions i'll i'll check that out it's like dragon quest hero or dragon quest 1 on mobile is like on ios is like two bucks so played that i paid that money played it for like 30 minutes enjoyed it a lot then had that realization, I was talking about it, like, I can fucking read Japanese, I might as well just play this in Japanese, because also I think, like, the Super Famicom version just, like, looks better, because the Dragon, like, well, it's, like, a totally fine version of the game on iOS, like, obviously the graphics are kind of stretched up, like, they couldn't quite fiddle with it enough to make the aspect ratio stuff work, because obviously the iPhone aspect ratio is very weird if you're taking that from a game back then, and so there's, like, a couple of, like, minor issues if I don't love having the touchscreen be a like have to be a d-pad and stuff but since it's not an action-based game it's obviously turn-based battle like that's not a huge deal breaker so if there are people that are curious like I totally recommend playing that version of the game the um localization is interesting because they basically have a very Shakespearean like Elizabethan kind of English approach that they take to it with a lot of like these and vows and stuff and so they get kind of fun with the localization in that way Yeah, so I started playing Dragon Quest 1. The
0: art in these games is so good. Yeah,
1: the the monster designs in particular are, like, really, really great. Yeah, I was looking it up right now because I might get that for my iPhone. Yeah, Yeah, because it it is a fun thing to be able to just sort of, like, pop in and play and do, like, a couple of battles and grind and stuff. And so one of the funny things, or maybe the weirdest thing about this whole story is I can't talk about Prey yet because I have not played that Prey demo at all. And I only, and I played, like, 30 minutes of Dragon Quest Heroes 2. And I was like, I, I should, this is, like, a Dragon Quest Heroes 2 theme, seemed kind of interesting from the demo. But it's like, I should just start, I should just go back and play more Dragon Quest. So I played, like, I want to say, like, four hours of Dragon Quest 1 so far. It's like, I'm not, and it does not seem like it's nearly as long as some, like, old JRPGs can be. Like, I'm guessing this is probably, like, a 12-hour 12, 12 game, maybe, overall. But I am having a lot of fun with it. It's reminding me... A lot of Final Fantasy One in that it, it sort of is very basic. It strips away a lot of like the more like big complex elements that that genre took on relatively quickly. It's very bare bones in terms of the narrative, but what narrative is there is very evocative. You know, and is and one of the things that's very interesting about it is that you don't have a party at all. Like it's just you, like your main character, and you're the hero. De- you're descended from the ancient hero roto or Eldric in the the localized version and there's a dragon king and the dragon king is doing evil shit and he's in this castle and also like the king's the princess the king's daughter has been kidnapped or is missing or something and you have to go probably find her at some point but like your main objective is just go take care of the the dragon king and it just kind of lets you out there and you just get going almost immediately and there's something about the pace of the game i really love of you just go out into the overworld you wander around the battles are fun because they are, like, really snappy. They're really quick. I love the way that it deals with random battles is that it doesn't load into, like, a whole other battle screen. And this is coming from both the mobile version and the Super Famicom version, so I don't know if the original Famicom version... This stuff might have been slightly clunkier or something. I don't know. But instead of loading into a battle screen like Final Fantasy where you have, like, all your people on the right and all, like, the monsters on the left and you pick attacks that way, it's just... Like you're wandering around on the overworld and then a smaller screen pops up in the middle and it's sort of a first person view showing whatever monster you're fighting and then all you have is your attack, whatever spells you have, items and like run away and that's like how the battles are and it's like they're very snappy, really quick. Most battles you finish in one or two hits and it's very much focused on that like... ...sense of leveling up and progressing... ...and just like making your character more powerful... ...like accruing experience points... ...and accruing gold... ...and it's I think very smartly designed... ...around those mechanics... ...and it sort of is one of those things... ...that makes you realize right... ...when RPGs were a really new phenomenon... ...and like this particular kind of RPG... ...like which was taking stuff from a lot of like... ...computer RP, like Western RPGs... ...like Ultima which existed before this... ...but like changing a lot of it... ...and simplifying it and making it work on a console... Like, these concepts were relatively new and video game developers were sort of, like, making like making them the core thing that the game was built around instead of, like, most modern RPGs where it's, like, kind of just like a thing that happens as you play the game. You just sort of level up and level up and level up and your stats go up, but it's not something you ever really think about. In Dragon Quest 1, the whole game is designed around the concept of you being sort of centered on whatever kind of town you're at because... Whenever you die you teleport back to the main castle and the king sort of like resurrects you or whatever and you have to go back out and go back into the overworld and explore and get back to where you were or like you can if you know oh I like am too low on health and I don't have any magic points I can't really venture any further I need to go back and like heal up because the only place you can really recharge your magic points and like heal for good is at a town. And so the sense of progression of the game is very much focused around you exploring the overworld, finding a town, like getting into a new area where you're not quite powerful enough to deal with the enemies, find the town there, go into that town, like stock up on stuff heal up at the end wander out and then explore around and level up enough that like now I can take out all the enemies here no problem now let me go find the dungeon and deal with that and it's sort of very smartly designed around those stages and the way the overworld is very naturally gated to you just based entirely on your character's strength and like level progression I think is really well designed it is something where you can totally tell why a game like this would have like blown up in japan and like basically spawned this whole genre that then final fantasy and all these other franchises took from is because like it is really smartly designed it's like really really crisp the the super famicom version of the graphics are awesome the like it really sort of especially the monster designs when you get those like battle screens where they pop up and you get like a good look at the monsters the sprites look really good and the music is fantastic And so it's like it's just this very absorbing fun kind of thing but you can also just play it for like 30 minutes have leveled up twice and feel like okay I've like made a lot of progress next time I'm going to go out and like go like southeast and see what's there because there's also not a huge amount of people like telling you exactly where you need to go it's just sort of like suggestive of oh that's probably the direction I need to go let me go see what's down there and it has just that really good sense of adventure and exploration that I like. From those kinds of games. I feel like a lot of JRPGs as that genre grew and grew and grew. And you can see it like in the progression of Final Fantasy games. It became full way less about that. And became entirely focused on a very linear like storytelling driven experience. Which is what like especially once you get to, like the Final Fantasy 7, 8, 10, like 13. Like those kinds of games are really focused on telling that story. Whereas if you go back to Final Fantasy 1. The story's there, but it's much more about, like, I want to go out on an adventure, I'm going to wander around with my party, I'm going to find new weird monsters, like, stumble onto these random caves that are all over the place, see what's there, get new gear, and just have, like, a very sort of bare-bones basic sort of fun fantasy adventure adventure. And that's exactly what Dragon Quest delivers, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And from
0: it. everything I've heard, Dragon Quest keeps that up yeah. over the course of its life more than... It has evolved less than Final Fantasy has, but I know a lot of people like that.
1: Yeah, like, it's, it's, you know, if you look at a trailer for Dragon Quest Eleven, like, it is still, like, fantasy, like, swords and magic spells and, like, slimes and stuff. Yeah, they've never, like, tried to make it all, like, edgy steampunk. Like, it's very fun and light and and also, like, the the main team, sort of, like, the core creative team behind the series, like, the main, like, writer, the art, and the music have all been done by the same people throughout the entire franchise. And, yeah. Like, that's really awesome. That's one of the things that makes it like, if you see, look at Dragon Quest today, and then you go back and play Dragon Quest one, it's like this is this franchise like it is not it's not like final fantasy where at seven several points over final fantasy's history it has changed hands in terms of who is really driving that franchise dragon quest it has been like the for as as far as the main series is concerned it has been the same core team with their hands on the wheel the whole time through which is awesome like uh, they did last year in japan
0: an art book like a big definitive art book of of akira toriyama's dragon quest art And I've really wanted to get that I almost got it with my last order of the Dragon Ball Magazine volumes we've been getting From Japan I haven't got I might still pick it up And I was just like I don't know enough about this series But I still love Toriyama's art And like I have from Japan one of the big Dragon Ball art books And it's just He is an amazing artist She's just yeah. such a fucking genius. I've been rewatching DBZ lately, and anyway, but like I've actually been wanting to get into Dragon Quest lately too. It's kind of funny that you have because uh, it's kind of like a couple of years ago when we both started playing Final Fantasy IV and didn't right. tell each other, yeah. and then we found out on the podcast, which is still like the weirdest thing that's happened on this podcast. Yeah. But no, um, because on the 3DS last year they did well. They finally put them out in America. They'd been out for a couple of years in Japan, but they did remakes of Seven and Eight, which is a PS1 and PS2 game, and those are kind of like
1: of the more modern games the most famous dragon quest yeah i think like dragon eight. quest 8 in particular is like the one that kind of hit over here yeah because because 7 came out over here but you're right 8 is the one that like you'll know that cover art is yeah famous. like you will recognize the main characters he's got like the sword on his back and like the orange bandana and stuff he like, looks like adult gohan yeah basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh no but
0: uh, i've been wanting to play at least one of those and i didn't have time last year when they came out because like they came out the week I mean, one of those crazy weeks last year where everything was coming out, right? Yeah. um, But I might, like, over this summer, I might pick up... I'd really like to play 7, because that's the one that's famously... Well over a hundred hours long, Jesus. and like I'm just, especially if you're playing Persona Five, which is really the only hundred hour game I've ever played. I'm so curious, like, how did this game do it in the '90s? You know, yeah. Like I'm really curious about that. So I definitely, at some point this year, have wanted to start getting into Dragon Quest, and those are probably the most accessible ones you can get right now because they're on a modern console. They're on the 3DS. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited for Eleven coming out because that's also apparently coming to the Switch, and that'll be a yeah. really cool game for that console, I think. But yeah, Dragon Quest is such an interesting thing. You know what I'd love for them to do? And what? I'd love Square Enix to do this with Final Fantasy also um, You know how Capcom did that Mega Man collection? Yeah I have that on my PS4 I got it on a sale at some point I'm not all that into Mega Man But I kind of wanted to see it Just to get a feel for it And it's a really cool collection yeah. The way they did it Where it's all six NES Mega Mans They look gorgeous Really good emulations They also just did one with the uh, Disney Afternoon games which Yeah, I'm which def- is the same team Yeah, which I definitely want to pick up Because those I loved the Disney Afternoon shows as a kid But I never had an NES as a kid So I'd love to play those And of course DuckTales is famous yeah. and stuff but um, um, anyway, I would love for Square Enix to do that kind of collection for Final Fantasy one through six, and like get the like Wonder Swan color remakes, which are also they used for the GBA and stuff of the original games. Like all the like you know original pixel art games, get them in one collection. And they should do the same thing for Dragon Quest. Yeah. And just and it would be harder for Dragon Quest, I know, because not all of them have been localized. But Final Fantasy, you just gotta if they've got the text you just got to put it together like put a team on that that would be an awesome thing to get on the ps4 would be like final fantasy one through six collection yeah and eventually maybe the same kind of thing for dragon quest i would love for them to do that because you're right like square enix has made some of their classics available but sometimes in weird ways where yeah and like some of their mobile versions are okay but some of them you shouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole like if you've seen any of the screenshots from like mobile final fantasy six right they did something really weird to the art yeah they like completely changed the art on that one yeah so it's just they're they're not as accessible as they should be and of course it's again tougher with dragon quest because i know not all of them were localized at the time as far as i know yeah but i think maybe all of them have been localized at some form i feel like yeah. yeah um but anyway that would be really neat and i i mean i'm glad the 3ds has those specific two seven and eight and then 9, you can, you can still get on the DS, of course. You just have to get the cartridge, but... Yeah,
1: yeah. but it, but it is something where it's like, at least with Final Fantasy, not all of the versions are, like, maybe the optimal version, but, like, you can play mm-hmm. all right. of those classic Final Fantasies on a PSP or a Vita, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it's nice that, like, like, again, it's not the best way to play some of those games, but, like, it is a way you can totally play these games is, like, on one device, you yeah, know, like Dragon Quest, even if you're in Japan, that's not possible. Yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy also had,
0: like, the the Game Boy Advance remakes at different yeah. points. Like, they've done pretty well by that franchise. It's just on the most modern devices it's harder, uh, other than the Vita, as you say. But, yeah, that's cool. I, I'm glad to hear that that's so good. I Like, I might pick that up on the iPhone and just give it a try, because I've always wanted to kind of look at those early ones, too. I didn't even know they were out on iPhone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's cool. All right, well, neat. So... That's uh, that's all the stuff. Yeah. Right? Next week, I'll try to play that Prey demo at some point. It's my original <laughs> intention because it, it sounds like it's probably pretty good. I don't know.
0: And it's another Bethesda
1: game where they're not giving it to critics for review, yeah, which like, seems like this is like one where that's really fucking them because Prey does not have like a huge sort of fan base or anything. It's not. It's not a game that people can stream and get a lot of excitement over. So it's like. If this game is really good and got really good reviews, then I would have heard about it like a week ago or something and be really excited about it, maybe. Right. Instead of being like, oh, maybe I should check out this demo. I only heard about it because I follow enough people who like play and like review video games on Twitter that yeah. they were talking about. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that's something I should check out. Yeah. Weird stuff. But uh, anyway, let's talk about some
0: news. Um, quick follow up. Last week we mentioned Call of Duty World War II was announced. Yes. After that podcast went out, they put out the trailer and everything. Any thoughts on that?: It looks like a Call of Duty game set in World War II. It does. It, it honestly, like I'm still looking forward to this game. The trailer is completely a cinematic. It has nothing yeah. to do with the game. It's the
1: announcement trailer. right, like whatever.
0: But somehow that looked even more generic than I thought it would. Like that. If you had shown me that without the Call of Duty logo, I would be like, "That could be Call of Duty, that could be
1: Battlefield. They that could, could be, be like Medal of Honor. Yeah, they, maybe they're, they're trying to resurrect Medal of Honor again, those poor yeah. bastards. Yeah, I'm like, I wouldn't know what series it is. Company of Heroes, that's another World
0: War yeah. II franchise. Uh, the graphics were very nice yeah apparently it's gritty boots on the ground gameplay which everyone was saying over and over again because
1: that was like their big line from yeah. activision you know at least they weren't calling it epic every other sentence the way that uh ea was with battlefield 1 and e3 last year right yeah it's like it's a little easier to stomach gritty like sure like yeah. it's i don't like how you're trying to market this whole term but sure yes world war Two was gritty yeah. in a way that world war one was not fucking epic you assholes
0: it did not feel as gross as the battlefield one yeah. advertisements because um, they didn't get into the most exploitative things about war, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's you know we saw it set in the in the European theater, not yeah. in the Pacific. Because I think there's only one Call of Duty game that was Pacific,
1: right? Uh, like that's World, World of war. war is the only one. Yeah. that, Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. at least, like, Call of Duty 2, you were, like, you know, you had, like, the whole British campaign in North Africa, and you had, like, the yeah. Russian side and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, this one seems like there are, for the, at least for the campaign, definitely, like, focusing very specifically on, like, D-Day and, like, after D-Day. Yeah.
0: I really don't think they could do one with Russians as heroes right now. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> hard to do. Yeah. It's like...
1: The, the larger, like, even if, like, that is... I think, like, the Russian side of the war is maybe the most interesting part of World War II in terms of conflict. Like, the Russian side of the war is, like, so fucked up and crazy. Yeah. But, yeah, there's definitely a political climate thing that makes it a little bit harder to sort of step into the shoes of Private Vasily or something.
0: Yeah, like, right now, I would be okay with another game with me killing Russian ultranationalists. Sure, yeah. You know, like, that would be a little cathartic right now. But, you are you know, you're right. They're just joking about that. So, yeah, Call of Duty World War II. We'll see more when it comes out. There, You can pre-order it. There's
1: going to be a beta. Yeah. I mean one thing That one bit of Information that I Thought was interesting That came out of this Is that at least in The campaign there's Not going to be Regenerating health And there's going to Be health packs Really I didn't know That that sounds like Yes hey they're like Yeah they're like Doing something with it They're like really Thinking about how do We like try to make This different and Separate it from other Call of Duty games and Like that yeah like Call of Duty has not Had health packs since Call of Duty 1 God even Halo it's Been a while like Reach
0: brought it back Am I right Yeah
1: like a little bit But even that ODST was was the one that
0: Brought it back a lot Yeah yeah But yeah you're right So it's been a while Since I feel like Any first person shooter Did
1: that Yeah well we had Doom Doom but Doom Was also so like Such a throwback Kind of thing That made sense Doom
0: I also like It's a different category Yeah it is It is a
1: very It might as well Be a different uh, genre Than what Call of Duty Is that's for sure yeah, the, the other games also don't have shotguns the way Doom has
0: shotguns. Yeah. You know, no. Yeah. Uh, God, I want more Doom. I, I hope. Do you think sometime this year we'll get like a Doom standalone DLC campaign like they did with mm. Wolfenstein? I would. Love I would that.
1: love that. I would not hold my breath for it though. I'm not but, holding my yeah. breath. I just I want it. <laughs> they, they should make it. I'm not totally confident that they will though. Yeah. Although I, I think maybe probably at this E3 we we'll shoot we should probably hear if they're like. Going to make that rumored sequel to their Wolfenstein game Which I like that game, so
0: Yeah, if if they do a sequel, I'll go back and play the first one Yeah,
1: it was good Because I can play like it for a dollar Yeah, and, and it's, you know It's probably even better to play it now Because that is the game that is all about How Nazis won World War II and have taken over The relatively modern world I guess it's still period piece when it's set But it's like after World War Two, And so you just go around killing Nazis In like the future from World War Two perspective and So that's probably even more cathartic now I'd love to kill some Nazis right yeah. now the the, the jimmy hendrix is a character a side character in one of the campaigns like like because there's like it's a split timeline thing and there's one of the side characters as you find out it's like oh wait this is jimmy hendrix but instead of being jimmy hendrix he's a resistance fighter because history got all fucked up in this version of the world and it's really good that game is really fucking good nice uh
0: ps4 announced this week that their worldwide shipments of the console have reached 60 million units that's a lot. We are only in the third full year of this console's lifespan. Yeah, that's insane. Like that is not sold through, but they will be sold through. Yeah, that sixty. Jesus Christ! Like the highest selling is the PS2 at 154 million, I yeah. believe, and it took a while to get there. Yeah, we're almost at half of that. That's insane. Yeah, like it's sometimes you just have to sit back and be like, oh, right, the PS4. Is a wild runaway success.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's really and it, like it makes a lot of sense. Like with this year, like I feel like we're all really feeling. Oh right, okay, yes, this is like the dominant console on the market. There are so many PS4 games Jesus, that came out this yeah. year that so Already? like yeah, only like in this first half of the year that just didn't come out anywhere else. It's like fucking nuts. It is. It's
0: absolutely nuts. I mean, the PS4 is just clearly it's the console of this generation. Yeah. If you want to be up to date on this generation's games. You at least have to have a PS4. It's just, yeah. and I, I even in a way where. The 360 was sort of the dominant console, you know, during its generation, but not to the degree the PS4. No, is like they time. were
1: like the 360 had a good head start, also because it came out a year before the PS3. But yeah. that generation ended with the PS3, like worldwide selling more than the 360. Obviously, the 360 was fairly dominant in North America for the whole time. And I
0: think the 360 drove things like the the technical and kind of yeah, like user the, side, the, of yeah, things. like all the online systems and stuff like achievements and yeah. friend systems and everything on the 360. Just, was just the standard. I, I it's really interesting because yeah. I you know I was around obviously for the ps2 generation but wasn't covering games this way i wonder if it felt this dominant that probably with the ps2 because but it is it's an interesting thing to be with like right there is just there is clearly a dominant console right now driving everything yeah and i'm glad we we got the right one
1: yeah like i am very glad that with this generation started like had to sit down and be like okay fuck is i i'm I'm not going to be able to buy both of these consoles right now like i really need to pick one as like i was definitely like a 360 dude and it's like but the fucking Xbox One launch thing was so bad it Was just so unbelievably bad And the PS and Sony did such a good job Like counter-messaging against that I was like, okay, fuck it, I'll get a PS4 And uh, I'm glad I made the right choice And did not have to be like, okay, fuck I'm gonna have to get both of these things
0: It is, you know, I have an Xbox One It is interesting, like, how little I use it I use it for some media apps Because for some reason People will put media apps On Xbox One And not on PS4 And I'm thinking That's 60 million people You're not reaching You idiots Yeah But whatever Um, And then But like I I honestly don't know The last time I played An Xbox One game Solo And not some kind of Multiplayer Some of Forza Horizon 3 I know But I also tend to Also play that co-op Online with my brother Like mostly that's my online multiplayer machine i play with my brother other than that who's at right, college? because he has an xbox one dick. Yeah. He has an X- no i'm just kidding there are some of those games. obviously we like halo and stuff yeah. so it's nice to have an xbox yeah, but, one but, but, but like, he doesn't have a ps4 which is right why you're right specifically need the xbox one right exactly so it's just other than that like i i would kind of just unplug it and be like if one day they get another exclusive if forza horizon 3 gets more dlc then i'll plug it back in but it is like xbox i think you know And I'm not trying to be mean It's just You look at those sales figures it's It kind of tells you the story You know yeah. Speaking of sales figures We've talked before About how the Nintendo 3DS How well it's done And yeah. how well it Like it continues to do In a way where People are like Why are they still Supporting the 3DS The Switch is so cool It's like Because it makes a lot of money Yeah And if they didn't They'd have some really Angry stockholders And they also It would be just be Dumb business You know Yeah And that came into stark relief when this week on Thursday night at 9.30... Yeah, just out of nowhere. Nintendo dropped an announcement of their new Nintendo 2DS XL which is an interesting device it basically brings the nintendo 2ds which was sort of their kid-friendly cheaper priced version of the 3ds where it had the two screens but it didn't flip it kind of looked like a little fisher price toy yeah it was like 80 bucks obviously it didn't have the 3d functions. this is right it's called the 2ds yeah um but you know since they put out the 2ds they'd since done the new nintendo 3ds which has you know the faster processor And uh, the C-Stick and a couple of other changes. So now this is the 2DS, new 2DS. And so now it's a clamshell design again. The screen sizes are in parity with the 3DS XL. It's got all the same internals as the new 3DS. It's got the Amiibo functionality. It's got the C-Stick. So it can do everything a new 3DS can do other than the 3D. And it's $150, comes out this summer. I think it actually looks like a really cool product. Yeah. But it's just... You're right. I mean, it was... The weirdest way to announce that thing.
1: Because it's just... It feels... It felt like such a joke. It took me the longest time to, like, really believe that, like... Okay, no, this is the official Nintendo account. Like, this is not some, like... Somebody's made-up, like, fake trailer that they made... That, like, was so, like, impressive and, like, technically difficult to do... That they couldn't get it out in time for April Fool's Day. So it's like they slipped for basically a whole month. Because it is, like... The the Nintendo 3DS light of consoles or handhelds is so weird at this point. Because you have the Nintendo 3DS... The Nintendo 3DS XL, the Nintendo 2DS, the new Nintendo 3DS, the new Nintendo 3DS XL, and the new Nintendo 2DS XL. With no new Nintendo, just 2DS, there's only the new Nintendo 2DS XL. Yes. It's like, that's, that is hard to keep straight. Also, the new Nintendo 3DS has been out for like two years, so it's not right. as new as, as maybe it used to be. No, I've, I've had mine for a while I, I yeah i really love that the new nintendo 3ds is not the most recent iteration of the 3ds anymore <laughs> it's not the new nintendo 2ds is. it's
0: true no i mean but yeah so putting aside it was a weird announcement you would have expected this to be part of a nintendo direct or something yeah but they did that nintendo direct like earlier this month that was about 3ds games why was this not part of it because they're launching it day and date with Hey Pikmin and a couple of the other 3DS games they announced mm-hmm. over the summer. So, which makes sense. You yeah, put it right. out with your new summer 3DS games. Anyway, kind of weird. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it looks like a cool device. Like, I've always thought the 2DS was a good idea because I think there's a lot of people who would get into the 3DS. But maybe, like, the $200 price point and the 3D puts them off or something. But the 2DS is, like... It's cheap, which is nice, but it also looks like a baby's toy, kind of. Yeah. So I don't think a lot of adults would want to get it. But this is super sleek. It actually looks really cool, I think. It's got this neat kind of, like, blue and black color scheme. Um, It's got absolutely everything you would get from the 3ds it does not feel like a downgrade or anything other than it doesn't have the 3d but if you don't care about that anyway same screen quality screen sizes i particularly like what they've done with the top screen where because you don't have to have the sliders or anything it just it's basically just the screen and the bezel is a lot smaller than on other 3ds's
1: so it looks really nice and i think 150 dollars good price point and like the 150 feels slightly expensive considering how old the Nintendo 3DS itself is that I kind of wish they could have gotten it down to like 120 would make it more attractive to someone like me it's like 150 still feels a bit expensive especially when there's like you know because I like I almost kind of feel like at this point like the normal Nintendo 3DS or whatever like should just be like on like on hundred twenty or something or hundred and thirty bucks instead of like being like two hundred or something.
0: Yeah, I mean it makes sense with the current prices because the current new Nintendo 3DS XL is one ninety nine. This is one forty nine. But you're right. I mean the normal 3DS should probably be one forty nine at this point, yeah. especially now that the Switch is out. Yeah,
1: and like in this not having the 3D in it is like something where it's like ah, oh, like because it's, like if if this was cheap enough to like be like okay, that's fine like if it was like again like 120 that would be very easy for me to dismiss but it's like like me as someone who doesn't have a 3ds and is like constantly like ah maybe i should try to get one maybe i don't know and it's like there's still that part in the back of my head that is like well i know that like for a lot of games it's probably not a big deal but i still would always be like playing some of these games like if i wanted to play super mario 3d land and it's just in the back of my mind would be like oh, fuck this would probably be way better if i bought the 3d version of this
0: yeah so you know what i was going to say though is that if that price point is amenable to you the 3DS of pretty much any currently supported console has like the best games library. It's fantastic. I say it over and over again. The 3DS is, is just as a miraculous games library, especially when you consider you can still play every DS game on it. It's got Virtual Console. It's even got SNES games now. That's actually one of the cool things about the new having the new 2DS is that uh, SNES games that you can download don't work on the standard 3DS or 2DS because they need more processing power. Huh. So you have to have a new 3DS, and so now you can play those on your 2DS too, which those don't need 3D, so that's nice. Yeah. Uh, they would be weird if they needed 3D, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so no, I, you know, it's cool, and, and I think if you haven't gotten into the 3DS yet, there's, there's no time like the present. There are a lot of really phenomenal, phenomenal games on there. Uh, and then when you add in the ports like, you know, your Zelda ports, like Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask and those Dragon Quests, and it's got fucking Persona Q, which you still need yeah. to play. So, which you don't need the 3D for. It's okay,
1: Okay. but uh, you don't need it for Persona Q. Maybe maybe now like the two DS like the original two DS will be so cheap I could just get that for like twenty bucks and say, like fuck it. I'm going to make sure nobody sees me playing this thing because it looks like so cheap and so childish. Feel like I'd be worried about how people would think of me.
0: The thing about the two DS I love is that whenever I go on like forums or Reddit or anything and read about this, everyone says the same thing about the two DS who has one, is it looks stupid, but apparently it's super comfortable. Like it's a really like ergonomic design. But they're like they're embarrassed. It's like I really like having my 2DS, but I don't want anyone to know that. And it's like it is weird. Like they made something that probably like Nintendo makes really solid devices. Yeah. You know, they're they're always good ergonomically and everything. But that one just looks so silly.
1: Because <laughs> yeah, like I feel like you know, because sometimes I go down to Denver because we have this whole like light rail system uh, in Colorado that's relatively new, and so that's like a good opportunity to read or play something on your phone or or if you had a handheld game console and i would kind of feel like looking at like what the 2ds is i would feel the same way sitting on the train playing a 2ds as if i was sitting on the plane and playing with an etch-a-sketch like it's the exact same like (laughs) i don't i just can't do this no i get it i can't handle the idea of like all these other people looking at me knowing this like this thing looks like i'm five years old like on this no
0: But yeah, I uh, I'm glad they've they've got another you know more affordable 3ds out in the wild. Even though, as you say, could be even more. But look again with the number of great things that system has, uh, 150 is a small price to pay, and it still comes with they give you a four gigabyte SD card, which is nice to start off, and. I forget if they give you anything else with this one they do, uh, the, they give you the ac, AC adapter. adapter that's what i was gonna say because other 3ds's for the last few years for inexplicable reasons have not come with an ac adapter this one does so if you have never owned a ds or 3ds and for, therefore you don't have an ac adapter this is the one to get
1: still like it's one of the most bizarre it would be like if they sold ps4s and didn't give you a fucking hdmi cable it's i know like, fuck off assholes
0: it's worse than that if they didn't give you the power cord literally like you have to use your power cord from the PS3 and then sell it like that's the thing is I remember when I got my new 3DS XL I sold my old 3DS but I had to sell it without the AC adapter it was just weird like making my eBay listing and being like doesn't come with an AC adapter I hope that's okay you know like I don't know
1: what else to say I'm gonna keep mine because I need it but I'll not have to like go fucking like petition Nintendo to be able to send me a fucking AC adapter
0: (sighs) yeah anyway so that's uh, Nintendo they do Nintendo stuff Uh, finally piece of movie news James Mangold the director of Logan the excellent Wolverine film from earlier this year announced on Twitter that there will be a black and white version of Logan that he has made it'll be apparently on the DVD and Blu-ray which is coming out in May but also he has intimated it's not an official announcement but he said on Twitter be ready on May 16th apparently they're going to play it in theaters that night and if that's true I will be there because I love that movie and I really, that that is one where I instantly, yes, yeah. black and white
1: would work with that. Yeah, like I can just see so many movies, there are so many scenes from that movie in black and white in my head and be like, yep, yep, that makes total sense. Yeah. In the same way with like Mad Max.
0: Yeah, so this is very much obviously echoes the Mad Max black and chrome edition which I reviewed on this podcast earlier this, maybe last year or whatever um which was really cool where george miller got to go in and basically again it's not as simple as turning the color off you have to basically regrade every shot in the movie which is time consuming but rewarding and james Mangold's doing the same thing and i love this trend of directors being like obviously we can't do the main theatrical release in black and white studios won't allow it but if it makes enough money they'll give us like half a million dollars to go do it in black and white for the dvd and that'll be fun yeah and that's just a cool trend that's going on
1: Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, if I ever like, and I probably will watch that movie at some point in the future again. I would want to watch it in the black and white version to see it. Yeah, seems like that'd be really cool.
0: Yeah, and just just knowing how rewarding that was for Mad Max, I feel like that's awesome that we get to do it again. And this is this has kind of been a trend. I remember Frank Darabont's The Mist, the Stephen King movie. Hmm. He did the same thing where he made the movie in black and white and really wanted to put it out that way, but the studio wouldn't let him. So in theaters it was in color, and then on DVD it's in black and white. I remember the movie Nebraska a couple of years ago, um, which was like a big, you know, Alexander Payne movie. Got some Oscars, good movie, and it was it did come out in black and white. But I remember reading interviews where they said they actually did have to shoot it in color, basically for insurance, because the studio said you can release it in black and white, maybe, but like they were never confident on it. Right. And eventually, they did allow them to release it in black and white. But I like that this is this trend is growing. And again, we're probably never going to get to a point where we get an actual blockbuster come out in black and white, but if we can get it as a DVD extra, it's good enough for me. Yeah. So, I like this. Yeah, me too. And L- Logan had fantastic cinematography, and just seeing that cinematography, you know, under a different lens is cool. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Stephen Merchant's character should be even creepier <laughs> in black <laughs> yeah, and white. that's a good point. Alright, uh, you want to talk to Doctor Who? Let's talk about Doctor Who. Doctor Who, you're talking about uh, episode 3 of series 10, Thin Ice, by Ms. Sarah Dollard. Yep. Last year wrote Face the Raven, where uh, spoilers... Two years ago.
1: Last last year on the show, the two years <laughs> ago in real life. Because there's a... And I'll just do a shout out for this because it's something that's cool to watch. The Doctor Who YouTube channel puts up some like interviews after each episode with like some of the people involved in this for this episode it was with Sarah Dollard and the costume designer And like it's a fun interview But at the beginning of the interview The the, the woman doing the interview said and you, and you previously wrote 2015's Face the Raven I was like right, right That episode came out two years ago Because i have been full on Doctor Who mode I feel like seven, season 9 just happened in my head Because right. of, I'm just like in the middle of Doctor Who Exactly,
0: no uh, Two years ago is Face the Raven Which is, spoilers, uh, that's where Clara died Uh, Very impactful episode of the series. An excellent episode. Thin Ice is a very different episode because it's not a climax. It's an early season episode. It's the the prototypical companion episode where they went to the future. Now they get to go to the past. You know kind of like this is actually very much mirrors like season three I feel like of the modern series. Where we had Martha. You meet Martha with a fun adventure. Then they go to the future. Then they go to the past. It might be the opposite with Martha, I forget. I I don't remember which order the Shakespeare one comes in. Right, but I know there's the one in the future, which is like the traffic episode, Yeah, Gridlock. I I love that episode. And then the Shakespeare one, which is kind of fun. So same kind of thing here. Although, again, I think this season has been doing a better job at these kind of archetypal episodes than past seasons of Modern Who. So we go to the past... Um, what we thought might be a weird sci-fi scenario at the end of last week is actually a historical thing where there were these, I did not know about this, Yeah. on the Thames it would freeze and they would have these festivals which seem dangerous, but whatever, have fun with
1: it. Did they put up a sign that said, like, be careful, thin ice, like, I'm sure that's, like, what's a couple of beggars that, that plunge into the depths of the, fright, like, the frozen Thames and freeze to death and then get eaten by a giant sea monster, Jonathan? If
0: you had said that in a British accent, it would be the most British thing anyone ever said. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, no, but uh, so we have that real thing, but there is a sci-fi concept because there are some lights going on under the ice, and uh, it's interesting because, again, the, kind of like last week's and kind of like the premiere, this is, a, like, on the on paper, a very typical Doctor Who story where there's a monster, there's some orphan kids, the doctor has to figure it out, and, you know, there's a rich guy behind the scenes, blah, blah, blah. The execution of it, though, is just so good yeah. and at its core, it's not exploring the same idea as every other version of this story. In fact, this one is very much interrogating the idea of what does a, a Doctor adventure like this look like to a new companion and to a companion who knows the Doctor pretty well at this point but doesn't really have an idea of what his day-to-day adventures look like. And it leads to some absolute dynamite scenes and Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey in both funny moments and in serious moments and often in moments that blur the two Like all the stuff with Pete, the companion who never was, but might have been, because Peter Capaldi's doctor does not really make jokes. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic stuff from them. Uh, Kind of like last week's episode, I thought this one didn't have the greatest ending on Earth, but I liked the episode a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, like I I basically feel the exact same way about it. It It is a... Like you said, on paper, like you can point to a lot of different plot elements and specific things like where this sits in the season with a new companion and the parallels with other past episodes. And there's a lot of things you can say like, oh, this is like plot devices, a lot like the Beast Below episode from the Matt Smith years and stuff like that. But the actual execution of those elements is so good. The production design is so much fun. Like, the costume work in particular is really good. It's one of the reasons why I think on that, like, interview show, they specifically brought the costume design lady on because it's, like, the costume design of this episode is really fantastic because there's, like, so many different, like, weird... You know, just, like, the whole set of the Frozen Tims and, like, the fair and all these weird characters and, like, the dude doing the coin trick and, the, like, the sword-swallowing guy and, like, all of that circus of people is really cool. And, like, that part of it's really fun. But it is at the core of the episode. It is, again... The thing that is remarkable about this episode Is the same thing that was sort of remarkable at the premiere and the second episode Which is we have seen these kinds of episodes before But this is like This relationship with the companion Is taking a slightly different tack That the show has never quite done before And it is really interesting And I think this gets even deeper with it This is definitely like for me This is the moment where I've been enjoying Bill the whole time But this is the episode for me Where like Bill has fully like clicked in As like I can see how this character now Goes on all these adventures and can be a normal Doctor Who companion from sort of this point forward because this is like her moment to see the darker side. Of what the doctor does. And like, and, like, you know, she saw some of the doctor side of the darker side of what the doctor does in the first and second episode, but she, here she really has to confront it and can't just ignore it anymore. And those scenes, I thought, between her and Peter Capaldi were so strong. The dialogue is really smart and it really expresses so much about who these two characters are. And it gives you a, a new sort of perspective on the doctor through her eyes, being like, right, that's right. Like, it is not normal to just see people die in the course of your, like, just going about this, like, party, you know? Like, that's not something that happens to normal people. That's something that happens to the Doctor basically every single day because of the life he leads. And really interrogating that is honestly, as, like, surprising as it is when I was, like, trying to really rack my brain, it's something the show has almost never done. Like, they almost never put a spotlight on that when, like, the first time a companion, like, really has to grapple with the idea of like, oh, right, fuck, these people are just dying. And yeah. that's not something that normal human beings ever have to deal with.
0: No, definitely, like, you think through all the companions and you think... There must have been that moment, but there really isn't, because obviously the companions see people die. People die on Doctor Who all the time. Not usually by the Doctor's hands, but around that area, you know, and normally they just kind of have to grin and bear it and go with it, and we kind of skip that step. This episode takes the step of, right, most normal humans, if they see someone die for the first time, that's going to affect them, and Bill has not necessarily led a sheltered life, but she hasn't seen a little boy drown in the ice, you know? Most people haven't, right? So, like, there are some really powerful scenes. And I think if you want to draw a line between this and Face the Raven and, I don't know, do a little bit of auteur theory on Sarah Dollard and, like, what kind of Doctor Who writer is she, there is kind of this tie between those two episodes of, like, deconstructions of fairly common Doctor Who tropes. Like, that's what's so interesting about Face the Raven is Face the Raven is, is by design, a pretty standard Doctor Who adventure until the moment where things go wrong. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And I think she is a writer who clearly... Kind of revels in those Moments and this is one Of those where kind of Everything up to the Point where the little Boy drowns other than Some of the dialogue is Really good it's mostly Kind of standard Doctor Who fare and then you Realize right there's a Larger existential thing Going on here where Bill Is shocked and the doctor It seems pretty cold of Him to just be going After the sonic Screwdriver but he knows He has to get that Because if you left that In the wrong hands it Would be really deadly Like that's yeah. kind of Unsaid but the doctor Can't just leave his Sonic with some random Kid in the Thames right Yeah and so you have that perspective, you have Bills, and then it leads to, I think, the best scene of the episode, which is where he goes back with her and she expresses this and kind of has this outburst, and, and there's this confrontation, and just, after all this time, you would think Peter Capaldi doesn't have more shades of depth to go to with this performance, but he does. Yeah. Like, his whole thing of when she keeps asking, you know, have you, how many people have you seen die? And it's basically the unsaid thing is, I've lost count. And yeah. have you killed someone... And then finally, he says yes, and then she realizes. Have you lost count of that too? That whole exchange, like amazing acting duet between Capaldi and Mackie, outstanding scene.
1: Yeah, and like I think, like as a writer for this show, like it takes a lot of balls to be able to like have the doctor just say like, "Yes, I have killed people," because it's like something where you know I've seen every episode of the show. I know the dudes killed people. Like you know, there's a great you know, the shot from the fourth Doctor adventure, like, Invasion of Time or whatever, where you just see him, like... It's it's a, like, futuristic sci-fi rifle, but he's just, like, holding a fucking gun. It's like, fucking, yeah. Like, he's just shooting Sontar at this point, and it's really good. You know, uh, the, the Doctor tries not to kill people. He's a
0: good dude, but he's not Batman.
1: Yeah, no, like, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a messy universe, and sometimes... Like, and that's just sort of what he tries to express in those moments in, in this episode. is like... Sometimes it's just not that easy. Like sometimes you just don't have that easy choice. It like you know, like the doctor has never been able to be like entirely altruistic or like entirely pacifistic in his journeys. Like he tries to embody those ideals as much as he can, but he's not a perfect character. It's one of the things that makes him very interesting. Is that he's not like Batman in that regard. Of like Batman just never kills anybody. He will never kill anybody in any mainline proper comic book version of that story in that character he will never kill people like batman v superman get fucked like the n- normal version of batman is never going to kill him but because that's how that character is built the same way that like Superman's not going to kill anyone in any superman story worth its salt but doctor who it can have an episode of doctor who where the doctor like very specifically kills someone and you can have that happen like it's a part of who he is, and like the sort of adventures he goes on, is it's, sometimes it's sort of inevitable, maybe, or like maybe it could have been avoided, but he's past that point. It's like you know, it's a complicated thing. But having you know the hero of this show just say yes to the, the being asked, to have you killed people, is like pretty chilling, honestly. This is something that like the show doesn't usually just directly confront it like that
0: and it is interesting how this episode very much foregrounds comedy in that at first Peter Capaldi in the top hat and tails which I never knew I needed I needed that in my life
1: man he rocks that top hat so hard in this episode
0: and it's funny at first like how have we not had this actor play Ebenezer Scrooge was yeah, my first instinct. Exactly. Like, it, yeah, it's really good, you know. Um, but then my, my second was, this is funny, because there's, there's that whole exchange about Pete, the companion, and you step on a butterfly, and now he's gone. Yeah. You've forgotten all about him. That, especially because he never, like, comes out and just says, I was joking. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be that is like the new like running joke in the Doctor Who fandom for like the next five years. Like you can already see it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um,
0: it's great, but so it's very funny until you get to that moment, and then in the top hat and the tails and everything, the more menacing side of Capaldi's kind of facial movements comes out, yeah. and those modulations he does are so brilliant. And I really do. Th- I was thinking about this with this episode. I really do think the story of the Capaldi years in terms of its approach to Doctor Who as an an entity is its deconstruction of Doctor Who tropes. Like, Series 8 did that in individual episodes. Series 9 did that, I think, as a full season arc of a deconstruction of the Doctor and his companion. And you can tell Series 10 is, is still doing that where because you have a performer of Capaldi's caliber, because he looks more like a classic Doctor Who, because of all these things, they're able to kind of shed new light on the doctor by, I think, going back and questioning some of the most basic things about the show, that's what this episode does. Yeah. And it's very powerfully in those moments, because what I love after that is it's able to modulate back, where, that, you're right, very dark moment to just have the hero of your children's show, a lot of the time, come out and say, yeah, I killed people, and then it's, but you can ultimately turn that into kind of a positive thing, where he's saying, I have to move on, because if I don't, more people will die. Yeah. And And he goes and meets the orphans, because he's like, I... Just because I couldn't say that kid doesn't mean I want to abandon all the kids. Yeah. You know, and he goes and, and his instinct is not... To terrorize children... It's... Let's have some food or something... You know... And have some fun... Yeah... And you can go back to him... Having a really fun moment... With these kids... And, and you know... The answer ultimately... Is the Doctor contains multitudes... Yeah... And uh, Peter Capaldi... I think is uniquely equipped... To uh, illustrate that...
1: Yeah... It's, it's definitely a hallmark... Of the show... Is it's ability to just... Do whatever it wants... Or needs to do... In the moment it's doing it... Like whether that's... Like whatever genre... Is choosing to tackle... Whatever time period... Is choosing to tackle... Or whatever tone... because most Doctor Who episodes... Can vacillate wildly between like being very funny and being extremely dark and this is and a lot of times that is some of like a pitfall a common pitfall that a lot of bad Doctor Who episodes run into is not being able to do that well because that is very hard to do well and this is an episode this is a very good example and Face the Raven is another very good example of like yes like you can do both of these things you can have this episode be incredibly tragic and also be incredibly hilarious like you know in basically back to back scenes. He just needs a, like, writer talented enough and and performers talented enough to be able to do it. And then with this episode, direction
0: and production design and costume design, like, this is another episode where... And I think season 8 into 9 into 10, those different arms of the show have just been continually firing on all cylinders. But I feel like especially this season, like, the production design of all the stuff on the Thames, amazing. The costume design, amazing. The general sense of atmosphere in the direction and everything. Just, it's really thick and meaty and you really get into it and then I love also that with all that other stuff this episode is very much like a classic Doctor Who mystery Yes. where like for most of the episode they're following a kind of a series of clues and it takes a while before they put the whole picture together and it's very satisfying and of course it even gets into like this is another episode where I can see the four part Doctor Who serial in it because it even has the like the third serial episode is always the one where the doctor gets kidnapped or, yeah. or, or put in a cell or something. Happens here where the yep. doctor and his companion get tied up and they have to get out. And, Any
1: uh, Doctor Who story worth its salt, the doctor and his companion have to be like, put into captation or, or captured at some point in the story. Yes. It has to happen every single time.
0: It really does, and I think even more than, because this, this one definitely pace-wise reminded me of last week's, but I think it was even better at that. Like, this felt a lot more even in terms of its pacing throughout, yeah, definitely. where I could see the, the four-part, you know, two-hour serial version of this, but this felt good as 45
1: minutes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and like, and along that, like, the sort of the mystery plot stuff, I thought, you know, it's the kind of thing, like with... Um, Sort of like the monster story in the pilot episode Which is like You know something that every Doctor Who episode Like practically everyone needs to have a monster at some point And you kind of forget about it But when it's done really well it kind of stands out In the way it did in the pilot In this one it's like the mystery thing is something that Every Doctor Who episode has to have like You know by the nature of what the show is And like how it's sort of framework There has to be a part of the structure of the show That is the characters walking around And sort of like figuring out what is going on Like Smile also had very good versions of those scenes But this I thought there were like a couple of scenes In particular that's like Man this is just such a good version of this Like the Doctor... And and Bill showing up at where they're like sort of made, put, taking all the monster poo that is actually That's, fuel yeah. and bricking it together, and, he, and it's like the first big scene we've had with the psychic paper in a while. And and the doctor goes in and is like trying to sort of interrogate this guy for information while like not having obviously doesn't want that guy to realize he's being interrogated so it's like sort of like encouraging him to like sort of speak up to try to prove how smart he is is to potentially get a promotion like that's such a good fucking version of one of those scenes that's another one of those like I can't believe I've never seen this like done this way like I've seen a million versions of these scenes even before the psychic paper was invented where the doctor walks into a room is able to sort of just own it and pretend like oh I'm some official with the company or whatever and like get people to say more than they need to say but like i've never seen it structured in that like okay well like like what do you know like come on like we we pay like good ears better than than bad ones or whatever he says you know like he like that sort of like kind of building that dude up to get him to expel everything he has i thought that was really well done
0: no that's probably my favorite scene in the episode of the mystery stuff definitely it's one i was going to cite too because that's just it's very good. The general realization that you know Bill thinks that's mud, and then no, it's monster poo, and all of that. It's uh, it's yeah, very good. Just like
1: the plot device of like the whole th- like evil scheme is that they are taking this giant underwater monster in the Thames and taking its feces, and that like burns like super hot and super long, and using it as fuel instead of coal. Like that's such a fucking brilliant, brilliant <laughs> sci-fi plot. I. It's and so good.
0: It's great, and I do like where it leads. Where Sutcliffe. Of course his name is... Is it Sutcliffe? It's Sutcliffe, yeah. Because it's like a super stereotypical British douchebag name. Yeah, it's
1: very much... He sounds like a Dickens character. Yeah. Dickens villain. Yep. So you have Sutcliffe
0: and... That, that was a very funny scene Of just They went full You know British aristocracy Douchebag with yeah. it And uh, it was great and, and so I loved Kind of how that Resolved And, and again I, I thought the ending Of this episode Wasn't my favorite part But I also didn't think It had any of the problems Smile had last week Where I thought there were Specific logic issues yeah. It's just that it wasn't My favorite part of this week But I did like the whole thing Of Bill having to go Get everyone off the ice And the Doctor had left The Sonic And so it rerouted The explosives And then yeah. the monster Went off again some of that feels a little rote where ultimately it's they free the monster we have seen that exact thing several times even within the moffat years but i liked this version of it a lot yeah and
1: i I particularly like the bill part of it of her having to like take charge in a way that feels like she hasn't really yet in an adventure and it felt like a good sort of culmination of her arc over the episode of it ending with her like on her own taking that responsibility and saving these lives and not letting like the larger danger distract her from and like, or like the sort of mistakes she made in the past like, that maybe let some people die distract her from doing her hardest to sort of save all these people in front of her now.
0: Yeah you know It plays to that theme That this episode introduces At a certain point Where the doctor is saying You know I I, I can let the monster go I can keep it here But I'm not a human It's your You're my boss It's your decision And I thought that was actually Like kind of like A better done version Of something they tried In Kill the Moon That episode from series 8 Where the doctor says Something similar But that episode Is such a logical clusterfuck That it doesn't really add up
1: Yeah Here Um, like I like that It's sort of also wrapped In this sort of Complicit understanding That the doctor's doing this Specifically to test Bill On top of like Maybe like he's making some legitimate arguments for like oh this is your species your planet whatever this is more your choice than mine but also like he needs to know if she can if she has what it takes to sort of keep on going on adventures with him and i thought like that makes that the doctor saying that make a lot more sense than until the moon which kind of comes out of nowhere you're just left sitting like fucker i've seen 800 episodes of this tv show you have never let it up to the humans before like why are you doing it now
0: yeah, no, but it was it was really well done here, and I, and I liked all of that, and you're right, you know, seeing Bill take charge was good, and, and I like how simple her, you know, reasoning was, was, right, we just tell them something was wrong with the ice, and they get off the fucking yeah. ice, because people really shouldn't be walking around on ice, it's yeah. dangerous. So yeah, no, good stuff. Yes. Good episode. Very good episode. Uh, and then we had another great scene at the end, kind of, with the two of them in the TARDIS, and getting back, and we got a little more Nardole, who hopefully yeah. we'll get more of next week, but... Um, Nardole had a good scene interacting with them, and the Doctor trying to reason with Nardole, and then a very creepy ending down in the uh, in the cell room where they yeah. have the big mystery box or whatever. Yeah, the door, and it's knocking a bunch.
1: Yeah, like I thought, like they have still, they've kept doing a good job with that mystery of like it's not so much that it's like obviously like it's not distracting from the core episode. Like it very much feels like this is its own sort of separate little bit at the end of the episode, sort of setting up that mystery, and it continues to just be you know it's not like they're not dropping a bunch of, like, hints or something about, like, oh, this is blah, 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 blah. It must be fucking Susan trapped behind it. Because, of course, it must be Susan that's trapped behind the door. because how so could it possibly could not ever be anybody else. It's either Susan or it's Ian Chesterton. The signs are so obvious. Um, but I'm so like... it's, it's not doing... It's not trying to drop any of those hints. It's just trying to be evocative, and, like, that's all it needs to be, and I think it's effective at that. No, absolutely. This, this season kind
0: of feels... To me like A really super well done version Of a Russell T. Davis season Sure yeah You know it's following Kind of a similar pattern It's got that kind of You know These pretty separated episodes But with you know The character through lines Just all of it done
1: Better than I think it was In that era Yeah So
0: But it's really good so far
1: Yeah Also like I wanted to take a shout out For like the part of the episode Where they like address The sort of like The racial dimension of it Which is something that Because we Have only really had One other like Black sort of primary companion Martha before that's something that like they kind of did a little bit in that Shakespeare code episode with Martha that felt like like does then really justify enough of like th- this is should be more of a thing and you just kind of hand waved it away here it's like it is not what the episode is about, so it's like it's not sort of a dominating sort of force in the narrative or something, but it is something that like because Bill is black and like they are going back to you know early 19th century England where slavery was still a thing like those people were racist as fuck I mean this is where like all the scientists were coming from that were saying shit that was like no like obviously you know the negro race is is, like inferior to the white race because you can look up their fucking skulls and like look at this bump that means that they're stupid like that's where all that science was being done like in this era in that city so it's like something you definitely need to address in some way I thought that like they did a good job of addressing it like addressing it in like a way that didn't feel like they were dismissing it but also not having it overpower the other elements of the plot
0: you're right that's actually just the the really other really good scene i was forgetting is you have a couple of those where they're about to leave the tardis and bill is aware of that and the doctor being caught off guard with that was i thought a really well played moment by uh, both of them but kind of capaldi you could kind of read on like the doctor feeling bad for not thinking about it yeah because like he obviously does care about bill and he feels you know embarrassed that he didn't think about that And that's an interesting one but then later on when he's like let me do the talking you get you know you're a little too hyper right now and then um you know the guy says something super racist to bill and the doctor just sucks
1: and punches him in the face it was a real john perry moment i liked a lot we don't get enough of the doctor just like breaking out his Venetian karate on people and just (laughs) taking them the fuck out no
0: it was it was pretty fantastic and it's a good turn to the episode uh, did reinforce for me that I hope the next Doctor is not a white guy. There's just sure, something about yeah. that that, like, especially once you've addressed it that directly in an episode, there does come a point where the Doctor should be something other maybe than a white guy just because it becomes harder to keep justifying it yeah. if he's only ever, you know, middle-aged white dude. I don't know. There's just something yeah. about that where I thought about that, like, because um, they have the opportunity, you know. At, yeah, at, and at I think time.
1: making him blatantly Scottish is the first step. You
0: yes. Know? <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, no, another good episode. Yeah, for sure. Another interesting preview for next week. It seemed like a preview for the kind of episode that doesn't preview well because I had no idea what was going yeah. on in it.
1: But it's like it looked like very much a haunted house sort of episode, which I've always enjoyed. Those like hide from season seven was one of my favorite episodes from that season and this had looked like the preview had a similar sort of feel to it yeah haunted house doctor who's are, are
0: all and they're not always good but they're always interesting yeah
1: it's not a genre that doctor who tackles i think as often as it should because it is very equipped to doing very good versions of those stories yeah oh, peter capaldi's gonna be really good at it yeah <laughs> he
0: is with every, you just cut and paste with any doctor who story but i can't wait to see him in a haunted house setting yeah so, this is a good season so far. Definitely. Very, very excited
1: to see where we go. They, they have had a, a hell of a streak so far. Yeah. so you know, From, like, season nine to here, it's like... Uh, and the two really good Christmas specials. It's a, a lot of good
0: Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Moffat is... His run is kind of only getting better down the long home stretch. And that's amazing in so many ways. Yeah. That's not how TV... In Doctor Who or other areas tends to work. Yeah, it so. it
1: makes me happy that like he's not ending on like a down period like if the show had stopped or if he had left after season seven or something like that.
0: Right. Where I think we would view his era very differently. Yeah. But yeah. Instead he's had, you know, two full Doctor runs and one was better than the one before it. And that's amazing. Yeah. So speaking of things that were better than things that came before it, Persona Five. Persona five. Persona five. Spoilers from here on out for all of the game. Yes. If you haven't played it, If you haven't seen that Morgana is actually Pikachu in disguise I mean obviously it's the voice actress It's why they cast
1: her And I can't believe I didn't see that the whole time It really
0: is amazing If you haven't figured out that giant spoiler uh, Stop, go, keep playing the game You might have to wait to listen to the rest of this podcast For many hours Because who knows how far you are in the game It is very long um, And you might not be as obsessive with it as we are (laughs) But uh, yeah, Persona 5 Spoilers in uh, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 like but seriously yeah like the pikachu yeah reveal was like holy shit. I do kind of want to start at the end. Okay. And cool. I just want to say yeah. one thing was I I thought there's so many components of the ending we could talk about from yeah. evil igor to oh, yeah the scale of what happens near the end of the game. Holy fucking
1: shit the to, last boss fight
0: to some of the just the emotional moments near the end but I love what a small note the game decides to end on Mm -hmm, yeah i uh after this podcast closed last week after we finished recording uh, sean and i always often keep talking after the podcast is done as you can imagine we don't like restrict ourselves to just talk on the air that'd be weird i think that's
1: maybe we should do that just like you know the podcast is over like we have a series of hand signals in case we need to communicate something specific in that way but other than that we never speak to each other
0: but uh, we kept talking and one of the things i said to sean was because i was pretty close to the end of the game even though we we only talked to the end of the Sixth palace last time But I had already Gotten through the Seventh and everything As so I was pretty Close to the end And one of the things I said to Sean was Okay they're hinting Again that the, the Protagonist is going To have to leave After a year And I was a little Worried about them Bringing out that Plot device again Because it exists In Persona 3 Because he dies Yeah and it's one of those things that... I, look, I love Persona 4, and I'm going to compare it negatively to other things in this episode a little bit, just because I think 3 and 5 do things better. Yeah, me too. Persona 4 is still one of the best games ever made. I'm not disparaging it. Yeah. Just don't, don't tweet at me, why do you hate Persona 4 now? I love it there's just some things it doesn't do as well as its peers yeah but one of the things i don't think it justifies as well is taking some of the persona 3 things and grafting it onto the persona 4 story and one of the things that i think doesn't work super convincingly in persona 4 is that he has to leave at the end of the year it makes sense but it's also like he's forged such incredibly strong bonds with his people expecting us to view this as like this hyper emotional conclusion is a little weird when Clearly he's gonna come back And if you played Persona 4 Any time after it originally came out There was so much other media Where yes yeah, I mean,
1: He's just like Yeah if you count like It's Persona 4 the golden With the epilogue scene Which is like A good scene on stone But does not fit at the end of that game And then you have Persona 4 dancing all night Persona 4 arena Persona 4 arena All match, All of which take place Like over the course of like They're not all like concurrent It's just like Series of different months After he has already left And he keeps on Fucking coming back Like like at least for like A couple of weeks Every single month I feel like after he leaves He keeps coming back Because more shit goes down Like look Realistically in the arc Of Yu Narakami's life What he does is He goes back
0: He gets his stuff He talks to his parents And says can I go live With Dojima-san yeah. And they would ultimately Probably say yes Because they're traveling The world yeah. and
1: he would I, just... I have like Seven girlfriends It's okay. a whole thing It's going to be really messy If I just pack up And leave right now Yeah
0: Narakami goes on To live in Inaba And I think it's an awkward Part of Persona 4 And I think there's a lot Of awkward things At the end of Persona 4 That Persona 5 does a much better job adapting to a new story because yeah. Persona 4 was ultimately taking the archetypal layout of Persona 3 and but again Persona 3 is a special case because why all that stuff happens is you fucking die yeah. you know? and so Persona 5 starts going in that same direction and I expressed to you that I was worried about that because I especially don't buy it with this protagonist with the whole theme of the game being rebellion he's not just going to up and leave and abandon all his new life and just go back to live with his probably douchebag parents who abandoned him in his time of need and what I love so much about the end of Persona 5 is how directly it acknowledges that yeah because the last scene in this game is he's off to the train station in the back of my mind I'm like don't go why would you leave yeah and what it is is he his his friends the phantom thieves are all there they've got a bus that looks very much like Morgana's cat bus yeah and uh, they're ready to go take him and they just say dude you can do whatever you want we fought for that And the first step is they're going to go to the beach. But they make it very clear, whatever happens next, we don't know. Maybe you'll go home. Maybe you won't. Maybe none of us will go home. Maybe we'll just run away. Like, anything could happen and it's this very open-ended conclusion. And then you get the credits and then there's this little scene after the credits where the protagonist takes off his glasses and everything and gets up through the, like, moonroof of the van. And is just staring out at the world with possibilities. Yeah. And that scene hit me very hard in the moment. In that I thought it was the right conclusion And felt like man for a 100 hour game To end on a note that soft is powerful Yeah. But then it was about 5 hours later When I was working on I think a project for the podcast actually And I was listening to the, the last disc of the soundtrack And it hit me like I, I felt the weight of it again And I realized what is so powerful About the ending of this game is that So much happens It's like 100 hours long That ending is like 10 hours long yeah. There are so many twists and turns But what the game ultimately boils down to And what the game is so clear headed about From moment one To when the credits roll And you get that last scene Is that this is a game It's what it says in the theme song Wake up, get up, get out there It's about fighting tooth and nail For the ability to decide your own path And realizing that that is genuinely One of the hardest things We all have to deal with in a world where Paths are chosen for people At birth For a hundred different reasons no matter kind of what class or stature you are in there are specific chosen paths and it can be really tough to find happiness and to find direction in life when that is the world we live in. And I think Persona 5 has an intensely uplifting ending. Like yeah. as dark as this game starts I think the, game, the ending is like the inverse total of that. Like the total inverse of yeah. that where it is an intensely inspirational ending because it's saying look it is hard But you can get to a point in your life where you are that protagonist in the van with your friends looking out at the sea and saying, the greatest gift I can have in life is possibilities. And in its own way, I think Persona 5 found a way to tackle a subject as big and hard to digest as Persona 3 and did it in about as uh, powerful a way. Yeah. And that's amazing to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it's something that, like, if you go back and listen to the podcast episodes we did where I had finished the game and talked about a little bit of the ending and like non-spoiler stuff there. And then also in our like special politics episode after the election where I talked about the ending there because like, holy shit, how topical is this fucking game. Um, especially when you're playing it in October before the, the election. Um but yeah, like like I had so like I'll kind of recap some of my reactions there and then talk about like my evolved reactions now that I've played it again and had like a lot of time to think about it. Is yeah, my first time through Like I enjoyed the ending and I liked especially and I still I love that it has as protracted an ending as it does. Mm -hmm. You know like this is actually there's a really good piece on Waypoint by Austin Walker about and this is more specific about open world games. But I think like long games in general have this issue of not having denouement. Like they don't have this element of like that lots of stories have and particularly like books do a good job of this and it's something that's a normal part of the plot structure of a book is after the climax there's like that the period of falling action and then like this like softer resolution then that is like the action climax or whatever even if it's not an action story it has like these sort of like big climax moment or whatever of like the sort of culmination of the tension in the plot but then you have to have that falling action especially if it's a long story and if it's a long story it needs to be longer and like that's something that like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild I think has an issue with like when you in that game it just stops and it feels like give me time to like go into the world or something and see the world after I've defeated Ganon you know like in lots of games like it feels like give me time to sort of like digest what I have done through this game like in the plot and don't make me don't like dump me out after the credits and just be like oh I guess I have to like sit around and kind of process my relationship with this game where it's like or, build that build that element into the structure of the plot
0: or another great example of this not in the realm of games is the reaction people had to lord of the rings return of the king yes where that is i think a phenomenal movie ending but because it is committed to the idea of Dane a lot of audiences were not prepared for it
1: exactly yeah. yeah because if you look at it as the ending to a like nine hour movie which is what it is including fellowship and two towers it makes a lot of sense but like obviously when you just go see it in the theater and if maybe you've only ever saw the other two movies when they were in the theaters like that it just feels like it goes on forever but like it is you need this sense of like let me like unpack everything that has happened don't just sort of like throw the ring into mount doom then like oh we're gonna die oh no we're in Rivendell. we all live like and then cut the credits like that would be like so just sort of like I don't know what to do with that Because you haven't let me Sort of like Unpack my feelings About these characters In this world
0: is why in the, in the book The Scouring of the Shire Is such an important part Of that book yeah. and, and why Tolkien Was so smart to include that Because it's about As you say Going back to the world you, you saved, you had an impact on, and, and what was that impact I had? Yeah. Um, so I think, in terms of literature, that's one I always think of. Yeah.
1: So, like, in, I think one of the things that Persona 5 does really well, and it's one of the issues with Persona 4 is that it feels like Persona 4 is about to have that, and then it has, like, a whole other dungeon and boss fight out of nowhere where it's like, well, fuck. <laughs> like, and then it just ends after you do that. And the epilogue they had in Persona 4 The Golden doesn't serve as that at all. And, but in Persona 5, it's like you've beat the boss on christmas eve basically and then you have like this whole stretch of time that like you you know you don't go back to normal gameplay but like you go from christmas eve to then spending christmas to then having like like you know i think like december 26th like there's like a lot of cutscene stuff there and then it starts skipping to new year's eve and then like you get all these little scenes with all these other characters and stuff that will impact like how they're doing all that but you have like a good like hour and a half basically of like story and like little tiny things that happen from you defeating the last boss to the end credits rolling and then to the the last scene so I've always I really loved that the first time I played it loved it even more the second time but like the first time I went through the game with like at the when it hit credits I had this distinct feeling of like is that it like because it feels like like it's a good like sort of like i like the sort of larger framework of the ending but at first i was like it, but this feels like it's too soft of an ending it's like it just sort of like stops and but then after you get all the way through the credits and it has that ending credit scene there's like the after credit scene it's like okay that's the ending like that's like you need that moment and specifically it's the the pra- protagonist coming out of the top of the the uh, van looking forward and then he looks into the camera for like a solid three seconds basically and that's the end of the game and it's like there's something about that acknowledgement of like you looking at the protagonist and the protagonist looking at you and this like recognition that happens there it's something that you know mild spoiler but it's not a big deal like it's something that for witcher 3 uh blood wine that dlc the ending of that dlc has a tiny moment that is a lot like that where geralt very mildly for a brief second like breaks the fourth wall and like looks into the camera and acknowledges the player and has a little smirk and it's like kind of almost the exact same thing they do in persona 5 and that moment is like really did so much for the ending and left me like oh like and it wasn't like i had everything figured out but it felt like that like just gave me what i needed but it's not like You know it's not a big sort of dramatic moment like the conclusion of Persona 3 that is played quiet but like what is happening in that scene is like so intensely tragic. But Persona 3 moves like a freight train.
0: I mean it's one of the amazing things about Persona 3 and actually as much as I love Persona 5 and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Perfect ending. But it did make me even respect Persona 3's ending more of just like they crammed in so much to Persona 3. And that game does kind of have that quality where after you beat the boss you do have those last days at school. But even then it's all so of a piece. Yeah. That game just from the time you go into Tartarus the last time it is a fucking freight train and it ends with such precision. It really is amazing. But Persona 5 is kind of going for something even more kind of thematically complex in a lot of ways because it's harder to pinpoint and that they ultimately get to that same kind of point is amazing to me.
1: Yeah and it's just that sort of realization of also like because when he stares into the camera that was the moment where I realized he's not wearing his fucking glasses and like there's like which is something like a bit of symbolism they use in Persona 4 obviously because that's like the whole you know you need the glasses to see through the fog and then at the end of Persona 4 a very good and like last boss fight in cutscene that is put to fucking unbelievable shame by the end cutscene of the last boss fight for Persona 5 the way that fight ends in Persona five is so fucking good but at the end of persona four you know he takes off his glasses and throws them to the side which is a really good moment in that game of like just symbolically saying like no fuck you i don't need these anymore because i can just see through the fog yeah. but here like like i like they just call out that very subtly and it's something that i feel like it's like that's one of the reasons why he stares at the camera is very specifically to get you to notice his eyes because you're staring right at his eyes and be like oh he's not wearing his glasses like he doesn't like, you know, t- sort of borrowing that metaphor, as this game, like, borrows a lot of specific elements from all of its predecessors in the Persona franchise, which, is, like, wears on its sleeve up front with, like, the 20th anniversary logo that goes through all the games. Like, especially if you, you know, have played all the Persona games or even just some of them, I feel like this game is very specifically wants you to think about how it exists in relation with those games. Oh, absolutely. And so it's, like, it's borrowing some of that symbolism, which I I like a lot, but it's also just, like... I, I love, like, the musical note it ends on that it brings back up the original theme, the opening theme song, Wake Up, Get Up, Get Out There. And then, like, it has, like, the fin, like, pops up at the very end. And then you get the... Uh, In a
0: game with this much French, you have to end with Finn. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then it has the little trophy pop-up that, like, is... I love the trophy um, screenshot is his, like, head, like, staring out of the top of the, the van, which is also... It's just, like, a really good image. And there's just something about that, like you said, of the sort of the tonal flip this of it, of the beginning of Persona 5, or, like, the beginning of Persona 5 after the Inmedus Rest stuff is, like, so cold, so harsh, so lonely. And this is, like, the warmest any of these games have ever felt. And this is, like, a franchise where, like, Persona 4 is, like, one of the warmest feeling games I've ever played of just, like... The game is so comfortable, like the sense of friendship in Persona 4 is so, just, it feels like, you know, when you go back to Inaba and, like, in playing Persona 4 again, it feels like you're going home because that's, like, the the sensation they try to build there.
0: Because Persona 4, that's the status quo, is
1: warmth. It's,
0: you know, and that game has a very specific, and this is common in Japanese literature and stuff uh, and and media, of a theme about the countryside as a pure, more natural place where warmth is the status quo and friendship is not hard fought. But this is about the city and it's about you know modern life in a way where it is making a statement that these things are not automatic they are hard to fight for and hard to keep a hold of
1: yeah and i just i love the progression of the endings of the persona team games where at the end of persona 3 the main character dies at the end of persona 4 the main character goes home alone at the end of Persona 5, the main character goes, like, is quote-unquote going home but is really going on a road trip with all of the friends he's made. And there's something about that progression of, like, getting to this point where it's, like, not only has the protagonist won, but he's, he gets to keep what he has won. That feels, like, so powerful. And, like, and the fact that it feels so earned. Like, yes. it's just, like, yes. Like, even more so than the protagonist of Persona 3, Persona 4. Like, this dude needed to fucking fight everything like he had to fight society he had to fight his parents he had to fight you know like like his peers in a catchy and he had to fight fucking god in a way that felt like what is to me the by far the best even though i i generally like how persona 3 does it i still think like this is the best version of the supernatural giant ridiculous shit at the end of these games because it feels the most justified and makes the most sense of like you know like Fuck you, like, God, because it's, like, we've been, like, every we've, like, the whole process of the game is you going up the ring of all the rungs of the ladder of, like, your teachers and, like, you know, your mentors and, like, you know, like, all this stuff. Like your family members that are abusive to, to like the dude who's going to be prime minister like who's above that like god and like when we're going to defy that to the very end and having your like last sort of wakened persona basically being lucifer like like who's the last you know the great trickster of all of the history of like the like biblical history like that progression is so beautiful and earned and makes so much sense and it it's such a like it feels so satisfying for this franchise to finally like I think 100% perfectly execute on that aspect of it that has always been something that like they've done kind of well in some places but it's always felt like not you didn't quite 100% justify maybe the full scale of what you're doing here like none of this maybe not 100% of this makes sense here I felt like yes this all makes sense it all works it all fits 100% thematically with everything you've been doing it is like feels like the only way this could end is going in that like whole direction of like breaking out the ceiling and going like as weirdly abstract as it does at the end because that is like the last boundary you have to sort of break out and sort of being able to commit to your own bath path is that last boundary of like the thing that's like inside of you that's like deep deep inside of you the way it's like deep deep in mementos that prison of the velvet room like that's what you have to break out of and that's what is like the spiritual element that they break out at the end a couple
0: of things one, I, I would stand up for the ending of Persona
1: 3 and I like I, God I, stuff I, there, like again no, it's I, the it's, same thing with Persona 4 like it is you know amazing but when you're comparing it with like these are like three of the best games ever made one, some, one of them has to be a little bit better at that stuff than the others
0: no sure I just I would put Persona 3 roughly on the same par with it's God stuff but I agree like I, I love how Persona Five does it, and you're right. I mean, I I I've seen some criticisms of this game of like the god stuff comes out of nowhere. Fuck you, they build to it so precisely in this game yeah. and I was kind of amazed at how well they 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 lay the groundwork for it getting up to that point because look, that's being laid from the first moment you meet Igor in this yeah. game. And I think, you know, we didn't I you could tell something was up with Igor, right? You know? Yes. It's it's something that is hinted at and things like that. So anyway, I, I think they do that perfectly here. But um Oh man, I had a couple things I was gonna say now. I've forgot forgotten. But no no, here's what I was gonna say. It goes back to the very first piece of key art we ever got for Persona 5 mm-hmm. back in, I think twenty thirteen or something when this game was officially announced and they had that little trailer which was all the um like ball and chains tied to the school chairs yeah. and it said, You are slave, want emancipation. Yeah. That is the theme of the game. That yeah. is the idea of going from a state of being kind of enslaved to the system and to your own senses of limitations to genuine freedom which is internal it's about an internal battle and you know i think that's where this game thematically is just so amazingly on point is everything in it is about that internal strife where it's an expressionistic game it is about taking the things that are going on inside this main character and inside of society and making them externalized through the aesthetics Through the narrative, through everything that happens, uh, until
1: they kind of fuse at the end, and you know, yeah. And to me, that's the most important thing about the ending of the game is you have that like unbelievable scene where like Morgana's floating away and gives his last speech. Tears, like yeah, like oh my god, there is no such thing as the real world. The real world is made by your perceptions and your relationships with the people around you, and like gives that speech as he fades away, and then like you know, mementos and the quote unquote real world is fused because they were like never meant to be separated in the first place because like, the subconscious world is the conscious world and vice versa. That's sort of, like, one of the sort of, like, philosophical points that it takes from, you know, Freud and Jung and stuff like that. And, but, like, going from that point then to, like, you know, the ending of the game, you have, like, a good hour or whatever it is of time in the world where, like, they have lost their powers and there's no more of the supernatural shit going on. It's just the normal world. And I love the sense of, like, one... Like you know You don't pop out Of like having Defeated the boss And like you know Stolen the treasure Of mementos The holy grail Or whatever And like all of a sudden The real world Or whatever Is a paradise And it's perfect And it's like no Like I love The the, the storytelling device Of the The fandom website uh, Like Uh, Question thing is like You know it goes to 100% When you beat the boss And all that stuff And then it falls to like 60% kind of When you go back to the world So it's like You know Like more than half the people Kind of believe the fantasies existed It's like oh that's kind of cool And then it falls to like 48% And that's where it sits For the rest of the game That's not like you you didn't like change the world in like a way that you can like feel the impact that's like it's not a paradise and you also no longer have the ability to just like manipulate people subconsciously because also hey maybe you having that ability was kind of fucked up in the first place and maybe the shit you did to the villains in the game also kind of fucked up when you really think about it And I like that they have this whole long section of them having to sort of live a little bit in that world that like is, you know, that they have not, they're, they're not like superheroes. They have not, you know, they're not glorified as the saviors of the earth. Everything isn't perfect. Like there are still train accidents, like, you know, like bad people still exist and bad things still happen. But you now have, you know, all these characters now equipped with like the fortitude To be able to live in that world and affect change in that world the way that we can affect change in the world we live in. And that's what they accomplish by having, you know, all the different characters sort of have to petition and work their asses off to get the main character out of jail. Like, as a grassroots movement. Like, that progression, I think, is one of the things that makes the supernatural stuff feel as justified as it is. Because it doesn't just lose its, like, you know, it doesn't put its head completely up its ass in the supernatural elements and, and just sort of, like, leave it there and feel like, oh, like... I kind of see what you're going for but it's so fucking broad and like weird and it feels like you know like the end of Persona 4 the philosophical stuff there feels like I kind of don't really see how you're going to try to mesh this back onto the real world all the way like I get all the philosophical arguments you're making but they don't feel like they fully like relate to the existence anybody actually lives in whereas here they're like no like this is we're going back to the real world and this is how these characters can and do live in this world and like are able to be the kind of people they were as a Phantom Thieves but in the world that we all exist in. I think that's really important. It's so important. I mean I did definitely think
0: about that because there's a lot of mirrors to the end of Persona 4 here where they go up against a god and tell it to shut the fuck up. Yeah. And that is a extremely common anime trope. Yeah. We've all seen it a million times. Oftentimes it feels off in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think Persona 4 is one of those examples where... Uh, yeah, you're right. It's just it's so broad and detached that when it comes time for the investigation team to, you know, throw down with a god, nothing kind of meshes there and it feels like what do you really have to say again? You've done a lot of cool stuff, investigation yeah. team, but you know, how do you actually justify all this and it never really can tie back into the exact nature of the real world. But here, by the time they are up at the top of that tower and they are throwing down with Yaldabaoth or whatever yeah. its name is and and all of that, they have earned the right to say those things. And when the dust settles, they continue earning it. Yeah. And that is really, 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 really important because this is a game about literally changing the world. But its ultimate point is you can't just change the world mystically with all this. It's that it's that it, Mystically it's hard work and in the real world it's hard work. And yeah. I love that, you know, where, why do the months pass in this game at the end? It's because you're in juvie. Yeah. And you've had to sacrifice yourself for that and your friends are out there fighting tooth and nail to get you back
1: yeah yeah it's something that it reminds me of the, the um, you know, people who listen to the podcast if you've been listening for like the past couple of months know that i have become a big gundam fan and there's like a interesting thing that happens and there's this one gundam series from like the turn of the century called gundam Seed that is really good and an interesting like update of the series and then they made a sequel show of that called Seed destiny that is like probably the worst gundam show there is and one of the reasons why it feels like that is at the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Seed, as at the end of most Mobile Suit Gundam series, like, there's a giant massive conflict because, it's just, you know, it's a franchise built on war stories. And so it's there's like, two sides fighting against each other. In Gundam Seed, like, the main characters all sort of create a third party that's trying to just end the war It not fighting for any specific side because they find the ideologies of both are bad and they're just fighting to, like, create a peace. And at the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Seed, they succeed and the story's over. It's like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And then they, it was so successful they had to make a sequel. And one of the reasons why the sequel is as fucking annoying and bad as it is is you like it cuts to like five years later or whatever and you find out that like the ceasefire between the two factions has been kind of standing but obviously it starts to dissolve and and conflict sparks up again and one of the reasons why conflict starts up again and one of the reasons why it's so annoying is because all the main characters from mobile suit gundam seed you find out have been doing nothing in the interim and have left up basically everything to like both sides to just sort of like exist with the ceasefire and literally the main character and his love interest are like living in some like backwater fuck-off nowhere place like like raising orphans and it's like you fucking assholes like this that's not the point is not you win the battle and then it's over the point is what happens after the battle is you have to work hard you have to like work hard to keep that peace and to like make it so that the change you have affected is a lasting change and like that is it's something that like that show never addresses and it's so insane that like like they make all the, the original characters Utterly hateable because they ruined everything they, they worked so hard to gain, and that's one of the things that like Persona Five I think accomplishes that so well. Of like, yes, you, you won the battle, but that's not what's that's not the end because it never ends. It's never just done. Like when the credits roll, it's not just over. Like all this work has to be done with the fallout of the story, and that's where you know the denouement moth structurally comes in. And here you get that in. We are going to have to fight hard to keep the change that we have made in the system. You know, like Sai, Makoto's older sister, like she's going to have to fight hard now becoming a defense lawyer to keep that change a thing. Like all of your confidants are going to have to fight hard to like, make sure that justice is upheld and the society is the society you want. And you get that sense at the end of the story because you have seen them fight that way, like with this grassroots political movement to get you free. You know that like after the credits roll and after that end, in- Cut scene, you know these characters are keeping going to fighting for that stuff because they've shown that that's what these characters know to do. And that's, that's the
0: social level, but there's also this, you know, personal, interpersonal level yeah. of just just fighting to have that personal freedom of making those decisions whatever they are. You know, and I think, and I love that this game very much sees those two things as they are in real life, very interconnected. That you can't separate the political from the personal, or the social from the personal. These are all of a piece of one another. And you know, that protagonist looking out upon the sea and everything that stands in for every individual playing the game and the society the game exists and has entered into. You know, and and that sense of a new dawn and the idea of having the freedom to make mistakes, to do the right thing, whatever that might be. And that being the gift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's something also about the message at the end of like the political side of it that I feel like is so smart and ties so perfectly into the like core persona themes about like bonds that exist between people is that I feel like the one of like the main political message that the game has is like yes you know the youth feel disenfranchised in like democracies like that's absolutely true now it's probably been true for a very long time if not maybe forever for every democratic society that existed that's like sure i can make a vote but like even in a country of japan that is has a relatively smaller population than america even then you know your vote is like one of one out of a million or whatever which is a number that's so statistically small in most circumstances you wouldn't really acknowledge a like you know one one millionth of a number as actually really being a thing. You just call it zero because it's so nothing. And it's something that like anybody living in a democracy has to sort of grasp and like understand that and sort of deal with that concept. And when you're first sort of becoming politically aware, I think it's like very easy to become completely sort of disenfranchised by that feeling and disempowered by that feeling and choose to sort of ignore politics. One of the reasons I think is probably the core reason why most young people just don't vote because they don't feel that they have any sort of agency in the political system and I like the thing that Persona 4 sort of puts there is Persona 5 or, yeah Persona 5 sorry what it puts out there is hey like yes that maybe kind of is true in a way on an individual level but like democracies aren't Actually built on an individual level... Because no, no one man is an island... No person exists on their own... Like these systems... And like society is built... By the connections that exist... And the bonds that exist between people... And what you need to do to have power in that system... Is to have those bonds in that system... And it's like what you do... As soon as you get into Tokyo... And you have nothing... Is you start making those connections with people that are all over the place. All from people of all different kinds like walks of life. And you help them and they help you. It's one of the things about the Confidant system I love. Is that you get just as much out of like helping people in terms of like mechanical benefit. As in a narrative sense they gain from you like helping them through their issues with your fandom thief powers. And you create this whole group of people that the game keeps on bringing up at the end of like, you keep on seeing all your confidants in all these different scenes and they're doing all the, this stuff and they're all working towards similar goals. At the end, you see the full fruit of what you have accomplished is that you have enough of this like sort of power base of people that are connected through this common cause, which is you to help you get out of prison. And like you've created this whole grassroots political movement just through the connections and bonds you've made with the people you've connected through your journey in the game. And that to me is such a like powerful, uplifting Message of the game That is something that I also feel like In this political moment in America Feels like especially true oh. When you see like how hard people Like like the ACLU are fighting Like against Trump And how like how desperately we need things Like the Science March And like the Women's March To like we To fight against that sort of like power base And to express what we What we believe in and what we have And it's like it all starts with like you know, you and one other person, and then one other person, and one other person, and creating that group of like, it, like-minded like individual individuals all motivated towards a similar goal.
0: You know, we've talked so much about how this is culturally such a Japanese game. It is so engaged with modern Japanese issues, but boy could it not be any more relevant to the current American political situation yeah. because... One of the most, you know, we're we're recording this on the 101st day of Donald Trump's presidency, but because we passed that 100th day marker, which is, you know, stupid, but it is something all presidents are judged by, so it's worth talking about that reflection period. The most fascinating thing about the 100 day marker, these first 100 days of the Donald Trump presidency, is how healthy democracy is in a lot of ways, in ways that I think despairingly we thought might not happen. And you know, while I'm never going to claim that Trump should be president or anything, if we would be much better off as a world if if Hillary Clinton had won, all yeah. these things. However, there is an upside, weirdly, to this horrible monster winning the presidency in that I think it has reconnected American people, I certainly feel this way, with the core tenets of what we are as a society and yeah. what democracy means. And you're talking about like the confidant system and all that, that's exactly the lesson I think we have been relearning through the first hundred days of this presidency, like Beating the trump care initiative and stuff like that which is that if people come together and they voice their viewpoints and they put pressure on elected officials things will you know go the right way and they have so far and. We're not that far into the presidency, but that enough good things have happened and that uh, as few bad things have is so amazing. And it is inspiring on some level. And, you know, I do think there's, there's a very good possibility that as long as he doesn't nuke anybody, we could come out of this a healthier democracy. Because we might have had to purge that from our system, and there is something I think that all the Persona games share, but this one does too, of that the idea that the you know the night is darkest just before the dawn, that kind of thing. Sure. Of that you kind of have to go through a ringer to find out what's important in life, and that's something this game very much sees. in that you know you wouldn't get whatever comes after Shido without having the horror of Shido, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And so definitely, you're constantly playing Persona Five in this American context the modern american context and, and making those connections and feeling like yeah this game has its finger on the pulse not just of japan but of kind of the
1: world right now yeah because it is it is definitely in communication with like this larger global movement that is an anti-global movement that is like a fascist movement that is a nationalist movement that's something that like japan is experiencing it's something that like you know that Shin is very much is a movie that is about that that we talked a lot about that on that podcast and it's something that, you know, Persona 5 definitely is like taking a lot of very specific Japanese tax towards that argument, but it is an argument that is happening, and it's on a scale that's mar- much bigger than Japan alone, and it's one of the reasons why... I think this game is an important game to play right now because it is engaged with that conversation, but it's also engaged with that conversation from a like from for us from an offset perspective because it's from a different a very different culture that's going yeah. through some different specifics than like you know Trump because Shido is very similar to Trump but he is not a one to one he's much less cartoonish <laughs> yeah. That's the thing I kept
0: seeing, is that every, like, Trump stand-in you can identify in this game, and I would say both Shido and uh, Okamura, to a certain degree, both remind me of Trump, and of that kind of figure that we're seeing all over the world right now. Um, But, like, he can put a sentence together you know yeah he doesn't want to fuck his daughter like you things can, like
1: that yeah, you can kind of see how people would be maybe would be able to buy the shit he's spewing because he's mildly convincing he's even good. if the shit he says is awful
0: why shido is a good villain is he's genuinely good at what he does yeah he's not a good person but he's talented yeah <laughs> which we don't have in our current evil
1: president yeah he's just a fucking dumbass yeah but but yeah. a dumbass
0: with the nuclear codes
1: so I think, I think we should then take this opportunity now to like talk about the Shido section of the sure, game. Sure. Because as you said earlier, we, we, even though you had finished the 7th the Palace, the Shido Palace... We didn't want to talk about that because there's more than enough stuff in this game to talk about... than To try to wrap that into the five and six Palace discussion. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, here's an interesting thing
1: I wanted to say. Uh,
0: okay. I love the Shido section of the game. I want yeah. to say that up front. So much good stuff we'll get into. I was worried about one thing while I played that section. And the ending while we're just on this topic, the ending rectifies it so well. Not done rectify it, but it's just you realize the game was aware of this uh-huh. in that once you get deep into the Shido stuff, it almost seems like the game is implying that Shido is the source of all evil. Uh-huh. Like that, oh, the other people were paying Shido and Shido is the guy who did this, this, and this and everything ties to Shido and if we can just take him down, everything will be okay. And for a while I was like, this could very well be what ultimately happens, which is the game is telling you that but is lying. Yeah. As it should be or does the game actually believe it? Like do the characters believe it or does the game believe it? Right. That's the question. And Persona all of the Persona games are very good at that gap between what do the characters believe and what is the, the the theme of the game? And that often is a gap and I think some people have, you know, often in media have trouble seeing that gap, but it's an important gap to yeah. see. And I was worried just because this is a game about societal ills and if you wrap it all up in one figure That's always a bad thing to do, I think, in these kinds of stories, because it winds up being about, oh, if we take this one guy down, we'll be okay. And that's not true, and that's actually also the case with Trump right now. Even if we impeach Trump, all the problems that got Trump elected still absolutely exist, and we have to be cognizant of that, right?
1: Yeah, it's like the same thing of, like, the time travel, like, go back in time and kill baby Hitler doesn't mean that the Nazi Party doesn't exist, you know? Like, maybe, like, it would have been slightly better, maybe the National Socialist Party wouldn't have been able to gain like main traction in germany and take control of the election but like those feelings and like the fascistic movement would have still existed and been very powerful whether hitler was there to sort of spark that fire or not exactly so when you're taking an institutionalized look
0: at things you have to realize it's about the institution not the person and for a while there the the the, the story and where the characters are going really puts all its chips on Sheeto of like he is the root of all this evil Yeah
1: as you're going through the dungeon you're Like encountering all these different figures that Are like different people that have been working for him That you realize like oh this is the dude that's Been behind all the hacking incidents like this Is a dude who's been like running the organized crime And just funneling money to him and it's like all These different things you've been hearing about different sort of crimes And things happening in the city you realize Oh like it is all this sort of like Vast network of different powerful individuals Manipulating things and it seems like Because you're going through Shido's palace at the core Is Shido and they're all trying to like prop him up to be prime minister so that they have full control of the government
0: yeah and so i was really enjoying this section of the game stylish as hell lots of cool stuff happens but in the back of my mind i was like i hope there's more to this because that's not what this game is about and that would be i think a fundamental misreading of the game's own themes yeah and of course you should always trust the persona team they know what they're doing because as soon as you get out of that palace and shido makes his confession the game very much takes a very hard very intentional turn into they were wrong. Shido is a source of evil, but he is not the source, yeah. and there is so much more to it, and you cannot fix it by taking down one guy. You cannot take it fix it by taking down a hundred guys. There is so much more to this issue, and that is the thing that protagonists ultimately have to grapple with. So in context, I think all the Shido stuff is brilliant, but it's kind of like what we talked about with the uh, Okamura section, where or, or other sections of the game, where... Um, the game or uh, the catchy section i wanted to say right, yeah. of like is it catchy good is it catchy bad all these different things where um it's keeping you on your toes where it is keeping you in thematic conversation with the game and making you ask is this going in the right direction is it not and it wants you to be asking those questions and i think it's just something i wanted to mention about the shido section because in context i think it's so smart for making you ask yeah. those questions
1: yeah i'm glad you brought that up because that is definitely something i felt the first time i was playing the game that i had forgotten i had felt as i was going through the second time because i knew obviously that you know you get that scene it's like a really good scene after shido's made his confession where it's like all the other people like who have been working behind the scenes with him standing there and being like oh what the fuck do we do it's like well like we can still like we still have all this research we still have all this stuff we'll just need another figurehead and it's like oh yeah fuck of course like of course Like just because you took down Shido doesn't mean you've taken down every other asshole that's been working with him. That's the whole thing you've learned through his palace is like on the one hand like the first time you're going through you think the thing you're learning through the palace is that Shido is this brilliant criminal mastermind that is controlling everything in a Moriarty-esque way. What you're actually learning is you're not learning that he is the spider that has woven the web. You're learning that like the web has existed. He's just like a person who's taking advantage of it. But the web already existed. He didn't build it. He's not in control of it. It's been there the whole time. That's the actual lesson of his dungeon that you only know after you've taken care of him.
0: Which, again, that's, like, maybe the strongest connection point to a Donald Trump. Yeah. Of this guy who is the the product of all these things, but by no way the builder of all these
1: things. Exactly, yeah. Like, he was propelled there by forces way beyond his specific control. Or comprehension. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, I
0: mean, it's it's really smart because there's this whole pace to the Shido section that is so propulsive where it... It's building to a false climax, and it's not like the, the mini, mini false climaxes of Persona 4, yeah. where it has kind of ending upon ending upon ending. It's very consciously, we're going to build to a climax that's going to feel unsatisfying, because you have, you know, that's where you get the Rivers and the Desert song, yeah. and just this giant boss fight, and so many amazing things happen, and then it's over, and you're like, wait, what? Is that it? And And you're asking it, the characters are asking it, the game is wanting you to ask it, and then it kicks into the actual conclusion. And it is such a smart use of our own senses of how narratives go and how narratives are built. And that, frankly, a lot of stories that are similarly intelligent take the easy way out and have a Shido at the end, even though they shouldn't, you know? And, And Persona 5, because of its length and its, you know game nature has the ability to ask the hard questions
1: yeah and it's and it's one of the things it's one of the many things that i like about having mementos in the game is yes. that you know that there has to be more like you know that shido is not the end of it because like you know there has to be some specific resolution to the memento side of the game that like seems like it's always in the distant future because you have no have you don't have any specific framework for how that thing is going to end and that's one of the things that makes it so like I think that's one of the things that as you're going through the Shido palace it makes it easier to give the game the benefit of the doubt because you know that this isn't the very end you know right it's like it's almost like when you're reading a book and you know like because you're physically holding a book oh right there's like 50 more pages after this obviously or like or like in the instance of Lord of the Rings like there's like 200 more pages obviously when they throw the ring into the fire like the story is not just over there's so much more and that knowledge in and of itself is really important in how you consume a story absolutely um so yeah,
0: let's talk about the Shido section. Yeah, I mean, okay, so you, we, we basically wrapped up last week with all the stuff falling out of the twist yeah. with uh, where you catch up to the present-day stuff, the
1: flash-forward devices. Yeah, you find out Akechi is a real asshole. He sh- shoots you sh- in the head, but did he really? know? because you're really smart. <laughs> you're really smart. I said this on Twitter,
0: and I totally believe it. If the Persona 5 cast went to Inaba at the same time you Narukami did they would solve that mystery in a week flat yeah they are so smart they are so capable that would like oh. Persona 4 would be a much shorter game
1: that's I, they need to make like get the animation team to just make a cutscene of it's like the same like it's sort of like cutscene stuff of the beginning of Persona 4 but it's the Persona 5 main character and when he gets to the gas station he's shaking the gas station dude's head and there's just like the, or hand and you this reverse shot of just like close up on the main character's face and he just gives a smirk and goes hmm and you know he fucking knows and it's like maybe it's like the whole game is the exact same but the entire time you know that he knows and he's like building this whole elaborate plan in the background because from the fucking second one he knows what's actually going on
0: oh absolutely there would be a huge heist movie twist halfway through the game or something like that yeah i mean because it is i mean it's worth noting like not everyone on the persona 5 cast is But they're all really smart. Like even Ryuji, who's sort of like the punk of the group, he's a really smart dude. He doesn't he's not like book smart. But he gets what's going on. Like, compare him to Yosuke. Ryuji, I don't think, would be sold in by the the copycat killer thing. Yeah. You know, in Persona 4. Like, it's
1: just it's fun to compare. Like, the Persona 5 team is so ludicrously capable. Yeah, they're, they're like, insanely effective at what they do. Which is one of the things I love so much about them is because they need to be for the structure of the plot. Because they are so proactive in the plot of the game. But it's, like, it is fun to think about, like man yeah they would have the inaba shit like just salt immediately like makoto would just like look at it and be like yeah of course obviously it's this dude like of course (laughs) no shit young detective my ass indeed it's kind
0: of like having a whole team made of naotos yeah no i would actually if they ever do their persona 5 spinoff i want naoto and makoto to get in a room together and realize they probably love each
1: other i mean i mean that's like my like ideal fan spin-off is like naoto has to like try to track down and catch the fandom thieves like that just like <laughs> would be so brilliant like of like a spin-off novel or something indeed she's she's a better detective than a catchy yeah. he's really just a dick no
0: but um there, but there's more to a catchy which we'll talk yeah. about but anyway when well, you get through all the twist stuff and then it starts building up again where it's like well what do we do next how do we turn we've turned the tables effectively This guy's dead. All of that. What do we do next? It's we're going to go after the source of this. They realize it's Shido. The main character realizes... Oh, Shido's the one who fucked me over. Yeah. Which you as the player... I mean, I assume... You were the same way. Been aware of it from the moment you saw him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in fact, to the degree where early in the game, before I kind of realized what the larger structure of the game was going to be, I thought Shido was going to be your second target. Because you meet him at the restaurant while you're looking for a target. And I'm like, oh, that's the guy who did that. Maybe that's the next thing you do. And and I didn't realize the game had much grander plans for Mr. Shido than that. But uh, it did. So anyway, you get to that. You're going to go after Shido. It's really tough to figure out his palace. And when you figure out what his palace is, that it is... The Ship of Japan. Yeah. That is an amazing reveal. And the music on the arc It's called "Arc" on the soundtrack. Yeah. Which is just... It is... What I think of it as is the getting fucking pumped song. Yeah. Of like, we have gotten here. This is the bad guy. We are going to fuck him up. And this guitar lick is telling me that. Yeah. It yeah. really does an effective job at that.
1: Yeah. It's a very, very good dungeon music. And yeah, I loved that reveal of... It's just... The whole time you're thinking, like, like, there's got to be something fucking crazy. Because, you know, the, a lot of the dungeons have been, like, kind of going up in scale as you go through it. To, like, this just being this giant fucking casino in the middle of Japan. And then now... So you're like, well, what is it? What is it? What is it going to be? And then it's at first it's like, oh, it's just the National Diet Building or whatever. It's just, you know, it's basically Congress. And then you feel realize, oh, it's Congress on a giant ship. Like, sailing through a, like, sunken Japan. And I feel like it's another area where... The game has done such a good job up to this point of, like, the sort of hammering home all the rules of the supernatural stuff. That when you see that, when you see Japan, you know, flooded, you know instinctively what that means and what that represents. Because you've been through this enough times and you understand enough about how the, the subconscious world works. That's like, okay, like, this means this dude is, like bad on a scale we have really not dealt with up till now like because of his his distorted desire or whatever encompasses the entire country it's not just you know this one building it's 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 way more than that uh, yeah i mean I get another connection to trump it's the narcissism thing of yeah. this guy
0: literally his only way of seeing the world is as his ship he sails through yeah and it's all sunken and everything else is fucked but he and his rich friends are okay because they're on the boat together yeah and, you know, it obviously recalls Titanic and things like that of, like, a ship's going to sink one day, Yeah, jackass. But, yeah, no, I mean, let's talk about that palace. Because I think that palace is really interesting to me. Yeah, me too. It's very different than the other I mean, they're all different, I guess. But you finally get to... They kind of keep bringing in more and more, like, people into the palaces until the, fifth, they're this, the seventh palace is sort of all populated like there's people everywhere it's a ship there's all like you're very you're in some back rooms and stuff but most of you are just in the the customer hallways and stuff and talking to the people and there are shadows just kind of intermingled yeah and you do a lot of fighting but it doesn't feel like kind of the main thrust of everything because so much of what you're doing is going around talking to people getting information moving on with the story it's really interesting and i i just i there's so many of them is this the one with the mice Yes. Yes, this one by Right. And so that is where you get the puzzle thing is, you know, Shido is so narcissistic. He views you all as mice. And so there's specific puzzles where you have to, like, turn into mice and stuff like that. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But I still think the most striking thing about that palace is how much of it is just your intermit, like the shadows and the people and the dialogue are all intermingled together and there's no clear boundaries between them.
1: yeah and, and it's something that i love the dungeon sets up like the first time you go in is like the scouting run before you can really tackle the dungeon and it sets up at the end of that like okay we need to go track down like these five people there are these five people in the dungeon it's like you know this tech dude blah blah, blah like all these people and then you leave and then you come back and you know okay like you have a clear objective of what you are trying to do and it's like this because this is the longest dungeon in the game and so it's like it has these staged objectives that sort of mark your progress through it that also means you're doing a lot of different stuff through the dungeon and one thing I like is that like you will sort of like you know go through an area sort of like find the person that sort of controls that area take care of them like get a little story scene because there's also a lot of story scenes in this dungeon that revolves around all those and take care of that and then move on to the next bit and like connecting each of the bits are those like big hallway sections where the mice thing comes into play so it's like you're doing one of those puzzles with the mice thing and then you go to a, like another section that like is a little bit different that is revolved around like the swimming pool or whatever and then you go back and do a more complicated version of the mice one and like the structure of it i think is very like deliberate and interesting especially i like could i think appreciate a bit more my second time through of like okay yeah like this is really different than any of the other dungeons in how like it is paced and structured and that it like by the end of it you know you have the i really love the like grid room with like all the different mice the, like holes and stuff that's like the mice puzzles boiled down to like it's like barest essentials where it's just like basically like nine rooms all assembled assembled in a grid it's like it's a very smart smartly constructed dungeon it is. I I
0: thought it was maybe a little too grindy at points because like there's a there are some portions where like I, I leveled like fifteen levels in this yeah. thing because it's there's a lot of enemies they respawn a lot because you go through doors and stuff and. Yeah. I ultimately enjoyed it very much. it just it is very long i I mean honestly it's because I like binged the fucking thing yeah. and it's like eight hours long, and I did it in like two days, so you know I probably played a little too much of it all at once, but you know and, and I thought ultimately I liked the way they laid it out. My initial instinct was, oh, is this going to be kind of like breath of the wild esque where you have five things to get, and you can kind of do them in any order it's not ultimately no. like that. And I think it's okay. I, I think there could be a version of it that was maybe a little less linear that could have been interesting. But I like the way they did it, and then, as you say, it keeps kind of varying. And some of the scenes you get are so great. Some of them are dark, and some of them are so funny. There's the you know, there's the, the each each of the characters kind of gets a big moment in this yeah. area. Like there's the one where all the girls have to get in the bikinis to go talk to the pervert dude. Yeah. And then An has a big moment there. But of course, the best moment on the whole fucking boat is Futaba's scene. Okay, where yeah. she She goes in and she's basically. She's trying to convince the the who is who's her target. I uh, it's
1: the the dude, the hacker dude, right. who's basically like the fake Medjed um, yeah. during the Futaba's palace section,
0: right? And she's basically bragging to him and building herself up and all this stuff. It is one of Futaba's best scenes yeah. in the game,
1: but but it's like one of the things that's really important about those scenes. It it's something that like. Is one of my favorite things about what Persona 5 does with its characters... Versus Persona 4... it's kind of like Persona 3 had, Like it was a bit more similar with Persona 5 in this respect... Is in Persona 4... When you finished your social link with the party member characters... Like their development was basically done... And like that was how that game sort of dealt with its characters... Was you know... You introduce Chie or Yukiko or you know... Naoto, Kanji, whoever... Like in their sort of dungeon... And you take care of their shadow... And you learn something, a problem about them through that... And then through their social link... And that storyline you deal with that problem until you get to the 10th rank where like you sort of like solve that issue or like as much as one can solve any of those issues and then they you know get their like super awakened persona or whatever and then they're kind of done and that's and it's sort of fine for what Persona 4 does because it's kind of like the character cast in Persona 4 is much more sort of cartoonish in in their portrayal and in, in their personalities. And
0: Persona 4 being about internal psychology and in the yeah. way it is, I, I think it's actually one of the smarter moves in that game and how it does it. I, I see where you're going with this though.
1: Yeah. But I in Persona 5, you the way it sort of builds the character development is kind of tiered That where like in Persona Three, it is much more about like the characters developed through the main story because not every single, especially in like the original version of the game, not all the party members have different social links. It's only the female ones, and even then, their their social links do not necessarily. Resolve their core issues Like it sort of like helps some of like their core issues But it's not like the same thing as the Persona 4 social links so in Persona 3 It's like their character development is almost entirely Through the main story with like little like Sort of additional elements through The social link because you know it's like in Persona 3 You have the social link with um, Yukari that where you kind of help her deal with Her dad's death but it's way more Focused on her relationship with her mom And But her relationship with the death of her father Is her main character sort of Turning point, and that is accomplished through a scene with Mitsuru in the main story. And so, all the Persona Three characters awaken to their, their do their second awakenings through events in the main story. And that's how Persona Three set it up. Persona Four was it was made way more social link driven, which worked for that game. Persona Five kind of does both. That you have the you get introduced through any of the characters through a palace section that is focused that is built around a villain, but also sort of relates to a core issue that that character has and then once you resolve that palace they become a party member and then through your social link with them you sort of follow up on the issues that were raised during that palace and kind of bring them to a bit of a conclusion and that's like dealt with through the second awakening happens uh, like with persona 4 through your social link but they continue to also develop through the main story. Because your, your relationship with them in the social link doesn't necessarily take them 100% of the way there. Because something that's really important about all of the characters is how they function in the Phantom Thieves. And their role in the Phantom Thieves is a core part of their identity. And so one of the things that the Shido section does is I think it really brings that approach to a head. And each of the characters through their moments. Like they have to grapple with something that they've been dealing with. That, like, is something they sort of have to deal with in the main plot, but is also something they really have to deal with in their social link. And so with, like, on, it's her... Like, a big part of her storyline is that with um, Kamoshida, her entire life was being with him was sort of... She was being objectified. She's being objectified by everyone at school because she's very attractive and she's exotic because she's a foreigner. And so everyone sort of, like her life is defined on everyone else's terms based on how they see her and she can't really, like, move in that framework and they just kind of put her in that box. And then she's slowly sort of breaking out of that and a lot of that is her sort of, in your social with her, taking her modeling career into her own hands and sort of deciding, you know, like, this is the kind of person I want to be. I want to be successful. I want to pursue this, pursue this seriously. You know, I want to be, like, attractive. I want to be sexy. I want to be sort of, like, commanding. I want to be, like, you know, the villains and superhero shows I watched when I was a kid is basically the line she says and you by the time you get to the Shido palace in her scene here she it's a resolution to that character arc where she now is able to put on a fairly convincing performance like sucker this guy in get what she needs from him by being like attractive foreign and sexy and then dumping him immediately once she gets what she needs which is exactly you know, what the the sort of rival model was doing in her social link arc that she was sort of like anger about, but also very envious of how powerful this woman was compared to her. And she's able to achieve that in this scene in Cheetah's palace. And that to me is like... Probably the most explicit one of those sequences But also like you know Futaba has to deal with her social anxiety Yusuke has to deal with Like his relationship with his art by trying to Do this tattoo and deciding I'm going to like Make this this like beautiful expressionistic Version of a phoenix and it's going to be like What I see this as and that dude accepts it Because that I love I love the Yakuza shadow dude It's really fucking cool And then then you also get um, One thing I love and then Makoto's is obviously She learns to be able to stand up to adults And is able to sort of like you know because her whole arc was how everyone just sort of like tells her what she to do and she just does it because she's the nice kind like calm honor student and in her story arc she gets to stand up to that dude and then yuji one thing i love is that his is basically in the cutscene at the end of the game where he decides like we need someone to go run to this boat yuji's like i'm gonna fucking run to that boat because i'm the track dude even though he broke his leg in the like before the game starts and you have the cutscene, I think it's at the end of the Kamoshita Palace where they're all running away and he trips and falls and can't quite make it and you have to like go back and help him up. And then over the course of your social link with him, you're helping him train to be able to run again like he used to. And that gets resolved in the main story thing. That is something I loved so much about this section of the game was the sense of I think Persona 5 does very well of this feeling of an interconnectedness of all the different parts that, like, you maybe don't see it immediately. But, like, those social links are all coming into a head and, like, are all related to what's going on in the main story. And they're not just sectioned off in their own weird, like, sort of alternate reality part of the game.
0: No, and I think it works, you know, totally fine in Persona 4 because of the pace of that game and the nature of its story. But you're so right in Persona 5... I mean we've talked about this before How interconnected everything in Persona 5 is And kind of how mind-boggling that is Given the scale and scope of the game But I love exactly what you're talking about Which is those echoes of the social links That you know And the Ryuji one is an easy one to talk about But like it's one of the It, it is the first social link you get And you go to the end And it's this really nice little story About Ryuji kind of building up his his Both his body and his kind of soul again After yeah. it was so thoroughly Broken by Kamoshida and the world itself And then then at the end he's able to you know, very selflessly run and use his legs and get that again. And there's that moment even while he's running where he, you know, does that thing he does a lot in where he, like, punches his leg in the area where it hurts to, like, make sure he can make it. And that is such a powerful denouement to his story. Yeah. And it's because you played the Social Link. And the game, I think, very much encourages you and wants you and, and even times the social links in certain ways to make sure you know by the time you get to like that area for instance you've seen your your party members confidants and you've had the chance to do that it very much wants you to see all parts of the game
1: yeah absolutely it's one of the things that the game accomplishes by Mostly separating out The party member social links And the other social links By day and night Like there's a You know Takami and Shinya Obviously also are Day progressed social links But by and large All the social links You progress during the day Are your party member ones And so it feels like There's like a dedicated Part of the game That's like This is you are dealing With your party members here And then at night Is when you're going out And like hanging out At CD bars and shit <laughs> You're doing a lot Of weird stuff at
0: night Yeah yeah North, you are i'm paying a fortune teller 50 bucks every single night so i can get some attribute of yeah <laughs> yeah I uh, god i give the fortune teller a lot of money yeah you know chi was very rich she, by the end of the game very rich and, and worth it she's useful she is very good at what she does she's she is an effective goddamn fortune teller yeah. absolutely um can i talk about that ryuji moment for a moment okay or sure here? yeah both with ryuji and with morgana In the last half of the game There's a big scene Where they either die Or seem to leave the cast Is it a cheat In either case I think it's a question Worth asking Kind of especially In the Ryuji case Because I think in both actually Because Ryuji It's like It's built as The big self-sacrifice moment With Morgana It's the big I mean literally He like fades away Like a fairy in a movie And it's beautiful And tear-jerking And they both come back With Ryuji It's like five minutes later And it's kind of a joke Um, With Ryuji especially it is kind of an anime archetype you've seen that kind of scene before ultimately I think it works but I did notice like they do play that card twice in the final hours of the game yeah.
1: I think one of the reasons, though, why they play the car twice is to set up that Morgana is going to come back. Because I never really believed that Morgana was going to go away. One, because in, like, the philosophical or, like, like supernatural representation of the show or of the game, they establish Morgana represents, like, the hope of humanity. So if Morgana goes away, it kind of doesn't make sense with how they've set him up. Right. But, but I also, I, I do think it's something that, I think because it, it, it was something that the first time I played through the game, I have had that exact same feeling of like, oh, like, that feels like a bit of a cop-out, like, like, you know, because it's like, you know, in Persona 3, when someone died, they fucking died, man, you know, and and so there was something where it's like I kind of was feeling that, but then... I think by the time you get to the end of the game I feel like it's such an intentional thing of the game is sort of you keep on thinking it's going to set up that it has like the big dramatic thing that happens like the huge like Druji dies Morgana disappears it's like the big tragic you know Persona 3 style thing that happens but that's not really what Persona 5 is trying to do with its ending that's why it ends with all of your friends on a car trip with you like staring into the camera like with a smile on your face is that I think it is like trying to undercut That And it's sort of like setting it up and saying like, no, that's not really what we're doing. And something that I didn't really like so much. It's not that I didn't like it. I didn't know how I felt about it the first time. The second time through, I liked it, though.
0: Yeah, and and I didn't know how I felt about it at first. Ultimately, I'm I'm very happy with it because, one, it's just a tonal thing. This is not a game where you could do the final hours as they do them if the specter of Ryuji's violent death was hanging over you. I mean, that's the biggest thing is that... When they did that I felt so sick to my stomach Of like oh my god Did they just kill Ryuji And when he comes back I felt the same way on And everyone else did Of like You, you idiot You asshole, asshole. Yeah. I, I love you Why <laughs> did you do that You know that kind of thing And so I Like my happiness Told me what I felt Which was yeah. happiness and, and I think with Morgana With Morgana It's a whole other thing Which we'll talk about later Which is They do bring Morgana back But there's still a lot unresolved yeah, they, And they leave it unresolved yeah. And that's so intentional Yeah And the number of things that this game suggests and evokes at the end, rather than putting a ribbon on, is really important. And here's the thing about death and storytelling, it puts a ribbon on things. Yeah. Not necessarily for the people who experienced it, before that character arc, death is final. And it's often an easy way out in stories, not the most complex way out, unless you're really going to follow through on, like, the legacy left behind. And Persona 5 is not going in a direction where they can explore that with what would happen to... If Ryuji actually died, which would be this... I mean, it would fundamentally
1: change the arc of the game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, the whole ending of the game would have to be completely different in a way that wouldn't totally make sense. I think As, another, as Persona uh,
0: yeah. 3, when Shinji dies, it
1: fundamentally changes the arc of the game. Yes, it, it's like it needs to happen at yeah. that moment because that is the story that game is telling. With, like, his character, there's no way his character, like, lives past that point. Like, that, I don't even know what that story would look like if he didn't die there.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, that's the comparison I would ultimately make is I think again the game probably wants you to ask the question yeah I don't think the game is unaware that it is intentionally copping out on something
1: yeah I think it also definitely helps that I found both of those scenes very funny I, I think like it's they are very oh, well they're hilarious yeah, they're like really well constructed like the time even though it's a kind of scene I've seen done a billion times the timing on them is really good especially Morgana's because you get the cat portrait for the yes, first you time you get the cat portrait and I just also like like they get a lot of effect out of the bell ringing when the door opens to the coffee shop in a way that almost like by the time you get to the end of the game, basically feels like it's a sitcom. That's like that's something that like sitcoms do all the time. As you hear like the bell or whatever, someone coming into the bar in like Roseanne or something is like, okay, yeah. This I was is, gonna this say here it's here where Kramer's deserve. coming in. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's that sort of thing that they do. Is it's just like okay, yeah. Like I, I, love,
0: I love those little Th- moments. Think piece Morgana as the Kramer of Persona Five. Let's write that think piece. I can fuck you. No okay. No, that's terrible. You know who is obviously the Kramer. Just look at her hair. <laughs> if Persona 5 sold like ten million copies, Polygon would have three different versions of that article already. Right? Yeah. <laughs> let's just let's just admit it. <laughs> Absolutely. No. Um, alright. So backing up a little bit though the ship we talked about all those things with that um, This is also a part of the game where If you're like me you are frantically drawing
1: maps Seeing if you can finish all your social links Right and then Luckily you- I, was, I was well done with my social links at this point I had fucking two and a half weeks Into this, this game of just pure Utter debauchery It was just <laughs> going on dates with like eight different women Going home at night and just playing video games Until I was fucking sick It was amazing It's funny because
0: I had like a half and half Where I had very few social links left so I actually had a majority was free time I just was very stressed about it because I had to hit these specific points yeah. but I had the debauchery too I went on a date with almost every woman yeah. got to play some games got I read actually a bunch of books and stuff like that it is kind of funny the, I love saying it as debauchery because that is what it is basically I went to the bar a lot
1: yeah it's like because it is it's just compared to the intense stress of like it, having to fix all your social links and like keep this in your head of like oh I want to get this parameter up and then I want to get this person. It's like oh what is my best way to spend this day and then when you're just let go of that and be it's like it is something where I was amazed by it. like I had like a basically more than a whole extra week at the end of this game compared to my first time playing it through that's like I couldn't believe that, that that like I could have that much more extra time than the man, how I managed to do it the first time through it, so it was like, holy shit like i have I mean I had practically the entire months of December in the game. Of me having completed Literally every single social link And even like For a couple of weeks before that I had completed most of them So I had like Your scenario where right. You know most days I am kind of kind of Doing whatever But there's still a social link Out there in the back of my mind Where it's like When you have all of them done It's just like I didn't do fucking whatever I can just go fishing I can just go watch movies For no reason Because uh, it's just like I've already ranked everything up I'm just going to go To the batting cage I'm just going to go To this maid cafe Because I almost never Went to the maid cafe I never went to fun. it I've, I can go work out now Like it was just like I could just The world was my oyster because I've never played these fucking games in New Game Plus because I've just never really had the opportunity. It just—it was so beautiful. Just I can do anything here.
0: I uh, I did not discover the Bade Cafe until my charm was
1: all the way up and I was kicking myself because that would have been a good tool to have. Yeah, it's very good. If you use that along with Chihaya's uh, ability, you can get like two in charm and two in something else and it's it's a very good way to level things up. Yeah, I... (laughs) This game in maids it likes its maids. <laughs> you know, Japan
0: likes its maids. I was playing a little uh, Fire Emblem today, and it does have a class that's maids, and it makes it, it's a very different kind of maid in that sure, game. Yeah. But like, I, I saw the maid character who I love, and I, I, I like saw her in a very different light after playing Persona Five. I'm like, yeah. you're the Kawakami of this game, <laughs> and I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, no, um, but yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I think the day that the confession happens is the 19th so the last day effectively is the 18th and that is I finished the Shinya social link on the 18th and like was so fucking happy and uh, then I just just played through the end of the game it was beautiful yeah. but no um, so let's talk about you get to the end of the of the palace and then yeah. it's time to send the calling card
1: That's cutscene when you well, send the cu- well before that we haven't wrapped up oh I this, forgot because okay. yeah, we only talked You're about so the right. first half of Akechi Goro's Story in Persona 5. Here you get, and this is something where the first time I played through this game, I was like, I knew I was basically at the end of the dungeon because you, like, basically what happens is the last dude left is the Yakuza dude and and he's a lot of fun. And you go, and so, like, I knew, okay, like, I'm going to beat that guy and I'm going to save, I'm going to go to bed tonight because it's like 2 in the morning. Like, I've already pushed this past the point of it being reasonable, but it's like, I'm just going to, because I know that's the last dude, I'm going to beat him, save, and I'm going to be done. And then you fight him, you beat him, and it's like, oh, that's great. And then the game immediately, without any opportunity to save, rolls into this whole huge section where Akechi comes in. And it's an awesome part of the game. And it was also like, oh, fuck. It's good. It was, I did go to bed till like 3.45 in the morning. I, it's night. a
0: long, yeah, Like yeah. There's, it's almost like a boss rush. There's so many yeah. stages of all that. Uh, yeah, no, the, the end of the Akechi arc. It is interesting, and that is... Very much the last time You see Akechi They don't even do like Unless I miss something The ghost echo you get With other characters In other games No Yeah
1: Yeah, no He's just He's totally gone
0: Yeah It's uh, really interesting So everything I mean I kind of I I thought the Akechi thing Was coming when I played it because you. I thought it was
1: going to come up At some point But I thought it was going to come up Like after you sent the calling card And went back into the dungeon Okay Then he would show up on that day
0: Okay So yeah the, the, The Akechi scene Big scene in the game Yes Exciting scene Sad and maddening and so many different emotions That come up during the end of the Akechi arc Because you go into that scene Hating him pretty intensely Yeah Fucking douchebag Dude he tried to shoot you in the head Yep and he shows his true colors And he goes full light Yagami at the end of Death Note on you He very much does And again this is I kind of complained about this last week This is where I fully realized I don't think the English performance works totally I don't know if it could Because that is such a Japanese character to do Again you just can hear Japanese light Yagami in that they might have just. I don't even play the Japanese version. They could have cast
1: the same actor for all I know. They don't, but he is definitely pulling from a similar playbook, especially when he sort of, like, cracks at the end.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's, you know, like. He doesn't. He's not just dropping the F word every other word But the fan subbers would totally do that Which exactly, is what I remember yes. from the Death Note fan sub I mean the
1: it's day. the only way you can get across The fact that he's not speaking in Kago or, or polite language anymore is by having it be You literally saying the F word Every other word yeah. It's the only equivalent in English I think that exists No but, uh, but then you do come out the other side Of that I, I don't think
0: it's full on Sympathy I don't think it's full on like You know what he was alright To me it's it's he was a dick and i didn't like that guy but i feel horrible this whole situation ever happened yeah and that's i think a more complex version of that arc that i found really rewarding by the end was not making me renege on like my kind of hatred of a but making me rethink the whole situation in a way that was um very powerful and 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 again makes you reconsider your base assumptions
1: yeah because there was a part of me that was like the first time i played that scene that was like Maybe, like, he does become a party member again. Like, maybe that is a path that is still open. Because, like, it's still... It's something that I think the game does so smart is that you have those two spell pipes that no party member fills up and then a Ketchi fills up and then they take him away from you and you're like... Well, maybe because, like, there's just, like, a, like, weird gameplay completionist side of it that's, like... Well, you're gonna have to have someone who uses
0: those fucking spells at the it, end of it the would game be like, like, the last dungeon. It would be like if in Persona 3 Shinji was the best party member. Yeah. Like, he could just do everything. Or, or it's, something.
1: like, he was the only party member that had, like, fire spells or something. Right. It's like, well, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do? Like, yeah. I, I'm, apparently I have to have a fucking fire persona all the time? Come on. Yeah. Like, it's something where you just... There's something about that where you feel like, you know, each game, like... You know you have a party member that fills all the different roles. It would be like if in Mass Effect you just like had a party member like you had Liara who was your full biotic character. And then she like turned evil and left your party. And you never got another full biotic character. And the whole time you're thinking like this is crazy. Like there's all these spells that I like almost never use that it feels like I should be using because I should have a party member that fills that gap. I think you're right because I did feel
0: the same thing during that catchy scene where again I didn't think they were going for a full redemption or anything. But they were enough of like... We didn't want the dude to die, obviously. It's like yeah. come back to the light, Akechi, and maybe he would have joined us for the final fight with Shido or something. Yeah,
1: exactly, because like you find out there the whole his whole backstory is that he is basically the you know, he's he's Edmund from King Lear. Like he's the bastard son of Shido, and so he has And he has grown up hating this dude Who's his father But who's abandoned him Like you know basically abandoned him And his mother And his mother died several years ago And Akechi doesn't think that Shido knows That Akechi is his son And Shido doesn't really 100% know He doesn't really 100% care And but so Akechi has been Trying to sort of using his powers To warm himself up to Shido Get close to Shido To then ultimately be like Hey bastard I'm the bastard I'm gonna kill you And that's his whole plot And so there is this moment where you're like well, maybe like we know, we're not going to kill Shido, but maybe you can like we are both working toward the same objective here, and it's like you, and and the, like Morgana has that really great line uh, in this section where she says like, I mean, the way you feel about like him, like the main character, that's not a lie. Like, come come on, like be honest with yourself, and and like come over because it's like obviously that that. You know, you have two personas, you have two outfits that can exist here, and, like, you can try to make the argument that, oh, like, that I have my powers make it so that I really can, like, have a fake persona or whatever. It's like, but you know deep down that's bullshit. Like, that's a part of who you are, too, and, like, come on. But, like, of course, like, and, like, you know, if they make the right choice, like, it would be a... It wouldn't really make sense for him to actually be your party member, but there is this sense of, like... It could have been that like it could in like some like alternate universe gone that way and you could have come back over here and stopped being a complete asshole. Not and, and, and you know put on the like the silly white suit again and, and fought with us but of course like he's too far gone.
0: Yeah, and not to constantly reference Death Note, but it yeah. is kind of like the arc of Death Note where Light has his memories wiped yeah. and is working with L, and you see, like, ah, if Light had made a couple of slightly different choices, look how good a dude he could have been. Yeah. And, it is, and that's the whole point of that arc is that it hurts that much more when they stick the knife in and Light goes back to being
1: evil and kills L. Yeah.
0: Spoiler for
1: a 15-year-old like show. Yeah, sorry if you're going to watch it on Netflix for the first time. <laughs> this Is still on Netflix? No, I, they're making that like TV movie or whatever Oh, thing. right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. I don't know. Who knows if they're even going to do that plot? I don't know. Yeah, if it'll have anything
0: to do with the Japanese yeah. show. That's the question. Also,
1: I'm pretty sure Death Note is still on Netflix. Okay, I the last the time things I was go off at, and on. Last time I was looking at the anime on, on Netflix, it was there. Okay, nice. Um, but anyway. So was Persona 3, the movie number two, by the way. <laughs>
0: but not one Not the movie the other right. one. Just
1: <laughs> Persona 3, the movie number two. I have no idea what licensing issue makes that true, but that is the case. It's a good movie. We recommend it. I just would recommend
0: you watch all of them. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... No, I mean, you're right. It is this... There's so many complex emotions rolled up with the end of the, uh, the catchy storyline there. Yeah. Um, and I was going to try and think of where to go with this next. What, what, what would you say about this next? Um, I
1: don't know. Like, it's just... It, it, it's something oh. where... Okay. Well, you have Sorry. To think,
0: yeah. I, I was trying to think of what I was going to say. There is one criticism I would make. Okay. Which is that... Um, you know, We've compared some things where we're saying, hey, this game did this better than Persona 4. Yeah. One area where I thought this did worse than Persona 4 is with Akechi, you, you, I couldn't help but compare him and his social link to Adachi, yeah. which goes in a very similar direction. And of course, this is only true of the golden version of Persona 4, but accepting that, we'll just talk about it that yeah. way. In Persona 4 The Golden, the Adachi social link is so fascinating because for like its first five or six ranks, you meet Adachi, he comes home and hangs out with you and Nanako, and you really bond with this guy... And you actually get a lot of a sense that something's up with him. He's not satisfied in life. He's got all these issues. He's got and he these cabbages. Indeed. But you do see this side of him where, like, hey, there's something here that resonates with me, and I think we are friends on this level. And it makes the final levels of the Adachi social link just dynamite. Because yeah. what you see there is that, like, it's, again, it's not about redeeming Adachi, but it's about seeing the side of Adachi that, like, You could have been this. Yeah. And and I am... This part of you is the same as me. And, like, there's this kind of thin line between us. And it leads to this one scene where you go meet him, like, in the TV world at night. And it is the creepiest, most atmospheric scene in all of Persona 4. It's like
1: if David Lynch made a social, link scene in a Persona game.
0: Oh, absolutely it's like that. It's like something on a firewalk with me. And it is chilling in so many different ways and I think part of it is because you had that active interactivity on the social link and I think they put some re- and again it's because one of two social links they added to gold and they could do this but they put so much work into honing that social link and it adds so much to the Adachi character if you manage to play it with that yeah and I think I wish they would have done something like that with Akechi because I think the automatic social link they do with Akechi is the most throwaway social link I think in any of the Persona games it's I don't even remember what the specific scenes are except for like the last two ranks which happened during the final confrontation and I think they leveraged that pretty powerfully. But because it comes in fits and starts and you never really even remember you have it, it's automatic, but even the scenes where it goes up automatically aren't like Morgana or even Igor in some moments where they feel like meaty scenes. They're just kind of like, Akechi was in this scene, uh, that's rank three. And I think they could have done something where maybe Akechi was out in the world because, again, he's introduced very early in the game yeah. compared to when he becomes important to the main plot. And I think you could have had something similar to Adachi where like there's four or five ranks that you do with him And they leverage that and it would make, I think, that last scene resonate a little more if you felt you had some kind of agency over your friendship with Akechi. Because as it stands, I think, I don't know if I bought 100% the amount of sympathy we wind up feeling for Akechi because I don't, I never, it was all on rails with that character. I never felt I had any agency in that relationship and I think they could have done more with that. Still a, a, a interesting character and a really powerful final set of scenes. Everything that happens with... You know, he has that Robin Hood persona. And then finding out his true persona is fucking Loki. Yeah. And everything that happens with that. Really cool stuff. And I think the final move of him basically sacrificing himself for you... Because Shadow Akechi of Shido comes and they like basically kill each other. Oh, yeah. And all of that. It's really, really good stuff. I just kept thinking... Man, this could have been even more powerful to me if this was a little more Adachi-esque in how they handled that social link.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I would have, like, I would have liked it more if they had done that with the social link thing. Like, as it is, but it is also something where it's like, you know, the Marine Adachi social links in Persona Four, of the Golden, are like the most highly produced social links in any Persona game because they are like, like, they, obviously they put so much effort into those because they're the only two ones they had to make for that version of the game. But there is something I really like about with Adachi. There's like this catchy sort of uns- or Adachi? Uh, sorry, Akechi. They have very okay. similar names they and, and they break down in very similar ways. Like, I kept on waiting for catchy to just start talking about the bitches. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, like, there's, a, there's like, this weird connection between you and him that that is something that if they had been, if they had found a way to sort of, like, reveal maybe part of this earlier or something, you could do maybe more of a social link thing with it. But of the fact that both your life and Akechi's life have been completely fucked over by Shido. And yes. like, that's like he like he's like this this he's this weird like fulcrum around which both of you have like the last for like you the last couple of years for him longer, your lives have revolved around these decisions that this one piece of shit has made. And it's just unfortunate that like, you know, because Akechi was was caught in that orbit for longer and he didn't have like anyone else with him to pull him out like he's stuck there and you can't quite yank him free of that and it's something that adds like a little extra oomph to when you encounter Shido and you see like 100% like this dude just does not care about people no it doesn't matter who it is he sees everybody as disposable everybody as a tool and especially that moment where the the shadow Akechi comes in and you see like okay yeah like Shido like like Akechi's an idiot for not knowing this about Shido but you totally understand why he, he's way too close to it to be able to see Shido doesn't give a shit about you all he sees you as is 100% as a tool and once you've fulfilled your purpose
0: he's going to discard you absolutely and, and you know there's the other thematic parallels where they both the protagonist and Akechi are the number zero they yeah. get their they have unlimited personas theoretically they are both chosen by evil Igor and all this stuff yeah. and awakened and they both get the app that way but the the, the issue is All of those things are themes and ideas the game tells you rather than showing you. And the game is very, very good at telling, so it's okay. It's just that most of the time the game is also good at showing. And it's just that's that one area where I think they drop the ball a little bit. Maybe not even drop the ball, it's just I can theorize in my head a way it could have been even better. Because the baseline is, it's really good. It's just it's not as really great as other parts of the game. Sure. That's all I would say about it. Yeah. But um, it's a really powerful scene And like it's Again by the time you're done With that palace You feel pretty battered In a lot of different ways Yeah
1: It's like the, seeing all the different sides of, of the fucked up part of society And like the criminal Like social political influence That, that Shido is a part of it, It's definitely It's it's one of those things Where the game has been building up Slowly and slowly From the beginning And it's something I've kept on Wanting to mention on these podcasts and something I love about The beginning of the game Is there's this sense of Like impending disaster on like a larger social scale that is always like kind of on the horizon and the the mental breakdown cases are a part of that of like every time you go home like like if you're talking to people or like you like random people on the street or you like go like listen to what is going on the tv like it's just constantly you're hearing about murders and train accidents and like rapes and it's like it's just like the world feels like it and specifically japan feels like it's completely falling apart in a way that feels very like real and modern and here of just like that was, That's what it feels like every day Like it just feels like If you are turned, tuned into the news Or media at all Like you are constantly getting bombarded With so much information About just awful shit That is happening everywhere That it feels like At any second The world can crumble to pieces And what you find out here is Like shido is shido and the people around him are making it feel that way on purpose like both in that like you know akechi is pushing pushing things using his powers to cause some of these accidents to happen but also just shido's entire platform is about like creating a strong japan creating a strong nation it's incredibly nationalist and saying like we rejecting the rest of the world like we want to be able to be on a position of power above other countries and like we want to take control of our fate take control of our destiny and and the only way that kind of platform works is when people feel scared and you have to make people feel scared. And it's like the kind of platform that Trump runs on when he says stuff about how, you know, like the carnage of America and the carnage of like living in the inner cities and, and trying to make arguments that like are statistically completely unfounded about how like the crime rate is the worst it's ever been or whatever. When it's like, there was a slight uptick in like specific types of murder rates in specific parts of America. But in general, the crime rate is as low as has like basically ever been. And, and you need to create that sense of fear And you need to distort that perspective of the world For someone like him to be able to take control of everything And that's like You know that's something that is being set up Literally from like second one of the game Of like you seeing like the train stuff And just all throughout the game, you're constantly hearing stuff about how, you know, a CEO of, like, this major, like, food corporation died in a car crash. And it's only when, like, you go through the second time that you know, because you you hear about this in, like, you know, the fucking April or something. You're like, oh, that's Okamura. Like, Okamura is, like, kind of working to create those things. And you hear about all these other sort of situations of, like, you know, all the students having their money being stolen and, like, being hired to sort of ferry drugs by the mafia and stuff like that. All that stuff comes to a head when you find out that Shido is involved, has his like Toes in all those little kind of criminal pies And they're all working together to Ultimately sort of like create this Administration that will run Japan From a nationalist perspective
0: So let's move through some of this next stuff A little faster just because we're running a little low on time But yeah, so we send the calling card And this this cutscene that Happens where the Phantom Thieves unveil themselves To the world is one of the most badass Things I've ever seen in a video game, Discuss
1: Uh, the moment where, like, you know, he has been the most talkative of all the Persona protagonists, but he just straight up has a full-on line he says about, basically, like, we are the Phantom Thieves and we're going to take the world. It's just like, fucking, fucking yes. (laughs) It's like, you've just been waiting the whole... Because you know this dude has shit. Like, he's very quiet, but you know he has shit to say in a way the Persona 3, Persona 4 protagonists did not, and he gets this moment to say it, and, like... You know, getting up, like, and, like, having the most spectacular calling card of all of them, and, like, in front of the entire nation, and Futaba gets to, like, you know, when they try to shut it down, Futaba gets to use her hacking skills to say, ha ha, fuck you guys, like, this is, we, we have control of everything it
0: is interesting when you know we talk about how the game kind of builds to a false
1: climax here
0: yeah. it's a hell of a false climax because that sense of escalation of you are on this is not a little investigation team in the outskirts of japan you are unveiling yourselves to the nation and realistically the entire world yeah it is incredible and just throwing down like shido we're coming for you you motherfucker yes it's fucking great and and it plays the uh, instrumental version of wake up get up get out there yeah. during that scene and oh it's so great so great Love that! Uh, the, the, we haven't talked in general about the sheer quality of the animated cutscenes in this game, yeah. and the tonnage of them. I, there must be like at least like an hour of footage. or I think ton. it's about an hour. Yeah. Um, it's so so good. Yes. Um, I wish... Does this game... I don't think this game has something like Golden did of like a viewer uh, of all that. No, it does not have a cutscene viewer. It, yeah, that'd be a sure. great DLC to add or something. Yeah. It, that would be really cool. Because I would love to just be able to go into the game and see some of those again. Yeah. Because Atlas isn't letting them get uploaded to YouTube. That's <laughs> yeah. for damn sure. You can find them if you want. I know, but not easily necessarily anyway um that's really great and then yeah we talked about it a little bit already but when you go back onto the ship and you fight cheeto the progression of everything that happens in oh that God. boss fight is incredible at uh, first he's on this giant golden steed made of like you know corpses and people you know yeah. writhing in pain and, and it, it's a giant
1: golden lion golden lion specifically. specifically right yeah and yeah it's it's like a giant golden lion built out of like the massive humanity that he's going to ride on the election, basically. Pretty yeah, exactly. And once you beat him once, he just
0: throws down, rips his shirt off, and it's like, I'm just gonna punch you guys to death.
1: And it's incredible. It's amazing. And he basically he gets like as the fight goes on, he's using these abilities to make it so that he can take multiple turns in a row. I think is a really fun mechanic. But it's, it's yeah, and, and then, like, once you, like, beat him in that stage, he has, like, a further stage that's, like, if you have ever watched Yu Yu Hakusho, there's the Toguro character from that show that, like, as he, like, keeps on power, he's that kind of anime character that says, like, I'm at 60% of my power level or whatever. He does that, and, like, as he powers up, he gets, like, more, like, bulked up and, like, crazy looking, and Shido very much has, like, that kind of look to him at this point, and it, it's something where... Shido is... I think this is probably my favorite... From like a narrative... Like constructed in like... Framework perspective... My favorite boss fight... In any of these games... Because they build up Shido... So well as a villain... And then... When you get to this point... And you find out like... The kind of dude this guy is... Where it's like... He's not... Quite 100% a Trump figure... He reads way more to me... Like Vladimir Putin... Of like... He is... As much as you hate him... As much as like... An evil motherfucker... This dude is... Like you can't help but respect a part of him of like he started from like nothing like he was not handed a fortune he was not handed anything like he worked and like fucked everyone over along the way and just destroyed everything to climb up of from his of his own power to the very top of the nation to the point where he's about to be the prime minister and there's something about that That, like, you kind of have to recognize when, like, you know, his whole boss fight is about him discarding everything. Like, he just... He throws away the masses that are helping him. He throws away, like, his uniform and everything. It's just him as a man, like, fighting you. And there's something... And, like, you need to have, like, this whole team of people with magical personas to take down this dude's, like, distorted view of his own, like, ego. Is so kind of, like, impressive in a way. And, And backed with... What is like definitely the best boss fight music that Persona has had, which means it's like basically the best boss fight music that exists in video games, which is Rivers in the Desert, that starts from the instrumental version, and then when he casts off all the stuff around him and like rips his shirt off basically in a very Yakuza kind of way, then the, the uh, lyrical full version of the song starts playing, and it's just the most like just pumped up, excited. Fucking boss fight in a turn based game I've ever seen it's amazing it is
0: So it is definitely my favorite boss Fight in this game I'd have to think about comparing it To all the other games but like I remember when, when Rivers in the Desert started, I was like, this music is so good. I grabbed my wireless PlayStation headphones and put them on just because, like... I Normally, I use those when, like, there's other people around and I don't want to make noise. This was... The house was empty other than my dog, and I was like, I just want to hear this as close to my ears as I can. And so I had the headphones on. I was getting pumped. And you're totally right. It is that, like, you and Shido kind of meeting each other in this moment as equals, and it's like, we are going to throw the fuck down. And it is just this long dragged out down and dirty fight with that amazing amazing song playing
1: it is utterly incredible yeah it's like it's he doesn't turn into a giant monster he doesn't he's not crazy he just rips his shirt off and starts punching you and it's like it is is something that's like you know it has a weirdly similar feel to some of the boss fights in like yakuza 0 where it is just like we're gonna rip our shirts off and we're just going to beat the shit out of each other while we yell our names at each other. Like that's, that's what's going to happen. And like that's how this is going to go down. And it's like the most like testosterone fueled fucking thing that you could possibly have. But man is it satisfying. It's so,
0: it's, and it's so great. And it's such a beautiful perfect melding of like visuals and music and game mechanics and everything else. I'm like slightly annoyed That they use rivers in the desert for some of the later boss fights. Just because it's like... That's the song for the Shido boss fight. And it's like so perfect. I don't mind hearing it again. Love that song. But it's like just a little bit in the back of my head of like... There's kind of a purity to just having it for that moment. Because it is such a perfect culmination of that arc.
1: Yeah. And... goddamn, is it great. Yeah. I also just have to give a shout out. Because I've already talked about Gundam once on this podcast. The voice actor for Shido. And this is something that's like very specific and deliberate. Is... Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's he's uh, the guy who plays Char in Mobile Suit Gundam, who's like the main big character in that game. That like was the breakout kind of iconic character that like you could see in like fucking everything in Japan. Because of and you're talking popular. about the Japanese version of the game. yes, the, the Japanese version of the game. Yeah, obviously, obviously. Although, well, no, in I, when I was looking this up, apparently the guy who voices him in English did voice Char in the 2012 Mobile Suit. The Mobile Suit Gundam... The origin movies... So...
0: That's amazing...
1: That they went to yeah, that length... I assume... I assume that was on purpose... That would be an incredible coincidence... So like... There is a Shar connection there... But one of the things... That's important about Shar Is he's an incredibly... Iconic character... Who's like a pseudo villain... In the first series... But also like... By the time he comes to the end... He's sort of like... Maybe the real hero... Of the, the original Mobile Suit Gundam series... But then he keeps on popping up... In the next couple of series... From like the 80s... And becomes more of a heroic figure... And then becomes ultimately a more villainous figure in the end when he becomes... I mean, he literally ends up as a politician in, like, the Shars Counterattack movie. And, like, is very much like how Shido is in this game. And it's a very specific bit of casting. Like, this guy doesn't do a huge amount of voice acting these days. Like, he shows up every once in a while, like, if they're doing another Gundam thing. Or, like, you know, very occasionally he'll do a voice in, in an anime or something. But generally, you know, he's, he's off doing other stuff. But they got him for this game. He's playing a very shar esque role and then it, when you get to the last boss fight and you're fighting him and he's on the giant line and he's wearing that costume, he has a hood that is basically just Char's hood from the show with spikes on it. And it's like that moment where you're like, okay, they 100%. They, like they built this character to get this guy to voice act this dude because he is so good because it's not just that like it's a really iconic performance it's that guy is a really great voice actor and like what he brings to that role is so powerful and just the moment where i realized it was him because especially early on when he's doing like the, you know you have the flashback to him being drunk like he's like really putting on a lot to make it kind of hard to tell that it's him and then the more you see that character bit by bit, like the realization of like oh shit holy fucking shit that's char from mobile suit gundam like one of the most iconic characters in all of anime and i'm gonna he's gonna rip his shirt off and i'm gonna fight him yes thank you very much please
0: and i will say this is another actor in english kind of like a catchy where i think did as well as he could just i'm sorry english american you know english speaking actors can't cut loose the way japanese actors can it's just a thing in japanese voice acting I don't know. I don't think there's any English actor who can quite do it. He I mean,
1: there's certainly there's there's no other actor on the planet that could give that performance the way the Japanese voice actor did.
0: Yeah, so uh, I would love to you know, one day maybe I'll play this game in Japanese and I'd love to hear that. But
1: uh, Also, I just a brief shout out, I love uh, Shido's character design also. He's, oh, he's got like, it's a really minimalistic look and I think his like orange sunglasses are such a nice touch. It's like, it's the detail that makes that character just like there's something that, like, yes, this dude would wear orange sunglasses. This dude's... That's the kind of guy this is. It's, it's a good... It's a really good character design.
0: Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Um, so you mo- we move on from that. And as we- we've talked a lot about a lot of this section of the game before where, you know, you move on past that and suddenly people aren't paying attention to Shido's yeah. thing. And you're kind of going back to school and you can kind of do that because no one's paying attention to you or the Phantom Thieves and everyone's ignoring you. And it gets to December 24th where the majority of the ending of the game takes place. So much so that the ending of this game, really, given how much happens around Christmas, should have been the Phantom Thieves going to get KFC. <laughs> Let's be honest. Sure. Yeah. Just a little cultural thing. The Japanese people love getting KFC on Christmas. Yes. It's, a, it's a long story. If you but go
1: out on. with Fataba on Christmas Eve, she specifically shouts that out. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. yeah I went with... Uh haru so that's funny anyway um but yeah so december 24th shit gets real because like you you go that's when you decide i'm gonna we're gonna go to mementos and we're gonna steal steal the public's cognition
1: yes because obviously something is off like nobody is reacting to what has happened and it's something that like is another part of like where the game feels like really current is like It doesn't matter that Shido confessed all his crimes on live fucking television in the way that it didn't matter that we literally had a video recording of Trump admitting to sexually assaulting women. The dude still got elected to be president of the United States. Sometimes the public does what the public does and it don't make no fucking sense. And it's very much that kind of situation here.
0: It it is weird. Now I really know what you're talking about about playing this game in October of 2016. Yeah. Of like, how could the game be more prescient than that? Uh Uh-huh. Like, yeah, Shido gets on TV, confesses his crimes. Trump was on TV confessing his crimes. We don't even talk about it anymore. Yeah. That this dude is a rampant sexual molester. Yeah. Yeah. No. So we're going to... And that's where we tie in Mementos and it's like, yes, I knew this was coming. We're going to go to Mementos and figure out what's at the bottom of this. And a shout-out I have to give to Mementos is there are plenty of games that have like the side mechanic yeah which is this is the side place where we go grind for stuff in fact you know what a good example of this is a game we love Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth right. has like you can go visit the the side or like past dungeons and kind of see things I feel like in most JRPGs that's what Mementos would be where it's a place you can go grind but it's not really narrativized yeah Mementos is just as important as anything else in this game it's yeah. not necessarily as like fully produced as a tartarus but it actually fulfills a very similar function where it's this thing you have to get through sort of on your own timetable by the end of the game because once you're there there's going to be something at in this case the bottom not the top that's really important and so mementos winds up being the eighth and final palace and i that's so interesting And, and everything that happens in there where you get down and it's a world of prisons And it literally I mean as you say this is the this is the game just gets more expressionistic as it goes on until what is at the heart of the public's cognition is a giant prison where everyone wants to go and lock themselves up so they don't have to I think for themselves is almost a banal way of saying it. It's more complex than that I think it's that they don't
1: don't have to live their own lives yeah like like their lives can be led lived for them and by the state basically yeah. And it is... uh, There's so many nice touches in that
0: part. Because one of the things I love... Because it's not the most interesting palace, I think, from a design perspective. Although there's a lot of cool stuff in it. And I like the little puzzles you have to do with the lights. Um, Not that they're the most elaborate or anything else. I don't think they're supposed to be. Because it's a palace you like do in one day.
1: Yeah, it's like like a three-floor palace. It's not supposed to be as elaborate as the other ones.
0: Right. But throughout that palace... There are people in cages you can just go up and talk to. It's an incredible amount of text. Another place where yeah. I'm like, translation team had a lot of work to do on this game. And uh, But every one of those is illuminating in a different way of like, you keep seeing all these people who are, these are the cognitions of the public. And it's just this mass of, why would I try? It's these people who have been beaten down by life. It's people yeah. who were probably like the Phantom Thieves when they were kids. And at some point just realized it was easier not to try. And that's kind of where they're bringing in the horror at the heart of this game is that feeling that everyone in the world has felt at some point of it would be easier just to give up than to try in this world.
1: Yeah, and you have that moment that I love so much that like seals the deal for me on like how they treat their villains in this game, which is when you find all the, the villains that have survived. And and are all like in these cages... And are sort of talking to you... And you see this version of like... Basically the version of them that you created... And you don't realize until up to this point... That it's like... Oh you didn't... Like because you didn't destroy their shadows... Their shadows had to have gone somewhere. Like they like because you know the the villains never awoken to their personas. Their shadows weren't destroyed. So it's like their shadows have to be somewhere. What you find out is you have been working as a fucking like jail, like a warden the whole time. And you've been taking all these people who have been, you know, they're evil, but they are also like living outside, outside of the normal boundaries of society and are like for in like a like a dark reflection of you, forging their own paths. And, like, living their own, like, free lives in power of themselves and in power of their lives through committing crimes and being awful. But still have that kind of strength of self to live that own life, like, completely d- driven by their own distorted desires. And so you find out, well, when we've taken that away from them, we have taken all their shadows and locked them up in these cages. And you find out... And, there's, and for me, it was where, like, I realized kind of how weirdly I f- affected I was by seeing Shido locked up in this cage, completely passive, not caring about anything and realized like like, you know, this dude was fucking evil, but again, there's something I could kind of respect about him that like this is not this is not the fate he should have. Like we like we should have found a way to make him productive. Like find like it's not just enough that you need to confess to your crimes. It's like you need to repent for them and work in like for a positive force, not just like become completely passive. And what? that like it felt like it, 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 like, it, I think this is really appropriate. It felt like like a caged up lion that's like been drugged. And you look at it's like, well, sure, this lion ate like three people and that's why it's been like drugged and put in this cage. But also like there is something beautiful and terrible about this lion that that seeing it in this state is like a weird sort of shame we we'll talking talk about
0: political themes. I mean, there's a very real critique in Persona 5 of the prison system in the yeah, world. And, and frankly, Japan in some ways has a, a more progressive prison system in some ways than like America does. America <laughs> has like the least progressive prison system in the world. So it's especially prescient from an American perspective. But, you know, the way they translate it in, in English at least is Igor is constantly asking you about your rehabilitation. Yeah. And you ultimately find out Igor, this Igor at least doesn't really mean that. Yeah. You know, or he means it in a very backwards way because the uh, the goal of prison should be taking people who are making, you know, the wrong moves in society and rehabilitating them so that when they re-enter society they can be productive again. It's supposed to be a social service. Yeah. And yet I you know, I can only fully speak to this from an American perspective. In America it's all about getting people in prison and keeping them there until they fucking die or hang themselves. You know, and yeah. it's it's really awful and it's really gross and that you know we we want we politically want people to get out of prison commit a crime and go back in that is how the system is built for those people and it's awful and this game is kind of seeing the entire world as a prison of that yeah they did something evil but just throwing them in a prison with nothing to live for is an evil thing to do in and of itself as well not that the Phantom Thieves mean to do that or anything but realizing that and that there's something bigger they're working for not just for themselves not just for their loved ones but even for these villains that they met again we've talked before about how like crucial empathy is to this game that's one of those moments of empathy of like there's something bigger here that even these people need to be freed from this prison because it's not productive yeah and and again it it directly ties into the revelation that is coming about igor and what he's been doing
1: yeah so i I think we can just talk about that because you know at the at the core of of mementos you find there's the holy grail the say hi and it's, it's I, there's something about like hearing that it, it's very good in, in Japanese. But anyways, um, you find the Holy Grail, which is like hooked up by all these veins to all the people in the prison in a very like Matrix esque fashion in a way. And you hear the Holy Grail talking. And I assume in Japanese or in English, it's the same voice as Igor, right?
0: I believe. I mean, it's always hard to tell, but I believe so. Yes. Yeah.
1: So because in Japanese, it's like it's very definitely like oh, this is like new Igor's voice coming out of this Holy Grail. That's kind of weird and then you fight him and then you find well how does this the whole sequence because then, then you go into like it just takes over the real world and then everyone disappears and then you find out that Igor's evil but yes but before, I think on like December 23rd maybe there is
0: an event where Igor kind of plays his hand a little bit and talks about like the filth of Earth and all this yeah, stuff yeah and that, like,
1: that humanity is going to be, have to be wiped clean because yeah. you failed your mission yeah you, and you realize something's up with this dude yeah because even uh, Justine and Caroline are like eh this is maybe not what we signed up for this is a bit weird we're well, we're supposed to re- like because they are legitimately trying to rehabilitate you
0: yes yeah uh and throughout their social link there's a lot of some things up here so yeah. yeah so yeah everyone disappears very dramatic scary cutscene. another one where i'm like did i accidentally get the bad ending yeah uh and then yeah you go back to the velvet room and igor sounded different for a reason
1: yes and this is maybe the most unbelievable twist and like gotcha I have ever seen an In any video game Cause in the Japanese version Like we've we talked about this a, little, a number of times On this podcast a I'll a just go for yeah. it Briefly But so And the in Japanese, the, the voice the voice actor who recently played Igor died like almost like five years ago at this point. And so he was a very iconic part of the franchise. People were very attached to his voice and his performance. And so even though he passed away, they kept on using that character and using his performance in like the anime and in like Persona 4 the Golden in Persona 4 Arena. Whenever that character would show up again, they would just take lines from the different like sources from the original performance and sort of like put them together in ways that's like, okay, like... Especially since Igor generally talks like in a very broad philosophical way, you can kind of do that and get away with it, and leave the heavy lifting to the Velvet Room attendant or whoever. And that's how they have handled it. And so then Persona Five comes around. You see the trailer where it's like, okay, clearly they have recast Igor because everyone is sort of curious. What are they going to do? You have a whole new game that's like a hundred hour RPG. There's no way you can just have this character be that performance stitched together it's just impossible so it seems like okay they have recast him decided to go in a totally new direction with him it's like he's this darker igor but really fits the tone of the game it's really interesting feels like it's kind of sad but like obviously like the choice was either recast him or don't use the character anymore and so you're playing the whole game just assuming this is igor they've just recast that actor this is what this is and then you find out no this isn't igor it's like the it's the evil god you're going to find at the end of the game that he's been taken the form of igor you find out he's evil he floats up disappears then actual fucking igor comes out of the nether rematerializes in the velvet room and it's the original fucking voice actor and holy fucking shit okay how crazy is that it's it was it blew my fucking mind that they did that when i played this game
0: this is this was going to be my question though I, it blew my mind too I loved it But what I was excited for Is I thought they were Going to use Original Igor's voice In English They don't do it They don't? No They recast oh, it it sucks It really muted That moment for me And I wanted to ask you If in Japanese They just use the old lines they, so they it
1: do is, It is 100% the old lines And that's one of the reasons Like uh, LaVinza Your new we'll have to talk about oh, The new fused together Velvet Room Attendant Has like all Like a lot of lines Compared to, like, Igor has just, like, like and stuff like that. Right, and he spoke little enough that I thought that must have been the
0: case in Japanese. But no, um, it's a totally different actor. It doesn't even sound much like English Igor. And it broke my heart a little bit because that i look this whole stretch of the game is amazing all the stuff that happens in the velvet room it did not mute it overall for me but that one moment i was so ready to hear original igor because that dude's not dead he's an yeah. english actor they could have just brought they could have used old lines i mean in america we have sag and things like that i know it's harder to do that but you could have paid him and yeah. gotten the lines and stuff but for some reason it's someone else and he sounds kind of like igor but it it definitely that that is probably the biggest point where I think the dub drops the ball.
1: No, oh, yeah, that really sucks because I just assumed that it would be original because that's like the whole point of that moment. Yeah, is if you're a fan of the franchise, like holy fucking shit! Like obviously it has a whole other dimension to it. Also, when like the original actor has passed away and realizing they have found out, like they have come up with maybe the most ingenious way <laughs> you possibly could to keep that performance alive It's, like yes. really sort of beautiful. It was like. It it was amazing. It was, like, maybe the most mind-blowing thing that happened in the whole game. Even though, like, compared to some of the other shit that happens with, like, Akechi and stuff, it's a relatively minor plot twist. Like, it still is like, oh my god, I've just never... I, I don't think I've ever seen something do that before. No,
0: and I think there's tons of things I still loved about it. I think the whole idea of turning Igor into the villain and that there was this evil god who basically used the archetypes of a Persona game to fuck with the world.
1: Yeah, and and to be that, like... Because, of course, like, your whole thing in the game is you're, like, fighting against power. Like, you're fighting against the power systems that exist in the world. What higher power system is there in a Persona game than motherfucking Igor? Like, he's the dude who runs the Velvet Room. Of course, at the end of the game, you have to fight him. Like, of course, you know, they have to find their, like, way to make him evil and stuff. But, yeah, you have to fight that guy because he's the... He's the biggest power system that exists in this universe. like Or like in these kinds of games. Obviously you have like the earlier Persona games where he's working for Philemon and stuff. But
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah I'm really disappointed that the dub did not use um our igor because i also love the performance of english igor yeah. and you know look it has been like eight years since persona 4 was dubbed i don't know how much that guy has even done in the spin-offs so maybe there just really was a contractual issue where they could not get him back and use his lines and i understand maybe they tried their hardest whatever the case it's still disappointing yeah so but let's talk about all the other awesome things okay, that happened yeah. the scene where caroline and justine realize what's going on and you are... they I mean, Igor full on says, you're gonna be executed. And they tell he tells Caroline and Justine to fucking cut your head off. And they realize what's going on, and they say, we need you to do one last fusion. And you decapitate Caroline and Justine and create Lavenza. That's the point where I tweeted, Persona 5 goes to some fucking places. Yeah, huh? I mean, the payoff to the Persona fusion in this game, that it's through these fucking guillotines, and then it becomes there is this attendant. And actually, I thought because... This, this might even be caroline and justine might be voiced by the woman who does elizabeth in english like it just mm. it sounds close enough that i thought the reveal was caroline and justine might just be fucking elizabeth from persona 3 it's not that and that's totally yeah. fine but like lavenza's first line before you see her sounds a lot like elizabeth um so for whatever and there's so many twists coming i was like i was ready for anything like yeah. you know um, but no that you caroline and justine were originally one person they have to be reunified and now you have this character lavenza all of that is just incredible yeah. and who's then,
1: also like that has been the voice you hear every time that like you start a social link or complete a social right. link reading i assume in english they did that as well reading the thou art and i art thou thing it's the voice you hear at the very very beginning of the game in like the confession room and stuff so it's like it's a something that again like there are so many things building up to it like obviously then also caroline and justine's character designs that when it happened i couldn't believe that i did not see that coming it seemed like of course this is what they're going to like if, like maybe not the you're going to cut their heads off part but like of course that's what they, that's of course that's where these characters end up as they were the same person because they haven't give, told us like where that voice is coming from and stuff yeah and, and that voice
0: is in english at least it sounds enough like both caroline and justine that i wasn't sure but then as soon as you hear lavenza i'm like yes that's exactly the voice yeah. i've been hearing all this time so yeah i really that really nice touch there yeah. and then of course. One of my favorite parts of the game is after Good Igor comes back and he's... I love that Good Igor is sort of like out of it at this point. You know, he's like, something happened. I'm not sure. And then uh, you have this... Lavenza says, your friends are here too. And one of my favorite stretches of the whole game is going through the dungeon of the Velvet Room. And the Velvet Room music playing. Yeah. And you have to go find everybody in their separate prison cells and talk to them. And like the music and the dialogue and how the last line is voiced for all of those absolutely incredible so much good stuff going on there absolutely
1: it's it's something where it's i love when this game breaks down the weird barrier between the velvet room and everything else that happens in the game that's like it's something that almost never happens like you get a little bit of it with elizabeth interacting with other characters in persona 3 you get in a much bigger way in persona Four, the golden in the marie dungeon section and here it's like I love everybody is brought to the Velvet Room and is in their own dungeon or in their own cells and you have to go back. And I like it. It's just like a brief little scene where you have to go up to them and give them this extra little push and they like transform back into their fandom their thieves' clothes so and blow off the doors to their prison while the the song plays. It's sort of building up to the ending They scene. have to
0: reaffirm what their arc was. They have yeah. to reaffirm their reason for fighting. And, and again, it's expressionistic. That's how they get out of their prisons, both literally and figuratively.
1: Yeah. And just like the whole thing of, you know, you have... Literally been playing this 100 hour RPG like every time you go into the velvet room you're stuck in this little tiny box that I and it made so much sense once you get to this part of the game of why you can move your character in the cell when you go to the velvet room where traditionally you just go to the velvet room and it's just basically a menu with like a cool background you know but here you've like physically exist in the velvet room can walk around you talk to you know you have to walk up to the left side of the bars to be able to talk to the warden or and then you have to walk up kind of like in the middle to talk to Igor. And you can go sit on the toilet if you want to or whatever. It doesn't really do anything much. But like you know you have this little tiny cell to walk in. And then of course the reason why that is is at this part of the game that door gets blown off. And you get to just walk around in the velvet room and just if you want to go walk to Igor. And just go walk up to Igor and say like hey man what's up. And he's like what's up
0: dude. It's such a wonderful mind yeah. fuck. Yeah. And then uh, then you're back in the town. Life will change is playing again. Yes. You got to climb this tower. The the I love actually there's a bunch of good fights on the way up there. There's the, the boss fight like rush you have to do, but then also just like the enemies they pick is like a good challenge and you can do a lot of leveling here. Yeah. And you're getting your way up to fight Yaldaboath or however you say yeah. it.
1: All the sort of mini bosses you're fighting along the way are going up it's like basically the chain of the justice arcana yeah. personas of like all the different sort of like top level angels like Gabriel and stuff. And uh,
0: then final boss fight in this game in this fucking game man is is something
1: else it's so good it's so just everything about it. the music is amazing the The boss design is amazing. I like the like the, the both of the boss like character design and the design of the boss fight. I like the like the different stages of bringing out all these different items that sort of represent different things it
0: 's a clear callback to the persona three final boss where mm-hmm. it goes through the arcana and it keeps changing, and this game finds another way to make the last boss interesting where it also has this repetitive structure but things keep changing in the fight it actually took me a while to realize i could attack the individual arms because i just kept going for the main right. body and i'm like oh wait i can attack everything and so it's a good challenge but it's more of it's like a puzzle again
1: yeah because all the different arms have different like resistances and stuff so you can't just yeah. like cast the spell that hurts all of them at the same time other than Mejidola, which I had, luckily. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't do quite as much damage as, like, I mean, you know... It I, does I, if you're ridiculously I, over-leveled. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was level 93 because I just grinded at the end of the game and got the most powerful persona. So it's not like, yeah. it wasn't a big deal, but, yeah. No, it's,
0: uh, so it's great on all those levels, but, like, the presentation and the narrative stuff that happens here, it just, you leave it breathless. Let's yeah. talk about some of that.
1: Okay, yeah, so, like, I mean, like, one, it's just, like, the scale of it is so important, and, like, the scale at the beginning, and then when they sort of, like, bring that up again at the end.
0: Oh, one of the best things, is so so the boss is, like, just absolutely enormous, and your characters are dwarfed, and one of the best things they do is they shrink down the menu of, like, what you do, triangle, circle, X, to, like, this tiny little version of itself to represent just how small you are. Like, you can't even really read what it says. They've shrunk it so small. It's, like, this great Photoshop effect that they've done. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's this huge sense of scale of you fighting against God, like, and, and that's I like how they frame it all around like it's like the Holy Grail. The Elder both is like supposed to be like this like ancient sort of creation God from myth, and so it's like this, you know, again keeping with the themes of the game, like you are you are the trickster, like you are like you're not evil, but you're not on the the side of the law necessarily because the side of the law is not necessarily the same thing as the side of good, and so like you're fighting against God itself, and then you have the whole audience of all the people watching this fight but it's it's also it's not just a god i like i love the the thing i think makes
0: this a more even philosophical fight between the god and the main characters is that the god specifically says i came from the cognition of people this is a representation of what they wanted and of course the game will ultimately go with the persona you summon but like the whole idea of like no we know that's not the case they're is another set of beliefs. It's not just the prison. This is... You are distorted in your own way. Yeah. Like everything else. And so there is this kind of evenness there. So I just want to say it because it's also amazing. And again, it does tie into what is the public actually thinking. And yeah. so you have this great back and forth between the boss fight and then what's going down on the ground level. Again, very reminiscent of Persona 3 in that way. Yeah.
1: And it's something where like... Because also like Yaldabaoth is like more coming like from the Judeo-Christian perspective of god like less like you know nix is obviously like pulling from like a greek god it is more obscure in the persona 4 it's a no okami and that's like it's a uh japanese shinto goddess and so like that has different connotations to like this feels like especially when you you bring out Satanail at the end which is like supposed to be like a sort of like version of lucifer basically it is has this almost sort of like paradise lost-esque dynamic between like you know it's god in the sense of like the god of order and that's like that is what you are fighting against is that like a cold emotionless god that is seeing everything as like i have designed this for you i have created this for you like this is my game i have built for humanity and like you are going to you know you are my pieces that are just going to live your lives the way i decide you to live them and so that's like the kind of god he represents and then yeah then you have the whole audience there and the way they hold they do the section that's you know every persona game needs a section of where you have to think like oh we're doing well in this boss fight but like we actually are starting to lose and then you have all the social link people like cheering you on but here you have all your social link people along with Like all of basically Tokyo watching this like fight in their weird abstract memento space cheering you on and this is one of the places where I feel like the way they've set up the social links really works to its benefit of like all the characters, the social link characters in the game, I think are particularly memorable. Partially because they have a gameplay link to them. So like, you know, then like so many of them are people you have to keep on visiting because they're like merchants and stuff like that you have to buy stuff from. And so you don't have the situation like in Persona 4 where you have your whole like weird list of people that are also in that game as a sort of an issue of like they're rooting you on from some like sort of subconscious space because they are not actually technically aware of you finding this person because they're never aware of your activities in this like sort of supernatural space. Again it's something they
0: tried to graft from Persona 3 and yeah. 4 without really adapting yeah. it.
1: Yeah so like but also in Persona 4 you have like some social links that by the time you get to the end of the game you're like oh right there was that kid I tutored I kind of just <laughs> forgot about him or like yeah there was like the young mother social link that are like find social links when you experience them but never once you have finished them they never come up. Whereas in Persona 5, partially because you have to interact with a lot of them over and over again, but also because before this point, some of them pop up in, like, story-related events around Shido and stuff like that. You have a lot more stuff of, like, bringing up the confidants, seeing them again and again, seeing them in different scenes in the game, being involved in different things. So when here they come in and they're all cheering you on, like, you recognize all of them. And, all, and there's some of them, that like, you know, they're kind of interacting together, like Sojo and Mishima, in ways that, like, it's kind of fun to see your, like, social Link characters Pal around and have a couple lines of dialogue with each other. When normally they're completely separated. And just having that personal connection. Made it feel like. Like with Persona 3. There's much more of a sense of like. You understand why these people cheering you on. Is giving you the power it's giving you. Then plus you have the great narrative device. Of the the, uh, percentage meter. Going up of all the people believing in you. And getting to 100% and blowing up the meter. Because of course it blows up the meter. And then the best
0: Persona summoning. In the fucking series.
1: Yeah. Yes this is, this is where the scale comes in 1 billion percent where you find out where it's just it's such a beautifully played scene where you summon this persona and it's like nothing kind of happens and then you have uh, Yaldabaoth just is like ha ah, ah, ha ah, ah. ha like of foolish humanity your power could never like possibly come like and face me like you you never bring all this disparate power together and fight against me and then like you hear lightning strike and thunder go and like oh Fuck, and the guy looks up, and the clouds are parting, and then you your, like, evolved version of your persona, fucking descends from the clouds, and, it's, and he's gigantic, he's the same size as, like, not a little bit bigger than Yaldabaoth, and then when you cast your spell to defeat him, this is also where you're getting, like, just the most incredible fucking song that's playing, Yeah, and then, so you do your thing to fight him, you cast the spell, and your main character points his gun and it zooms oh out oh my god and it's you so see great sat nails pointing his fucking gun if you're you're the main character basically says like get lost shoot sat nails shoots fucking blows a hole in the head of the fucking of to basically the god of christianity of like the paradise lost god (laughs) fucking blows a hole in his head and then the camera goes up and looks through the hole and behind the hole you can see the sun rising it's so fucking good
0: it's unbelievable like more than any other moment in persona 5 it's like this is why this is how they leverage like the technical advancements they were able to use in this game of these in-engine cutscenes. just like the scale of it you leave that just breathless and Like jaw dropped like what did I Just see yeah
1: it's it's like You know they took like the best Ending to like a giant monster Movie or something or like more like a giant robot movie I guess with like the designs but it's like The scale of like how just immediately It becomes so huge And it's just such an Unbelievable power fantasy it's so much More powerful than I feel like a lot of like The the Persona 4 version where it's like You know you feel kind of cool when you get Izanagi no Okami but it's like but he's still a normally relatively normal sized persona. This is like of course he has to be gigantic. It's the world arcana. Like he represents the hopes and dreams of all these people. He's gigantic.
0: Yes. It's so good. It is unfucking believable. And again, on that thematic side of what this means expressionistically, it why this works where I think like Persona 4 for instance doesn't is that again, this persona you summon that is so grand and all that you have seen the legwork going into humanity yeah. could summon this also. Like, we could create Yaldabaoth, but we could also create Satinale, Yeah. And we could bring this up, and it could ultimately win out for everything we have seen over 100 hours of this game. That is an achievement of so many different things, but ultimately it's an achievement of good fucking storytelling. Yeah.
1: And, and, it's just, and it feels like, you know, you have played 100 hours of this game. You deserve something ridiculous and epic at the end of it. And it's like, man, does that scene deliver. I was just... The first time I played that game, I was just so ecstatic. I was just... It was... It's amazing. It's, it's just, just so good. It's so... It's just such a like, incredible relief to see it happen. Like, it's such an incredible execution of that. And just, again, the music playing there is amazing. That, like, in the way the music is paced out, like, it's supposed to sort of... Because you can... You know, the music plays however the music plays, but it's sort of designed to reach this, like, zenith right when you shoot that is an instrumental version of like the best part of the ending credits song which is like where the ending credits song comes as like huge high point and then it like softens down and quiets down as uh the other sort of slowly falls down and you see like the sunrise coming up and it's like it's so beautifully executed yeah uh just
0: perfect perfect in every way end of the game we've talked about most of the stuff at the end yeah um i mean the fact that you have to go to juvenile detention and all that is like the game goes places again And and yet it's with a sense of hope Because you go there but your friends are not going to leave you there And as you said it's, it's back to this Political discourse of This kind of grassroots organization that you have built up Coming to work for you And getting this person out of prison And getting another chance at, at life and everything And with that of course Morgana comes back Yes This is the one thing we kind of haven't talked about with this area of the game Is that Morgana comes back Now Morgana is just a cat And yes. we even get a new cat portrait Which is kind of amazing and creepy and wonderful yeah. Also, uh, like,
1: I love when Morgana comes back at first. Uh, the way he talks, and I think like, I don't know how much this comes across in the English performance, but the way he talks in Japanese is much more subdued. Like it's still a little weird, but it's like he's clearly like trying to be more respectful and humble. And then like slowly as the scene goes on, like now like yeah no he's he's still gonna
0: yeah no they they do it basically the the actress just yeah subdued is the way to say it of how she does her performance and then it gets kind of bigger. Yeah. They obviously can't do the same linguistic things you would do in Japanese, yeah. I assume. But yeah no um, really good moment and but Morgana and this is one of my favorite things about the ending is there's so many evocative suggestive things about the ending where they don't tie things off with a bow and one of those is that Morgana is just a cat at this point point. Yeah. and Morgana never was human never becomes human but Morgana has decided hey I have a goal and I want to see if I can become human one day and if not you know I'm gonna stick with this guy and and live my life and there is something so wonderfully beautiful about that that i love that the mystery of morgana is solved only to a certain degree yeah and that morgana is uh, you know still out there and with you and part of this cast and we'll see what goes beyond that but that is like a specific goal we're looking at but then the entire ending is about things left unsaid and about the roads these people will still travel and that It's something I love, love, love about this ending is that it has to rely on the suggestive nature of an ending of that they're going to go off on another adventure and we're going to see what happens, but it has to be left to the imagination because that's what makes it powerful. It's like the point where i feel very similarly with this game as i did with persona 3 where i don't need or even necessarily even want to spin off to this game because like the ending is such a great perfect ending i don't need to see what happens next yeah. because what happens next exists in the in the eye of the beholder it exists in the mind of the player and because there's so much you can imagine about what happens next that ending is so immensely powerful to me and having that one thing of morgana is still a cat but might become human one day but is going to look for his path forward whatever that is uh adds so much to the ending of the game
1: yeah although but then at the same time like knowing that obviously you know this game has sold fucking gangbusters especially in japan like they're going to do spin-off stuff with it i do like that like the ending of this game is perfect but it also leaves enough room that if when they do spin-offs i feel like there's more stuff to do with these characters whereas like the persona forecast didn't really have that much to like keep on doing with them is the thing that's like you see it really heavily in the Persona 4 Arena games and and they do it better dancing all night but still not great and that like those characters don't have that much room to develop and it's like all the story heavy lifting is on the persona 3 cast in the arena games and then also the new characters and it's like in dancing all night the main story heavy lifting stuff is on the new characters and on nanako because those are the characters that have room to do stuff with and i like that with the persona 5 cast like i can see if you do a persona 5 arena i can see more stuff to do with these characters and more like layers to see with them and more stories to tell Here, with them
0: here's the spin-off
1: i want yeah
0: because they're going on a road trip I want Hajime Tabata and the team from Final Fantasy XV to come in and do an open world road trip game with these characters like what Final Fantasy XV, frankly, just should have been. Yeah. But with the Persona 5 cast, I think they could really do a good
1: job. Yeah. Sure. I I I can see that. they
0: hit that out of the park.
1: Yeah. But Morgana's just a cat the whole time. Doesn't ever get, like, turns into the, like, weird chibi cat man. No, I mean,
0: it, it is, it's the open, you know, open road ending that I think can be so evocative and powerful. And the kinds of ending that you will think about because there's, it's about the suggestion of what's still to come. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's better than this, but it makes me think of one of the first endings in literature I remember, which is the book Stuart Little, where there's <laughs> okay. just... No, let me, let me do this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, St- Do you ever you read Stuart Little? <laughs> yes, I've, okay. yes, I did when I was in the second grade, right. yeah. But it sticks with me because Stuart Little... And, and this is because I think the book was unfinished, so this is not a great example, but it's, it taught me something about the world, which is that the whole like second half of that book is Stuart Little gets a, a bird friend, and the bird gets like, goes missing, and so Stuart gets in his little mouse car, and he goes off, and has a couple of adventures, doesn't find the bird, and the last chapter of the book is he leaves and is still going off to find the bird, and never does, and there was never a sequel or anything, and it's just Stuart Little is still out there looking for the bird. Again, I think it's because E.B. White just didn't finish the book, but... It's still something of, like, that's an ending that sticks with me really powerfully, like, even though I read it as a really little kid, because I don't know what happened to Stuart and the bird. And I think that is instructive in that sometimes those endings are the ones that stick with us the most. And this is obviously a much more intentional version of that ending. It's not because the Persona 5 team, I don't know how to stroke or something. I don't know what happened with Stuart Little. But, like, there is some of that same quality where they are off and the story continues... But it continues in our minds and our hearts. And that's what makes this a powerful narrative. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So. Definitely.
0: Persona 5. um, We will talk about this more next week. Yeah.
1: We need to. Because there's a lot of stuff I still want to say that we just don't have time to talk about. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about some superlatives with it. I want to do some wrap up thoughts. I want to talk about the music. I want to talk about the social links. Yeah. That'll be next week's show. But I think this was a good wrap up of the final arc of the story to go with our other Persona 5 spoiler casts. Yeah. Um, We will have at least five Persona 5 spoiler casts. That sounds good to me. This is yes. number four. So, uh, yeah, next week we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. That's coming out next week. Right, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about another Doctor Who. Yeah. And we'll probably record a five-hour podcast. <laughs> Who knows?
1: You know, they're, they're just getting longer and longer, you know. I've, I'm just really looking forward to our, our 20-part Dragon Quest podcast series that's going to start right now.